This is Audible. War is a part of the eternal human condition, sometimes fought for good reason, often not. Either way, there was a cost paid by those asked to fight. The Pacific was Plato's attempt to portray just how dear that cost can be. We were fortunate to have two extraordinary memoirs to ensure that that portrayal was both honest and dramatic. Helmet for My Pillow by Robert Leckie and With the Old Breed at Peleliu in Okinawa by E.B. Sledge. The war in the Pacific was particularly brutish, raw, and elemental, and indisputably necessary. As a consequence, tens of thousands of young Marines, like 21-year-old Robert Leckie from Rutherford, New Jersey, and 19-year-old Eugene Bondurant Sledge from Mobile, Alabama, would battle a most determined enemy in some of the most godforsaken places on Earth. Making Band of Brothers, I became friends with Major Richard Winters, the commanding officer of Easy Company for much of the war. When I told him we were making the Pacific and basing part of it on with the old breed, he simply said, Sledge is a legend. High praise indeed, considering the source. The reason Major Winters considered Sledge a legend was the book you were about to listen to. It is in the mind of many, including me, the finest war memoir ever written. It is written with such clarity, candor, and empathy that those of us untested by combat can begin to understand while those who have been under fire can't help but recognize. Composed some 30 years after the war from notes he kept surreptitiously while in combat, Sledge initially wrote the book to explain to his family as clearly as he could what war was like. He succeeded so well that his wife, Jean, urged him to publish it. The result is read here by Joe Mazzello, the actor that played Eugene with such heartbreaking honesty for us in the Pacific. Eugene Sledge struggled when he returned from the Pacific, unable to comprehend why he survived unscathed while so many good men didn't. But after witnessing so much destruction and death, Eugene found his ultimate salvation by studying life, becoming a biologist, and teaching botany at a university in Alabama. Speaking for Playtone and for Audible, we are proud to bring you this remarkable book. I'm Tom Hanks. Audible Inc. presents With the Old Breed at Peleliu and Okinawa Written by E.B. Sledge Narrated by Joe Mazzello with Mark Vitor And a bonus introduction read by Tom Hanks In memory of Captain Andrew A. Haldane Beloved company commander of K-35 And to the Old Breed the deaths ye died I have watched beside, and the lives ye led were mine. Rudyard Kipling Rifles were high and holy things to them, and they knew five-inch broadside guns. They talked patronizingly of the war, and were concerned about rations. They were the Leathernecks, the old-timers. They were the old breed of American regular, regarding the service as home and war as an occupation. And they transmitted their temper and character and viewpoint to the high-hearted volunteer mass, which filled the ranks of the Marine Brigade, the Leathernecks, in fixed bayonets 
by John W. Thomas, Jr. Preface This book is an account of my World War II experiences in training and in combat with Company K, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, during the Peleliu and Okinawa campaigns. It is not a history, and it is not my story alone. I have attempted, rather, to be the spokesman for my comrades, who were swept with me into the abyss of war. I hope they will approve my efforts. I began writing this account immediately after Peleliu, while we were in camp rest on Pavuvu Island. I outlined the entire story with detailed notes as soon as I returned to civilian life, and I have written down certain episodes during the years since then. Mentally, I have gone over and over the details of these events, but I haven't been able to draw them all together and write them down until now. I have done extensive research with published and unpublished histories and documents pertaining to my division's role in the Peleliu and Okinawan campaigns. I have been amazed at the vast difference in the perception of events recounted in these narratives as contrasted to my experience on the front line. My Pacific War experiences have haunted me, and it has been a burden to retain this story. But time heals, and the nightmares no longer wake me in a cold sweat with pounding heart and racing pulse. Now I can write the story, painful though it is to do so. In writing it, I am fulfilling an obligation I have long felt to my comrades in the 1st Marine Division, all of whom suffered so much for our country. None came out unscathed. Many gave their lives, many their health, and some their sanity. All who survived will long remember the horror they would rather forget. But they suffered, and they did their duty, so a sheltered homeland can enjoy the peace that was purchased at such a high cost. We owe those Marines a profound debt of gratitude. E.B. Sledge Introduction I owe a large debt to John Keegan, the British military historian, for it was he who first told me about this book. It was in the mid-1980s, and I was searching out testimonies from Second World War combatants for my book, Wartime. Have you read Sledge? Keegan asked. I had not heard of Sledge. His book had appeared a few years before, with little fanfare and minimal critical notice. But Keegan, a sharp-eyed and comprehensive researcher, had found the book and was so impressed as to write later in his book, The Second World War. Among the thousands of soldiers' stories, I am haunted by one from the Pacific War. Keegan found Sledge's account of his experience fighting in the South Pacific to be one of the most arresting documents in war literature. Keegan's haunted is the right word. Listeners to this audiobook will find it hard to forget and they will not easily brush away its troubling revelations about what the modern world periodically requires its boys to do and to suffer. One cause of this book's distinction is that its author is not an author. Sledge wrote this memoir less for strangers than to tell his own family what his war had been like. It was his wife who persuaded him to submit it to a publisher. 
The book is devoid of the literary expediencies and suavities that may occasion skepticism or disgust in more artistically self-conscious war memoirs. Sledge is so little an author in the pejorative sense that his eye seems never to wander from his subject to contemplate the literary effect he's creating. His style is like window glass. You don't pause to notice it. You look through it to the actuality it discloses. It is this honesty, simplicity, and modesty that gives Sledge's book its extraordinary power. Eugene Bondurant Sledge, Sledgehammer to his later Marine Corps buddies and friends, was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1923. As a child, he was sickly, afflicted first with malaria and then with rheumatic fever, which weakened his heart and confined him to a wheelchair for nearly a year, during which he had to miss school. But he recovered to enter high school in 1938, where he did better in science and history than in algebra. Latin grammar bored him, but he found translating Caesar on warfare exciting. He liked classes in literature, except when the teacher left the world of solid data and began talking about symbolism and the like. He learned to play the snare drum and joined both the marching band and the school orchestra, and he was attracted more to informal than to organized sports. He especially liked sandlot baseball. Discipline at home and at school was strict, he remembers, so I stayed out of trouble. His family lived on the edge of town, and his father, a physician, taught him to shoot and to observe things precisely, and then to describe all I had seen. Sledge read a great deal and learned to revere Washington, Audubon, Daniel Boone, and, of course, Robert E. Lee. His grandfathers on both sides had been Confederate officers. On his father's phonograph, Sledge played Bach, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. He liked pretty girls a lot, but during adolescence he seemed to like riding, hunting, and fishing even more. He was a freshman at a two-year military college in Alabama when, a year after Pearl Harbor, he decided to enter the Marines, enlisting in a program that guaranteed him a further year of school before he joined. He underwent the dire passage from innocence to experience that he describes here, from 1943 to 1946. When the war was over, he found himself miraculously unwounded, at least in body. He studied business administration at Auburn University without much sense of vocation, and then worked briefly in real estate and insurance before perceiving that his interest in biology and zoology was pointing him toward a quite different career. He returned to Auburn for a master's degree, and then went to the University of Florida for a Ph.D. in zoology. Now a professor of biology specializing in ornithology at the University of Montevallo, Alabama, Sledge lives quietly near the university, which is not far from Birmingham. On the wall of his living room, reports Studs Terkel, who interviewed Sledge for his book The Good War, there is a plaque, the gift of Sledge's buddies, honoring one extraordinary Marine and concluding, God love you, Sledgehammer a sentiment listeners to this book may want to echo. Sledge still signs his letters Semper Fidelis. Of course it was the Marines that attracted this high-spirited, patriotic boy, unable to resist the dress-blue trousers, khaki shirt, necktie, and white barracks hat of the recruiting sergeant. But it wasn't long before he became acquainted with the less attractive side of life in the Marines the ritual humiliations and abuse incident to indoctrination and infantry training, 
Sledge rapidly toughened physically and mentally, learned to call the ground the deck and a wall a bulkhead, and came to understand that if he didn't kill the Jap, the Jap would most certainly kill him. As one instructor urged, kick him in the balls before he kicks you in yours. He developed new self-confidence as he mastered the use of infantry weapons, with special emphasis on the Marine's favorite, the K-Bar knife. While Sledge and his fellow Marines grew tougher, however, they remained innocent, protected by their naive optimism from noticing that the destiny they were preparing for was to be destroyed or maimed. The fact that our lives might end violently or that we might be crippled while we were still boys didn't seem to register. Next, the crowded, smelly troop transport and the questions tugging at Sledge's mind. Would I do my duty or be a coward? Maybe I'd disgrace my outfit by running away. Then came more last-minute training, now on the island of New Caledonia, with ominous emphasis on bayonet and hand-to-hand -hand techniques. Sledge and his buddies were shunted into the 5th Regiment of the 1st Marine Division, replacing people killed and wounded on Guadalcanal and at Cape Gloucester, leaving Sledge proud to be a member of this distinguished unit which fought at Bellow Wood in the First World War and was later to fight in Korea and Vietnam. When Sledge joined, it was recuperating and training on the miserable island of Pavuvu, north of Guadalcanal. Sledge was assigned to the 16mm mortar section of Company K, commanded by Captain Andrew A. Akak Haldane, remembered by Sledge as the finest and most popular officer I ever knew. On Pavuvu, rumors from the Guadalcanal campaign were numerous, and accounts of Japanese sadism and brutality fueled an attitude of murderous hatred for that enemy, hatred fully reciprocated the Marines knew by the Japanese. This mutual hatred, says Sledge, resulted in savage, ferocious fighting with no holds barred. This was not the dispassionate killing seen on other fronts or in other wars. This was a brutish, primitive hatred, as characteristic of the horror of war in the Pacific as the palm trees and the islands. Once, after hearing blood-curdling screams close by at night, Sledge found the next morning that a Japanese soldier had jumped into a marine foxhole, where the marine had jammed his stiff forefinger deep into the Japanese soldier's eye socket, killing him in agony. Such, says Sledge, was the physical horror and brutish reality of war for us. Both sides declined to take prisoners, and both sides defiled enemy corpses. Japanese skulls, thoroughly cleansed, became so popular as marine and army trophies that collecting them was finally officially forbidden. The next assignment for the 1st Marine Division was the reduction of the Japanese-held island of Peleliu, one of the Palau Island group, some 500 miles east of the Philippines. Many now believe that the invasion of this six-square-mile island was entirely unnecessary, irrelevant to the winning of the Pacific War. Some believed it at the time, holding that the island could be bypassed safely without its posing any threat to the imminent invasion of the Philippines. Just to be sure, however, Admiral Nimitz decided to neutralize the threat. Sledge and his buddies did so, at a cost of 1,262 dead and 5,274 wounded Marines and 10,000 dead Japanese. The fighting on Peleliu was supposed to last three or four days. It lasted almost two months, from mid-September to November 1944. 
and it was one of the worst slaughters of Marines in the Pacific, if one of the less well-publicized. Tarawa became better known because it was virtually the first terrible island invasion, and Iwo Jima became famous in part because of Joe Rosenthal's photography. However, the conditions for fighting on Peleliu were about as bad as they could be. The weather was hot and humid, with frequent rain and temperatures rising to 115 degrees. On the fourth day, wrote Robert Martin, a Time magazine correspondent with the Marines, there were as many casualties from heat prostration as from wounds. The island was of coral, with solid coral ridges and mesas in which the Japanese had been excavating caves and passageways for years. They used these for command posts and troop assembly chambers, and they positioned mortars and artillery pieces and machine guns at the entrances, which were often protected by movable steel doors. Although the Marines hopefully carried entrenching shovels, they found it virtually impossible to dig in through the coral, and thus they had to lie largely on the surface under deadly accurate mortar and artillery fire. To hit the jagged coral deck meant cutting and abrading yourself each time, and Marine uniforms and shoes were torn to bits. Because digging the usual toilet cat holes was impossible, excrement was everywhere before the island was secured, its stench blending with the smells of the dead, with the whole hellish scene baked in the hot sun. As Martin reported, Peleliu is a terrible place. Few combat veterans have remembered as well as Sledge the effects of fear, and Sledge knows that the fear is not just of being killed or wounded, it is fear of something even worse, fear of not being able to take it and exhibiting the symptoms of cowardice to an audience of men who have trusted you. Sledge tells how when his landing craft approaches the beach, the naval gunfire deafening everyone, his fear is of something seldom mentioned in more heroic and bellicose military narratives. I felt that my bladder would surely empty itself and reveal me to be the coward I was. But once ashore and under heavy fire, Sledge forgets himself in his pity for the others. As he looks around and sees Marines being slaughtered, his word for it, he feels simply sick. As he writes, I had tasted the bitterest essence of war the sight of helpless comrades being slaughtered, and it filled me with disgust. Disgusting as well is his first sight of a Japanese corpse, its viscera displayed and, glistening, bespecked with fine coral dust. And when he sees a medical corpsman bending over a boy marine who just died, he invokes a word that will resonate throughout this book. The word is waste. A blood-soaked battle dressing was on the side of the dead man's neck, his fine, handsome, boyish face was ashen. What a pitiful waste, I thought. He can't be a day over seventeen years old. I thanked God his mother couldn't see him. The corpsman held the dead Marine's chin tenderly between the thumb and fingers of his left hand and made the sign of the cross with his right hand. Tears streamed down his dusty, tanned, grief-contorted face while he sobbed quietly. Prayer is Sledge's frequent solace the Lord's Prayer, and the twenty-third Psalm, his favorites. It is, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, that he recites as his battalion attacks en masse, running across the bare airfield, and he sees marines everywhere going down, blown up and torn apart by artillery or mangled by machine-gun bullets. 
Sledge can't imagine how he survived this massacre, and he concludes that this murderous dash across several hundred yards under massed fire was his very worst combat experience. Not long after, in a moment of silence during a quiet conversation, he hears, as he says, a loud voice say clearly and distinctly, You will survive the war. No one in the group has spoken. The voice has been heard by Sledge alone. Perhaps he has come momentarily unhinged, or perhaps the intensity of the unspoken wish to come out alive has skewed his hearing and his understanding. Normally skeptical of visions and ghost stories and the like, Sledge is persuaded that God spoke to him that night. As a result, he says, he resolved, like other infantrymen who have barely escaped death, to make his life amount to something after the war. Astonished and appalled by the unbelievable carnage, Sledge felt he had to make a record of it. Diaries were forbidden, but in a little rubber bag he took from a Japanese body, Sledge carried his small New Testament, and into its pages he slipped tiny sheets of paper covered with notes. His frequent recourse to his testament misled his buddies into imagining him more pious than he was. He was actually, as he says, keeping notes. After some patrolling and night defensive work, during which 1K Company Marine goes noisily mad and becomes quiet only when hit with a shovel, in the morning he turns out to be dead, Sledge's battalion encounters the army infantrymen of the veteran 81st Division sent to reinforce the Peleliu operation. The popular and amusing animosities between army and marines are suddenly laid aside. Things are now too serious for the normal marine sport of barking at the dog faces, and as a result of common experience, says Sledge, we respected each other completely. Something in me died at Peleliu, Sledge writes. One of the many casualties there is his initial innocence about human evil. Without turning mechanically pessimistic or cynical, Sledge is obliged to complicate and deepen his understanding of human possibility when he watches a fellow Marine use his K-bar knife to extract gold teeth from a wounded but still living Japanese who kicks and writhes as the Marine goes to work. Frustrated and impatient, the Marine finally eases his task by slicing his prisoner's cheeks ear to ear, which, if it makes him gurgle in his own blood and thrash about, exposes the teeth nicely. Watching this, Sledge learns what every generation would learn if it could see its youth engaged in infantry fighting. As a Marine sergeant told Philip Caputo during the Vietnam War, before you leave here, sir, you're going to learn that one of the most brutal things in the world is your average 19-year-old American boy. Of nasty, sadistic episodes like this, Sledge writes, Such was the incredible cruelty that decent men could commit when reduced to a brutish existence in their fight for survival amid the violent death, terror, tension, fatigue, and filth that was the infantryman's war. He goes on to emphasize that such an understanding of human behavior, obvious to all on the line, was not readily available to those removed only a short distance to the rear. If you are back only a couple of hundred yards behind anger and cruelty and hysteria and fear of death, you are too far back to understand. And that is one of the reasons Sledge has written this book. It is about the mystique, that is the right word, of killing.
to avoid being killed. Torturing to avoid being tortured. At various headquarters, reason may govern, but the line is a place of passion and madness. Sledge uses the words totally incomprehensible, absolute as they are, responsibly when observing that Peleliu made savages of us all, he declares, we existed in an environment totally incomprehensible to men behind the lines, service troops and civilians. Sledge and his buddies can hardly believe it when, ragged, filthy, and hollow-eyed, they are finally relieved by army infantry, which required six more weeks to end the battle. Sledge's Company K, formerly 235 strong, climbs aboard the departing transport with only 85 survivors, including two of the original seven officers. Back on Pavuvu, there is the shock of re-encountering people innocent of murder and cruelty and fear. A nice Red Cross girl who proffers paper cups of grapefruit juice to men coming off the ship. A new, unbloodied second lieutenant whose uniform is too neat and clean and who offends Sledge by calling him Sonny. Back under tents, Company K receives replacements and before long training resumes and rumors begin to imply there is going to be another rugged campaign soon. News about the carnage then in progress on Iwo Jima suggested that the Japanese were resisting more insanely the nearer the war came to their main islands. Okinawa was very near. As a defensive position, Okinawa was a Peleliu ten times larger. The island was sixty miles long and eighteen miles wide at its widest point. It was defended by 110,000 Japanese who had excavated and fortified elaborate caves, tunnels, and casemates concealing a deadly accumulation of artillery. This time, Sledge's battalion was in reserve at first, but it still had to land on the beach at D-Day, April 1st, 1945. Climbing down the landing net, Sledge was still frightened, although having been through Peleliu, not as frightened as before— but this time there proved little reason for fright. The landing was virtually unopposed, and the soldiers and marines, a force ultimately numbering half a million, waded ashore smiling and even singing. To Sledge, it was the most pleasant surprise of the war. The weather the first few days was cool and dry, too, and the deck was not of coral but of eminently diggable dirt. The smell so far was mainly of pine trees— the battle plan was first to attack across the island, cutting it in two, and then for the marines to attack to the north and the army to the south. Cutting the island in half took only four days. Resistance was light and scattered. The seizing of the northern part of the island was not too bad either. The 6th Marine Division did it in seven days. In the south, however, the army met fantastic resistance, and soon the marines were called to assist. The 1st Marine Division relieved the badly chewed-up 27th Infantry Division, and Sledge was headed for action again, filled with dread. This time he was on the line, or mortally near it, for fifty days, beginning May 1st with a failed Marine attack on one of the numerous southern ridges, in rain and mud against terrible fire. The news arriving May 8th that Germany had surrendered did little to raise Marine Corps spirits for everyone knew that the Japanese on Okinawa would resist until all were killed, and that, as Sledge says, Japan would have to be invaded with the same gruesome prospects. 
but only a fatuously optimistic Marine could believe he would survive long enough for that horror. Today, almost fifty years later, Sledge still has nightmares about the bloody, muddy month of May in Okinawa, when the artillery fire from both sides was so heavy and unremitting that he had a constant headache. The Japanese were lodged so deeply in their caves that the American artillery hardly bothered them, and when it paused, they resumed their defense with rifles, grenades, mortars, and machine guns, firing at corpsmen and litter-bearers in purposeful contempt for Western civilities. The battlefield was soon scarred, cratered, and treeless, a mess of mud and water-filled holes and slippery ridges, looking like Verdun in the Great War. A week-long stay in a muddy hole on Half Moon Ridge near Shuri, the main Japanese point of resistance, almost drove Sledge insane. There he existed in an atmosphere of unburied, stinking Japanese and marine corpses, maggots, flies, rain, dysentery, knee-deep mud, and the constant fear of death at any moment. It was the most ghastly corner of hell I had ever witnessed, Sledge writes. Peleliu had been bad, but this was an environment so degrading I believed we had been flung into hell's own cesspool. To slip in the mud and fall was to have one's clothing filled with wriggling maggots from the rotting corpses. And if a marine slipped and slid down the back slope of the muddy ridge, he was apt to reach the bottom, vomiting. The war for Sledge and the others fighting in conditions like this was insanity and some Marines went insane, reduced by the shelling to crying or mad shouting and screaming. Others were removed from the line suffering from malaria or pneumonia. Those with trench foot stayed put. The Japanese, finally driven out of their Shuri positions, withdrew further south to a last-stand defense at Kunishi Ridge, where, as usual, they occupied deep caves largely resistant to artillery, aerial bombing, and naval gunfire. Despite hopes for some respite, Sledge's company had to continue with its dreadful work, and sensing that his luck was running out, one can't expect to beat the terrible odds forever, Sledge was in a near panic. But he did not break. When his battalion finally reached the southern shore of the island, Company K was down to fifty men. The reduction of Okinawa had taken eighty-two days. Private First Class Eugene Sledge had lost twenty-five pounds, and on his hands and arms were open sores that would not heal for months. But a final indignity. His battalion had to now move north again, burying the blackened Japanese corpses and salvaging brass shell cases. American casualties on Okinawa came to almost 40,000. There were also more than 26,000 neuropsychiatric cases, men evacuated after psychological breakdowns. In addition to the destruction of the Japanese defenders, some 42,000 Okinawan civilians were killed. Knowing all too well what the forthcoming invasion of Japan would mean for them, Sledge and the lucky survivors in his outfit heard the news of the A-bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with an indescribable sense of relief. They would live, even if shaken and illuminated for a lifetime about the depth of human iniquity. Sledge's testimony about these almost incredible events is entirely credible because of his evident decency and his remoteness from any sort of disingenuousness, actual or literary. 
His way both with life and language is straight, without irony, hyperbole, or the desire to show off. If another writer asserted that in the shower he had seen a long-time member of the old breed, Gunnery Sergeant St. Elmo M. Haney, briskly scrubbing his genital organs with a G.I. brush, we might disbelieve. When Sledge tells us this, we know it is true. Veterans of front lines everywhere will applaud the accuracy with which Sledge registers the sights and sounds of combat. Authors and screenwriters are likely to assert that bullets whine. Sledge knows that they snap. It is artillery shells that whine, while mortar shells whisper faintly. Also remarkably accurate is Sledge's memory of physical details. He recalls exactly what it's like to hike with a heavy pack in a long column that frequently and inexplicably stops. If a man put down his load, he was sure to hear, Pick up your gear, we're moving out. When the column paused, each man was faced with what Sledge calls, without irony, a big decision. The big decision in every man's mind at each pause in the column's forward progress was whether to drop his load and hope for a lengthy pause, or to stand there and support all the weight rather than putting it down and having to pick it up again right away. Sledge's precise description and honest narration accommodate without apology or ex post facto self-consciousness, his boyish pride in being a Marine and helping to win the war, as well as his natural disdain for those in the rear so unimaginative as not to be able to understand what the line troops go through. He honestly hero-worships his company's skipper, Captain Haldane, and he honestly reports his sobs when he hears that Haldane has been killed— and he still mourns for him after all these years. His sharp eye for evidence of nobility and courage in others prompts him to celebrate the selfless dedication of the corpsman. Sledge's sense of honor obliges him to keep his promises, even apparently trivial ones. His book indicates the way he has been true to his wartime experience. He has not allowed the passage of time or subsequent political history to soften the cruel outlines of an experience he must not euphemize or forget. After fifteen days of fighting on Peleliu, Sledge was finally overcome by the strain. I felt myself choking up. I slowly turned my back to the men facing me as I sat on my helmet and put my face in my hands to try to shut out reality. I began sobbing. My body shuddered and shook. But what occasioned this outburst is less Sledge's own fear than his pity for others. He has just heard of a severely wounded Marine nearby, whose body, lifted onto a litter, came apart. I was sickened and revolted to see healthy young men get hurt and killed day after day. I felt I couldn't take any more. It is this extraordinary compassion that makes Sledge so unique a memoirist of war. One expects an infantryman or marine to feel fear and pity for himself, but it is rare for a soldier to be distraught because he feels for others, total strangers often, and to be distraught without a trace of sentimental affectation or secret self-congratulation. For this reason, Sledge doubtless suffered more than many of his fellow marines, and he has not notably hardened since. I don't like to watch television shows with violence in them, he says today. A poem he likes to quote comes from the First World War, but he knows it will serve for the Second and Subsequent Wars as well. It is Wilfred Owen's Insensibility, 
Owen's ironic celebration of men devoid of compassion and imagination, whose experiences in war are easier and more forgettable than those of their sensitive comrades. Happy are men who yet before they are killed can let their veins run cold, whom no compassion fleers or makes their feet soar on the alleys cobbled with their brothers. Happy are those who lose imagination. They have enough to carry with ammunition. Happy the soldier home, with not a notion how somewhere, every dawn, some men attack. But cursed are dullards whom no cannon stuns. By choice they made themselves immune to pity. If it was Sledge's fine sensibility that caused him to suffer more than some, it is that same sensibility that in this book has kept the distinctions firm, the compassion warm, the imagination agile, and the values admirable. Paul Fussell Part 1 Peleliu, A Neglected Battle Chapter 1 Making of a Marine I enlisted in the Marine Corps on 3 December 1942 at Marion, Alabama. At the time, I was a freshman at Marion Military Institute. My parents and brother Edward had urged me to stay in college as long as possible in order to qualify for a commission in some technical branch of the U.S. Army. But, prompted by a deep feeling of uneasiness that the war might end before I could get overseas into combat, I wanted to enlist in the Marine Corps as soon as possible. Ed, a Citadel graduate and a second lieutenant in the Army, suggested life would be more beautiful for me as an officer. Mother and father were mildly distraught at the thought of me in the Marines as an enlisted man, that is, cannon fodder. So when a Marine recruiting team came to Marion Institute, I compromised and signed up for one of the Corps' new officer training programs. It was called V-12. The recruiting sergeant wore dress blue trousers, a khaki shirt, necktie, and white barracks hat. His shoes had a shine, the likes of which I'd never seen. He asked me lots of questions and filled out numerous official papers. When he asked any scars, birthmarks, or other unusual features, I described an inch-long scar in my right knee. I asked why such a question. He replied, So they can identify you on some Pacific beach after the Japs blast off your dog tags. This was my introduction to the stark realism that characterized the Marine Corps I later came to know. The college year ended the last week of May 1943. I had the month of June at home in Mobile before I had to report 1 July for duty at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. I enjoyed the train trip from Mobile to Atlanta because the train had a steam engine. The smoke smelled good, and the whistle added a plaintive note reminiscent of an unhurried life. The porters were impressed and most solicitous when I told them, with no little pride, that I was on my way to becoming a Marine. My official Marine Corps meal ticket got me a large, delicious shrimp salad in the dining car and the admiring glances of the steward in attendance. On my arrival in Atlanta, a taxi deposited me at Georgia Tech, where the 180-man Marine detachment lived in Harrison Dormitory. Recruits were scheduled to attend classes year-round, 
in my case about two years, graduate, and then go to the Marine base at Quantico, Virginia for officer's training. A Marine regular, Captain Donald Pizant, was in charge. He had served with the 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal. Seeming to glory in his duty and his job as our commander, he loved the Corps and was salty and full of swagger. Looking back, I realize now that he had survived the meat grinder of combat and was simply glad to be in one piece with the good fortune of being stationed at a peaceful college campus. Life at Georgia Tech was easy and comfortable. In short, we didn't know there was a war going on. Most of the college courses were dull and uninspiring. Many of the professors openly resented our presence. It was all but impossible to concentrate on academics. Most of us felt we had joined the Marines to fight, but here we were college boys again. The situation was more than many of us could stand. At the end of the first semester, 90 of us, half of the detachment, flunked out of school so we could go into the Corps as enlisted men. When the Navy officer in charge of academic affairs called me in to question me about my poor academic performance, I told him I hadn't joined the Marine Corps to sit out the war in college. He was sympathetic to the point of being fatherly, and he said he would feel the same way if he were in my place. Captain Pizant gave the 90 of us a pep talk in front of the dormitory the morning we were to board the train for boot camp at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California. He told us we were the best men and the best Marines in the detachment. He said he admired our spirit for wanting to get into the war. I think he was sincere. After the pep talk, buses took us to the railway station. We sang and cheered the whole way. We were on our way to war at last. If we had only known what lay ahead of us. Approximately two and a half years later, I came back through the Atlanta railway station on my way home. Shortly after I stepped off the car for a stroll, a young army infantryman walked up to me and shook hands. He said he had noticed my 1st Marine Division patch and the campaign ribbons on my chest and wondered if I had fought at Peleliu. When I said I had, he told me he just wanted to express his undying admiration for the men of the 1st Marine Division. He had fought with the 81st Infantry Division, Wildcats, which had come in to help us at Peleliu. He was a machine gunner, had been hit by Japanese fire on Bloody Nose Ridge and was abandoned by his army comrades. He knew he would either die of his wounds or be cut up by the Japanese when darkness fell. Risking their lives, some Marines had moved in and carried him to safety. The soldier said he was so impressed by the bravery, efficiency, and esprit of the Marines he saw in Peleliu that he swore to thank every veteran of the 1st Marine Division he ever ran across. The Dago people, as those of us bound for San Diego were called, boarded a troop train in a big railroad terminal in Atlanta. Everyone was in high spirits, as though we were headed for a picnic instead of boot camp, and a war. The trip across the country took several days and was uneventful but interesting. Most of us had never been west, and we enjoyed the scenery. The monotony of the trip was broken with card games, playing jokes on each other, and waving, yelling, and whistling at any and all women visible. 
We ate some meals and dining cars on the train, but at certain places the train pulled into a siding, and we ate in the restaurant in the railroad terminal. Nearly all of the rail traffic we passed was military. We saw long trains composed almost entirely of flat cars loaded with tanks, half-tracks, artillery pieces, trucks, and other military equipment. Many troop trains passed us going both ways. Most of them carried army troops. This rail traffic impressed on us the enormousness of the nation's war effort. We arrived in San Diego early one morning. Collecting our gear, we fell into ranks outside our cars as the first sergeant came along and told the NCOs on our train which buses to get us aboard. This first sergeant looked old to us teenagers. Like ourselves, he was dressed in a green wool marine uniform. But he had campaign ribbons on his chest. He also wore the green French forger on his left shoulder. Later, as a member of the 5th Marine Regiment, I would wear the braided cord around my left arm with pride. But this man sported, in addition, two single loops outside his arm. That meant he had served with a regiment, either the 5th or 6th Marines, that had received the award from France for distinguished combat service in World War I. The sergeant made a few brief remarks to us about the tough training we faced. He seemed friendly and compassionate, almost fatherly. His manner threw us into a false sense of well-being and left us totally unprepared for the shock that awaited us when we got off those buses. Fall out and board your signed buses, ordered the first sergeant. All right, you people, get aboard them buses the NCOs yelled. They seemed to have become more authoritarian as we approached San Diego. After a ride of only a few miles, the buses rolled to a stop in the big Marine Corps recruit depot, boot camp. As I looked anxiously out the window, I saw many platoons of recruits marching along the streets. Each drill instructor, D.I., bellowed his highly individual cadence. The recruits looked as rigid as sardines in a can. I grew nervous at seeing how serious, or rather scared, they seemed. All right, you people, off them damn buses. We scrambled out, lined up with men from the other buses, and were counted off into groups of about 60. Several trucks rolled by carrying work parties of men still in boot camp, or who had finished recently. All looked at us with knowing grins and jeered, You'll be sorry. This was the standard, unofficial greeting extended to all recruits. Shortly after we debussed, a corporal walked over to my group. He yelled, Platoon, ten up, right haste, forward hook, double time hook. He ran us up and down the streets for what seemed hours, and finally to a double line of huts that would house us for a time. We were breathless. He didn't even seem to be breathing hard. Platoon halt! Rise! He put his hands on his hips and looked us over contemptuously. You people are stupid, he bellowed. From then on, he tried to prove it every moment of every day. My name is Corporal Doherty. I'm your drill instructor. This is Platoon 984. If any of you idiots think you don't need to follow my orders, 
Just step right out here, and I'll beat your ass right now. Your soul may belong to Jesus, but your ass belongs to the Marines. You people are recruits. You're not Marines. You may not have what it takes to be Marines. No one dared move. Hardly even to breathe. We were all humbled, because there was no doubt. The D.I. meant exactly what he said. Corporal Doherty wasn't a large man by any standard. He stood about 5 feet 10 inches, probably weighed around 160 pounds, and was muscular with a protruding chest and flat stomach. He had thin lips, a ruddy complexion, and was probably as Irish as his name. From his accent, I judged him to be a New Englander, maybe from Boston. His eyes were the coldest, meanest green I ever saw. He glared at us, like a wolf whose first and foremost desire was to tear us limb from limb. He gave me the impression that the only reason he didn't do so was that the Marine Corps wanted to use us as cannon fodder to absorb Japanese bullets and shrapnel so genuine Marines could be spared to capture Japanese positions. That Corporal Doherty was tough and hard as nails, none of us ever doubted. Most Marines recalled how loudly their Diaz yelled at them. But Doherty didn't yell very loudly. Instead, he shouted in an icy, menacing manner that sent cold chills through us. We believed that if he didn't scare us to death, the Japs couldn't kill us. He was always immaculate, and his uniform fitted him as if the finest tailor had made it for him. His posture was erect, and his bearing reflected military precision. The public pictures a D.I. wearing sergeant stripes. Doherty commanded our respect, and put such fear into us that he couldn't have been more effective if he had had the six stripes of a first sergeant instead of the two of a corporal. One fact emerged immediately with stark clarity. This man would be the master of our fates in the weeks to come. Doherty rarely drilled us on the main parade ground, but marched or double-timed us to an area near the beach of San Diego Bay. There the deep, soft sand made walking exhausting. Just what he wanted. For hours on end, for days on end, we drilled back and forth across the soft sand. My legs ached terribly for the first few days, as did those of everyone else in the platoon. I found that when I concentrated on a fold of the collar or cap of the man in front of me, or tried to count the ships in the bay, my muscles didn't ache as badly. To drop out of ranks because of tired legs was unthinkable. The standard remedy for such shirking was to double time in place to get the legs in shape, before being humiliated and berated in front of the whole platoon by the D.I. I preferred the pain to the remedy. Before heading back to the hut area, at the end of each drill session, Doherty would halt us, ask a man for his rifle, and tell us he would demonstrate the proper technique for holding the rifle while creeping and crawling. First, though, he would place the butt of the rifle on the sand, release the weapon, and let it drop, saying that anyone who did that would have a miserable day of it. With so many men in the platoon, 
It was uncanny how often he asked to use my rifle in this demonstration. Then, after demonstrating how to cradle the rifle, he ordered us to creep and crawl. Naturally, the men in front kicked sand into the rifle of the one behind him. With this and several other techniques, the D.I. made it necessary for us to clean our rifles several times each day. But we learned quickly and well an old Marine Corps truism. The rifle is Marine's best friend. We always treated it as just that. During the first few days, Doherty once asked one of the recruits a question about his rifle. In answering, the hapless recruit referred to his rifle as my gun. The D.I. muttered some instructions to him, and the recruit blushed. He began trotting up and down in front of the huts, holding his rifle in one hand and his penis in the other, chanting, This is my rifle, as he held up his M1. And this is my gun, as he moved his other arm. This is for Japs, he again held aloft his M1. And this is for fun, he held up his other arm. Needless to say, none of us ever again used the word gun, unless referring to a shotgun, mortar, artillery piece, or naval gun. A typical day in boot camp began with Reveille at 0400 hours. We tumbled out of our sacks in the chilly dark and hurried through shaves, dressing, and chow. The grueling day ended with taps at 2200. At any time between taps and Reveille, however, the D.I. might break us out for rifle inspection, close-order drill, or for a run around the parade ground or over the sand by the bay. This seemingly cruel and senseless harassment stood me in good stead later when I found that war allowed sleep to no man, particularly the infantrymen. Combat guaranteed sleep of the permanent type only. We moved to two or three different hut areas during the first few weeks, each time on a moment's notice. The order was, Platoon 984, fall out on the double with rifles, full individual equipment, and sea bags with all gear properly stowed, and prepare to move out in ten minutes. A mad scramble would follow as men gathered up and packed their equipment. Each man had one or two close buddies who pitched in to help each other don packs and hoist heavy sea bags onto sagging shoulders. Several men from each hut would stay behind to clean up the huts and surrounding area as the other men of the platoon struggled under their heavy loads to the new hut area. Upon arrival at the new area, the platoon halted, received hut assignments, fell out, and stowed gear. Just as we got into the huts, we would get orders to fall in for drill with rifles, cartridge belts, and bayonets. The sense of urgency and hurry never abated. Our D.I. was ingenious in finding ways to harass us. One of the hut areas we were in was across a high fence from an aircraft factory where big B-24 Liberator bombers were made. There was an airstrip, too and the big four-engine planes came and went low over the tops of the huts. Once one belly landed, going through the fence near our huts. No one was hurt, but several of us ran down to see the crash. 
when we got back to our area. Corporal Doherty delivered one of his finest orations on the subject of recruits never leaving their assigned area without the permission of their D.I. We were all impressed, particularly with the tremendous number of push-ups and other exercises we performed instead of going to noon chow. During close-order drill, the short men had the toughest time staying in step. Every platoon had its feather merchants, short men struggling along with giant strides at the tail end of the formation. At five feet nine inches, I was about two-thirds of the way back from the front guide of Platoon 984. One day, while returning from the bayonet course, I got out of step and couldn't pick up the cadence. Corporal Doherty marched along beside me. In his icy tone, he said, Boy, if you don't get in step and stay in step, I'm going to kick you so hard in the behind that they're going to have to take both of us to sick bay. It'll take a major operation to get my foot out of your ass. With those inspiring words ringing in my ears, I picked up the cadence and never lost it again. The weather became quite chilly, particularly at night. I had to cover up with blankets and overcoat. Many of us slept in dungaree trousers and sweatshirts in addition to our skivvies. When Reveille sounded well before daylight, we only had to pull on our boondockers, field shoes, before falling in for roll call. Each morning after roll call, we ran in the foggy darkness to a large asphalt parade ground for rifle calisthenics. Atop a wooden platform, a muscular physical training instructor led several platoons in a long series of tiring exercises. A public address system played a scratchy recording of three o'clock in the morning. We were supposed to keep time with the music. The monotony was broken only by frequent whispered curses and insults directed at our enthusiastic instructor and by the too frequent appearance of various D.I.s who stalked the extended ranks, making sure all hands exercised vigorously. Not only did the exercises harden our bodies, but our hearing became super keen from listening for the D.I.s as we skipped a beat or two for a moment of rest in the inky darkness. At the time, we didn't realize or appreciate the fact that the discipline we were learning in responding to orders under stress often would mean the difference later in combat between success or failure, even living or dying. The ear training also proved to be an unscheduled dividend when Japanese infiltrators slipped around at night. Shortly, we received word that we were going to move out to the rifle range. We greeted the announcement enthusiastically. Rumor had it that we would receive the traditional broad-brimmed campaign hats. But the supply ran out when our turn came. We felt envious and cheated every time we saw those salty-looking, smoky bear hats on the range. Early on the first morning at the rifle range, we began what was probably the most thorough and the most effective rifle marksmanship training given to any troops of any nation during World War II. We were divided into two-man teams the first week for dry firing or snapping in. We concentrated on proper sight setting, trigger squeeze, calling of shots, use of the leather sling as a shooting aid, and other fundamentals. 
It soon became obvious why we all received thick pads to be sewn into the elbows and right shoulders of our dungaree jackets. During the snapping in, each man and his buddy practiced together, one in the proper position, standing, kneeling, sitting or prone, and squeezing the trigger, and the other pushing back the rifle bolt lever with the heel of his hand, padded by an empty cloth bandolier wrapped around the palm. This procedure cocked the rifle and simulated recoil. The DIs and rifle coaches checked every man continuously. Everything had to be just so. Our arms became sore from being contorted into various positions and having the leather sling straining our joints and biting into our muscles. Most of us had problems perfecting the sitting position, which I never saw used in combat. But the coach helped everyone the way he did me, simply by plopping his weight on my shoulders until I was able to assume the correct position. Those familiar with firearms quickly forgot what they knew and learned the Marine Corps way. Second only to accuracy was safety. Its principles were pounded into us mercilessly. Keep the piece pointed toward the target. Never point a rifle at anything you don't intend to shoot. Check your rifle each time you pick it up to be sure it isn't loaded. Many accidents have occurred with unloaded rifles. We went on to the firing line and received live ammunition the next week. At first, the sound of rifles firing was disconcerting, but not for long. Our snapping in had been so thorough, we went through our paces automatically. We fired at round, black, bullseye targets from 100, 300, and 500 yards. Other platoons worked the butts. When the range officer ordered, ready on the right, ready on the left, all ready on the firing line, commence firing, I felt as though the rifle was a part of me and vice versa. My concentration was complete. Discipline was ever-present, but the harassment that had been our daily diet gave way to deadly serious, business-like instruction in marksmanship. Punishment for infractions of the rules came swiftly and severely, however. One man next to me turned around slightly to speak to a buddy after ceasefiring was given. The action caused his rifle muzzle to angle away from the targets. The sharp-eyed captain in charge of the range rushed up from behind and booted the man in the rear so hard that he fell flat on his face. The captain then jerked him up off the deck and bawled him out loudly and thoroughly. We got his message. Platoon 984 took its turn in the butts. As we sat safely in the dugouts and waited for each series of firing to be completed, I had somber thoughts about the crack and snap of bullets passing overhead. Qualification day dawned clearly and brightly. We were apprehensive, having been told that anyone who didn't shoot high enough to qualify as marksmen wouldn't go overseas. When the final scores were totaled, I was disappointed. I fell short of expert riflemen by only two points. However, I proudly wore the Maltese cross-shaped sharpshooter's badge. And I didn't neglect to point out to my Yankee buddies that most of the high shooters in our platoon were southern boys. Feeling like old salts, we returned to the recruit depot for the final phases of recruit training. The DIs didn't treat us as veterans, though.
harassment picked up quickly to its previous intensity. By the end of eight grueling weeks, it had become apparent that Corporal Doherty and the other D.I.s had done their jobs well. We were hard physically, had developed endurance, and had learned our lessons. Perhaps more importantly, we were tough mentally. One of our assistant drill instructors even allowed himself to mumble that we might become Marines after all. Finally, late in the afternoon of 24 December 1943, we fell in without rifles and cartridge belts. Dressed in service greens, each man received three bronze Marine Corps globe and anchor emblems, which we put into our pockets. We marched to an amphitheater where we sat with several other platoons. This was our graduation from boot camp. A short, affable-looking major, standing on the stage, said, Men, you have successfully completed your recruit training and are now United States Marines. Put on your Marine Corps emblems and wear them with pride. You have a great and proud tradition to uphold. You are members of the world's finest fighting outfit. So be worthy of it. We took out our emblems and put one on each lapel of our green wool coats and one on the left side of the overseas caps. The major told several dirty jokes. Everyone laughed and whistled. Then he said, good luck, men. That was the first time we had been addressed as men during our entire time in boot camp. Before dawn the next day, Platoon 984 assembled in front of the huts for the last time. We shouldered our sea bags, slung our rifles, and struggled down to a warehouse where a line of trucks was parked. Corporal Doherty told us that each man was to report to the designated truck as his name and destination was called out. The few men selected to train as specialists, radar technicians, aircraft mechanics, etc., were to turn in their rifles, bayonets, and cartridge belts. As the men moved out of ranks, there were quiet remarks of, So long. See you. Take it easy. We knew that many friendships were ending right there. Doherty called out, Eugene B. Sledge, 534559. Full individual equipment and M1 rifle, infantry, Camp Elliott. Most of us were designated for infantry, and we went to Camp Elliott or to Camp Pendleton. As we helped each other aboard the trucks, it never occurred to us why so many were being assigned to infantry. We were destined to take the places of the ever-mounting numbers of casualties in the rifle or line companies in the Pacific. We were fated to fight the war firsthand. We were cannon fodder. After all assignments had been made, the trucks rolled out, and I looked at Doherty watching us leave. I disliked him, but I respected him. He had made us Marines, and I wondered what he thought as we rolled by. Chapter 2. Preparation for Combat Infantry Training Most of the buildings at Camp Elliott 
were neat wooden barracks, painted cream with dark roofs. The typical two-story barracks was shaped like an H, with the squad bays in the upper right parts of the letter. The many windowed squad bays held about 25 double-decker metal bunks. The room was big, roomy, and well-lighted. The ensuing two months were the only period during my entire service in World War II that I lived in a barracks. The remaining time I slept under canvas or the open sky. No one yelled at us or screamed orders to hurry up. The NCO seemed relaxed to the point of being lethargic. We had the free run of the camp, except for certain restricted areas. Taps and lights out were at 2200. We were like birds out of a cage after the confinement and harassment of boot camp. With several boys who bunked near me, I sampled the draft beer at the slop chute, enlisted men's club, bought candy and ice cream at the PX, post-exchange, and explored the area. Our newly found freedom was heady stuff. We spent the first few days at Camp Elliott at lectures and demonstrations, dealing with the various weapons in a Marine infantry regiment. We received an introduction to the 37mm anti-tank gun, 81mm mortar, 60mm mortar, 50 caliber machine gun, 30 caliber heavy and light machine guns, and the Browning Automatic Rifle, BAR. We also ran through combat tactics for the rifle squad. Most of our conversation around the barracks concerned the various weapons and whether or not it would be good duty to be on a 37mm gun crew, light machine gun, or 81mm mortar. There was always one man frequently, in fact usually a New Englander, who knew it all and claimed to have the latest hot dope on everything. I talked to a guy over at the PX who had been through 81mm mortar school and he said them damn mortars are so heavy he wished to hell he had gotten into 37mm guns so he could ride in a jeep while it pulled the gun. I talked to a guy over at Camp Pendleton, and he said a mortar shell blew up over there just as it was fired and killed the instructor and all the crew. I'm getting into light machine guns. They say that's a good deal. Like hell, my uncle was in France in World War I and he said the average life of a machine gunner was about two minutes. I'm going to be a rifleman, so I won't have to tote all that weight around. So it went. None of us had the slightest idea what he was talking about. One day, we fell in and were told to separate into groups according to which weapon we wanted to train with. If our first choice was filled, we made a second selection. The mere fact that we had a choice amazed me. Apparently, the idea was that a man would be more effective on a weapon he had picked, rather than one to which he had been assigned. I chose 60mm mortars. The first morning, those in 60mm mortars marched behind a warehouse where several light tanks were parked. Our mortar instructor, a sergeant, told us to sit down and listen to what he had to say. He was a clean-cut, handsome blonde man, wearing neat khakis faded to just that right shade that indicated a salty uniform. His bearing oozed calm self-confidence. There was no arrogance or bluster about him, yet he was obviously a man who knew himself 
and his job and would put up with no nonsense from anybody. He had an intangible air of subdued, quiet detachment, a quality possessed by so many of the combat veterans of the Pacific campaigns whom I met at that time. Sometimes his mind seemed a million miles away, as though lost in some sort of melancholy reverie. It was a genuine attribute, unrehearsed and spontaneous. In short, it couldn't be imitated consciously. I noted this carefully in my early days in the Marine Corps, but never understood it, until I observed the same thing in my buddies after Peleliu. One man raised his hand, and the sergeant said, Okay, what's your question? The man began with, Sir. The sergeant laughed and said, Address me as sergeant, not sir. Yes, sir. Look, you guys are U.S. Marines now. You are not in boot camp anymore. Just relax, work hard, and do your job right, and you won't have any trouble. You'll have a better chance of getting through the war. He won our respect and admiration instantly. My job is to train you people to be 60mm mortarmen. The 60mm mortar is an effective and important infantry weapon. You can break up enemy attacks on your company's front with this weapon and you can soften enemy defenses with it. You will be firing over the heads of your own buddies at the enemy a short distance away. So you've got to know exactly what you're doing. Otherwise, there'll be short rounds, and you'll kill and wound your own men. I was a 60mm mortarman on Guadalcanal, and saw how effective this weapon was against the Japs there. Any questions? On the chilly January morning, of our first lesson in mortars, we sat on the deck under a bright sky and listened attentively to our instructor. The 60mm mortar is a smoothbore, muzzle-loaded, high-angle fire weapon. The assembled gun weighed approximately 45 pounds and consisted of the tube or barrel, bipod, and base plate. Two or sometimes three 60mm mortars are in each rifle company. Mortars have a high angle of fire and are particularly effective against enemy troops taking cover in defilades or behind ridges where they are protected from our artillery. The Japs have mortars and know how to use them too. They will be particularly anxious to knock out our mortars and machine guns because of the damage these weapons can inflict on their troops. The sergeant then went over the nomenclature of the gun. He demonstrated the movements of gun drill during which the bipod was unstrapped and unfolded from carrying position. The base plate set firmly on the deck, the bipod leg spikes pressed into the deck, and the sight snapped into place on the gun. We were divided into five-man squads and practiced these evolutions until each man could perform them smoothly. During subsequent lessons, he instructed us in the intricacies of the sight with its cross-level and longitudinal-level bubbles, and on how to lay the gun and sight it on an aiming stake lined up with a target. We spent hours learning how to take a compass reading on a target area, then place a stake in front of the gun to correspond to that reading. Each squad competed fiercely to be the fastest and most precise in gun drill. When my turn came to act as number one gunner, 
I would race to the position, unsling the mortar from my right shoulder, set it up, sight in on the base stake, remove my hands from it and yell, Ready! The sergeant would check his stopwatch and give the time. Many shouts of encouragement came from a gunner's squad, urging each man on. Each of us rotated as number one gunner, as number two gunner, who dropped the shells into the tube at number one's command, and as ammo carriers. We were drilled thoroughly, but were quite nervous about handling live ammunition for the first time. We fired at empty oil drums set on a dry hillside. There were no mishaps. When I saw the first shell burst with a dull bang about 200 yards out on the range, I suddenly realized what a deadly weapon we were dealing with. A cloud of black smoke appeared at the point of impact. Flying steel fragments kicked up little puffs of dust all around an area about 9 by 18 yards. When three shells were fired from one weapon, the bursts covered an area about 35 by 35 yards with flying fragments. Boy, I'd pity any chap that had all that shrapnel flying around him, murmured one of my more thoughtful buddies. Yeah, it'll tear their asses up all right, but don't forget, they're going to be throwing stuff at you just as fast as they can, said the mortar sergeant. This, I realized, was the difference between war and hunting. When I survived the former, I gave up the latter. We also received training in hand-to-hand combat. This consisted mostly of judo and knife fighting. To impress us with the effectiveness of his subject, the judo instructor methodically slammed each of us to the ground as we tried to rush him. What good is this kind of fighting going to do us if the Japs can pick us off with machine guns and artillery at 500 yards, someone asked. When dark comes in the Pacific, the instructor replied, the Japs always send men into our positions to try to infiltrate the lines or just to see how many American throats they can slit. They are tough, and they like close in fighting. You can handle them, but you've got to know how. Needless to say, we paid close attention from then on. Don't hesitate to fight the Japs dirty. Most Americans, from the time they are kids, are taught not to hit below the belt. It's not sportsmanlike. Well, nobody has taught the Japs that. And war ain't sport. Kick him in the balls before he kicks you in yours, growled our instructor. We were introduced to the Marine's foxhole companion, the K-Bar knife. This deadly piece of cutlery was manufactured by the company bearing its name. The knife was a foot long, with a seven-inch long by one-and-a-half-inch wide blade. The five-inch handle was made of leather washers, packed together, and had USMC stamped on the blade side of the upper hand guard. Light for its size, the knife was beautifully balanced. Everybody has heard a lot about all those kinds of fancy fighting knives that are, or should be, carried by infantry troops. Throwing knives, stilettos, daggers, and all that stuff. Most of it is nothing but bull. Sure, you'll probably open up more cans of sea rations than Japs with this knife. But if a Jap ever jumps in your hole, you're better off with a K-bar than any other knife. It's the very best, and it's rugged too. If you guys were going to fight Germans, I guess you'd never need a fighting knife. 
But with the Japs, it's different. I guarantee that you or the man in the next foxhole will use a K-bar on a Jap infiltrator before the war is over. He was right. All of our instructors at Camp Elliot did a professional job. They presented us with the material and made it clear that our chances of surviving the war depended to a great extent on how well we learned. As teachers, they had no problem with student motivation. But I don't recall that anyone really comprehended what was happening outside our own training routine. Maybe it was the naive optimism of youth, but the awesome reality that we were training to be cannon fodder in a global war that had already snuffed out millions of lives never seemed to occur to us. The fact that our lives might end violently, or that we might be crippled while we were still boys, didn't seem to register. The only thing that we seemed to be truly concerned about was that we might be too afraid to do our jobs under fire. An apprehension nagged at each of us that he might appear to be yellow if he were afraid. One afternoon, two veterans of the Bougainville campaign dropped into my barracks to chat with some of us. They had been members of the Marine Raider Battalion that had fought so well along with the 3rd Marine Division on Bougainville. They were the first veterans we had met other than our instructors. We swamped them with questions. Were you scared? Asked one of my buddies. Scared? Are you kidding? I was so goddamn scared the first time I heard slugs coming at me I could hardly hold on to my rifle, came the reply. The other veteran said, Listen, mate, everybody gets scared. And anybody says he don't is a damn liar. We felt better. The mortar school continued during my entire stay at Camp Elliot. Swimming tests were the last phase of special training we received before embarking for the Pacific. Mercifully, in January 1944, we couldn't foresee the events of autumn. We trained with enthusiasm and the faith that the battles we were destined to fight would be necessary to win the war. Earlier, on the 20th to the 23rd of November, 1943, the 2nd Marine Division carried out its memorable assault on the Coral Atoll of Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands. Many military historians and others consider the battle for Tarawa as the first modern, head-on, amphibious assault. A coral reef extended about 500 yards and surrounded the atoll. Tarawa was subject to unpredictable dodging tides that sometimes lowered water levels and caused Higgins boats, LCVP, landing craft, vehicle, and personnel, to strand on the reef. Plans called for the use of amphibian tractors, LVTs, landing vehicles, tracked, now called assault amphibians, to carry the troops across the reef. But only enough Amtraks existed to take in the first three waves— after the first three assault waves got ashore in Amtraks, the supporting waves had to wade across the reef through murderous Japanese fire because their Higgins boats hung up at the reef's edge. The second division suffered terrible losses, 3,381 dead and wounded. Its marines killed all but 17 of the 4,836 Japanese defenders of the tiny atoll. There was loud and severe criticism of the Marine Corps by the American public and some military leaders because of the number of casualties. 
Tarawa became a household word in the United States. It took its rightful place with Valley Forge, the Alamo, Bellow Wood, and Guadalcanal as a symbol of American courage and sacrifice. The young Marines at Camp Elliott didn't have the remotest idea that in about nine months they would participate as part of the 1st Marine Division in the assault on Peleliu. That battle would prove to be so vicious and costly that the division's losses would just about double those of the 2nd Marine Division at Tarawa. To add tragedy to its horror, hindsight would show that the seizure of Peleliu was of questionable necessity. As more than one Marine historian has said, it's unfortunate to the memory of the men who fought and died on Peleliu that it remains one of the lesser-known and poorly understood battles of World War II. Overseas at last. Early on the morning of 28 February 1944, the men of the 46th Replacement Battalion got off trucks at Dockside in San Diego Harbor and lined up to board a troop ship that would take us to the Pacific. The President Polk had been a luxury liner of the President Line during peacetime. Painted battleship gray, the ship now looked gloomy and ominous with its anti-aircraft guns and life rafts. I had the uneasy feeling that this was going to be a one-way trip for some of us. Loaded down with full transport pack, bedroll, mattress with canvas cover, M1 carbine, and helmet, I struggled up a steep gangplank. Once on deck, we went into our troop compartment one deck below. A blast of hot, foul air hit me as I entered the hatch and started down the ladder. About halfway down, the man in front of me slipped and clattered to the bottom. We were all concerned about his fall and helped him up and into his gear again. Later, such an incident would elicit almost nothing but a casual glance and a quick helping hand. We stood crowded in the compartment and waited for what seemed like hours for an officer to check the muster roll and assign each of us to a sack or rack, bunk. Each sack consisted of canvas laced onto a pipe frame, hinged to metal uprights. Head and foot extended from deck to the overhead. Chains hailed each rack onto the ones above and below. When I crawled into mine, I realized the rack above was only about two feet away. With mattress unrolled and gear laid out, a man barely had room to stretch out. I had to climb up about four racks to get to mine which was almost at the highest level. Dim electric bulbs overhead gave us barely enough light to see. As soon as I could, I went topside, searching for relief from the foul, crowded compartment. The deck was jammed too, but the air was fresh. Many of us were too excited to sleep, so we explored the ship for hours, talked to the crewmen, or watched the completion of loading. Finally, around midnight... I went below and climbed into my rack. Several hours later, I awoke to the vibration of the ship's engine. I pulled on my boondockers, dungaree pants, and jacket, and raced topside, filled with apprehension and excitement. It was about 0500. The deck was crowded with other marines subdued by the realization that each turn of the ship's screws would take us farther from home and closer to the unknown. Harsh questions raced through my mind. Would I ever see my family again? Would I do my duty? Or be a coward? Could I kill?
fantasy captivated me in the brief period. Maybe I'd be put into a rear echelon outfit and never see a Japanese. Maybe I'd be an infantryman and disgrace my outfit by running away from the enemy. Or maybe I'd kill dozens of Japanese and win a Navy Cross or Silver Star and be a national hero. The tension finally broke as we watched the sailors rushing about, casting off hawsers and lines, preparing the ship for the open sea. The President Polk moved on a zigzag course toward a destination unknown to those of us sweltering in her bowels. Our daily routine was dull, even for those like myself who rather enjoyed being aboard a ship. We rolled out of our racks each morning about sunrise, brushing my teeth and shaving with non-lathering shaving cream was my morning toilet. Each day, an officer, or NCO, led us through an exercise period of calisthenics. And we could always count on a rifle inspection. Other than that, we had practically no duties. Every few days, we had abandoned ship drills, which helped offset the boredom. And the ship's crew conducted gun drills frequently. The first time they held target practice with live ammunition was exciting to watch. Yellow balloons were released from the bridge. As they were caught by the wind, the gunners opened fire upon order from the fire control officer. The rapid-fire 20mm and 40mm anti-aircraft guns seemed to do an effective job. But to some of us Marines, the 3-inch and 5-inch cannons didn't accomplish much other than hurt our ears. Considering the number of balloons that escaped, we felt the gun crew should have practiced more. This was probably because none of us had ever had any experience with anti-aircraft guns and didn't realize what a difficult type of gunnery was involved. Beyond some letter writing and a lot of conversation, so-called bull sessions, we spent much of our time waiting in chow lines, strung along gangways and passages, leading to the ship's galley. Chow was an unforgettable experience. After the inevitable wait in line, I entered the hatch leading to the galley and was met with a blast of hot air, laden with a new set of odors, differing only slightly from the typical troop compartment aroma. To the same basic ingredients, paint, grease, tobacco, and sweat, were added the smells of rancid cooking and something of a bakery. It was enough to turn a civilian stomach inside out but we rapidly and necessarily adjusted. We moved along the cafeteria-style line and indicated to sweaty Navy messmen what foods we wanted served onto shining, compartmentalized steel trays. The messmen wore skivvy shirts and were tattooed profusely on their arms. They all mopped the sweat from their faces constantly. Amid the roar of ventilators we ate standing at long folding tables. Everything was hot to the touch, but quite clean. A sailor told me that the tables had been used as operating tables for marine casualties that the ship took on during one of the earlier Pacific campaigns. That gave me a strange feeling in the pit of my stomach every time I went to chow on the President Polk. The heat was intense, at least a 100 degrees, but I gulped down a cup of hot joe, black coffee, the stuff that replaced bread as the staff of life for marines and sailors. I grimaced as the dehydrated potatoes battered my taste buds 
with an unsavory aftertaste, characteristic of all World War II, vintage, dehydrated foods. The bread was a shock, heavy, and with a flavor that was a combination of bitterness, sweetness, and uncooked flour. No wonder Hot Joe had replaced it as the staff of life. After chow in the steaming galley, we went topside to cool off. Everyone was soaked with sweat. It would have been a relief to eat on deck, but we were forbidden to take chow out of the galley. One day, as we moved along some nameless companionway in a chow line, I passed a porthole that gave me a view into the officer's mess. There, I saw Navy and Marine officers, clad neatly in starched khakis, sitting at tables in a well-ventilated room. White-coated waiters served them pie and ice cream. As we inched along the hot companionway to our steaming joe and dehydrated fare, I wondered if my haste to leave the V-12 college life hadn't been a mistake. After all, it would have been nice to have been declared a gentleman by Congress and to have lived like a human being aboard ship. To my immense satisfaction, however, I discovered later that such niceties and privileges of rank were few on the front lines. During the morning of 17 March, we looked out across the bow and saw a line of white breakers on the horizon. The Great Barrier Reef extends for thousands of miles, and we were to pass through it to New Caledonia. As we neared the reef, we saw several hunks of wooden ships stranded high and dry, apparently blown there years ago by some storm. As we closed on the harbor of Noumea, we saw a small motor launch head our way. The Polk signaled with flags and blinker lights to this pilot boat, which soon pulled alongside. The pilot climbed a ladder and boarded the ship. All sorts of nautical protocol and mutual greetings between him and the ship's officers ensued as he went to the bridge to guide us in. This was a middle-aged, pleasant-looking civilian, dressed in a neat white Panama suit, straw hat, and black tie, surrounded by sailors in blue denim and ship's officers in khaki. He looked like a fictional character out of some long-forgotten era. The blue water of the Pacific turned to green as we passed into the channel, leading into the harbor of Noumea. There was a pretty, white lighthouse near the harbor. White houses with tile roofs nestled around it and up the base of the slopes of high mountains. The scene reminded me of a photo of some picturesque little Mediterranean seaport. The President Polk moved slowly through the harbor as the speaker system ordered a special sea detail to stand by. We tied up to a dock with long warehouses where United States military personnel were moving crates and equipment. Most of the shipping I saw was U.S. Navy, but there also were some American and foreign merchant freighters, along with a few quaint-looking civilian fishing boats. The first Pacific native I saw wasn't dressed in a hula skirt or waving a spear, but nonchalantly driving a freight-moving tractor on the dock. He was a short, muscular man, black as ink, clad only in a loincloth with a bone in his nose and a bushy head of kinky hair like a fuzzy-wuzzy out of a Kipling story. The incredible thing about this hair was its color, beautiful amber. A sailor explained that the natives were fond of bleaching their hair with bluing they got from the Americans in exchange for seashells. 
Bone in the nose notwithstanding, the man was an admirable tractor driver. New Caledonia. After weeks at sea, cramped into a troop ship, we were relieved to move onto land again. We piled into Marine Corps trucks and drove through the main section of Noumea. I was delighted to see the old French architecture, which reminded me of the older sections of Mobile and New Orleans. The trucks sped along a winding road with mountains on each side. We saw small farms and a large nickel mine in the valley. Some of the land was cleared, but thick jungle covered much of the low areas. Although the weather was pleasant and cool, the palms and other growth attested to the tropical climate. After several miles, we turned into Camp St. Louis, where we would undergo further training before being sent up north to the combat zone as replacements. Camp St. Louis was a tent camp, comprised of rows of tents and dirt streets. We were assigned to tents, stowed our gear, and fell in for chow. The galley rested on a hill just past the camp's brig. In full view were two wire cages about the size of phone booths. We were told that those who caused trouble were locked in there, and a high-pressure fire hose was turned on them periodically. The strictness of discipline at Camp St. Louis caused me to assume the explanation of the cages was true. In any event, I resolved to stay out of trouble. Our training consisted of lectures and field exercises. Combat veteran officers and NCOs lectured on Japanese weapons, tactics, and combat methods. Most of the training was thorough and emphasized individual attention. We worked in groups of 10 or 12. I usually was placed in a squad instructed by a big red-headed corporal who had been in a Marine Raider battalion during the fighting in the Solomon Islands. Big Red was good-natured, but tough as nails. He worked us hard. One day he took us to a small rifle range and taught us how to fire a Japanese pistol, rifle, and heavy and light machine guns. After firing a few rounds from each, Red put about five of us into a pit about five feet deep with a one-foot embankment in front and the steep slope of a ridge behind as a backstop. One important thing you must learn fast to survive is exactly what enemy fire sounds like coming at you and what kind of weapon it is. Now, when I blow this whistle, get down and stay down until you hear the whistle again. If you get up before the signal, you'll get your head blowed off, and the folks back home will get your insurance. Red blew the whistle and we got down. He announced each type of Japanese weapon and fired several rounds from it over our hole, into the bank. Then he and his assistants fired them all together for about 15 seconds. It seemed a lot longer. The bullets popped and snapped as they went over. Several machine gun tracers didn't embed in the bank, but bounced off and rolled, white hot, sizzling and sputtering, into the hole. We cringed and shifted about but no one got burned. This was one of the most valuable training exercises we underwent. There were instances later on Peleliu and Okinawa, which it prepared me to come through unscathed. A salty sergeant conducted bayonet training. He had been written about in a national magazine because he was so outstanding. On the cinder-covered street of an old raider camp, I witnessed some amazing feats by him. He instructed us and had to defend ourselves barehanded against an opponent's bayonet thrust. Here's how it's done, he said. He picked me out of the squad 
and told me to charge him and thrust the point of my bayonet at his chest when I thought I could stick him. I got a mental image of myself behind bars at Mare Island Naval Prison for bayonetting an instructor, so I veered off just before making my thrust. What the hell's the matter with you? Don't you know how to use a bayonet? But Sarge, if I stick you, they'll put me in Mare Island. There's less chance of you bayonetting me than of me whipping your ass for not following my orders. Okay, I thought to myself. If that's the way you feel about it, we have witnesses. So I headed for him, on the double, and thrust at his chest. He sidestepped neatly, grabbed my rifle behind the front sight, and jerked it in the direction I was running. I held on to the rifle and tumbled onto the cinders. The squad roared with laughter. Someone yelled, Did you bayonet him, Sledgehammer? I got up looking sheepish. Knock it off, wise guy, said the instructor. You step up here, and let's see what you can do, big mouth. My buddy lifted his rifle confidently, charged, and ended up on the cinders too. The instructor made each man charge him in turn. He threw them all. He then took up a Japanese Arasaka rifle with fixed bayonet and showed us how the Japanese soldiers used the hook hand guard to lock onto the U.S. blade. Then, with a slight twist of his wrist, he could wrench the M1 rifle out of his opponent's hands and disarm him. He coached us carefully to hold the M1 on its side with the left side of the blade toward the deck instead of the cutting edge, as we had been taught in the States. This way, as we parried a Japanese blade, he couldn't lock ours. We went on long hikes and forced marches through the jungles, swamps, and over endless steep hills. We made countless practice landings from Higgins' boats on small islets off the coast. Each morning after chow, we marched out of camp, equipped with rifles, cartridge belts, two canteens of water, combat pack, helmet, and K-rations. Our usual pace was a rapid route step for 50 minutes with a 10-minute rest but the officers and NCOs always hurried us and frequently deleted the 10-minute rest. When trucks drove along the road, we moved on to the sides, as columns of infantry have done since early times. The trucks frequently carried army troops, and we barked and yapped like dogs and kidded them about being dog faces. During one of these encounters, a soldier hanging out of a truck just ahead of me shouted, Hey, soldier! You look tired and hot, soldier! Why don't you make the army issue you a truck like me? I grinned and yelled, Go to hell. His buddy grabbed him by the shoulder and yelled, Stop calling that guy soldier. He's a marine. Can't you see his emblem? He's not in the army. Don't insult him. Thanks, I yelled. That was my first encounter with men who had no esprit. We might grumble to each other about our officers or the chow or the Marine Corps in general but it was rather like grumbling about one's own family. Always with another member. If an outsider tried to get into the discussion, a fight resulted. One night, during exercises in defense against enemy infiltration, some of the boys located the bivouac of Big Red and the other instructors who were supposed to be the infiltrators and stole their boondockers. When the time came for their offense to commence, they threw a few concussion grenades around and yelled like Japanese, but didn't slip out and capture any of us. When the officers realized what had happened, they reamed out the instructors for being too sure of themselves. The instructors had a big fire built in a ravine. We sat around it, drank coffee, ate K-rations, and sang some songs. 
It didn't seem like such a bad war so far. All of our training was in rifle tactics. We spent no time on heavy weapons, mortars and machine guns, because when we went up north, our unit commander would assign us where needed. That might not be in our specialties. As a result of the field exercises and obstacle course work, we reached a high level of physical fitness and endurance. During the last week of May, we learned that the 46th Replacement Battalion would go north in a few days. We packed our gear and boarded the USS General House on 28 May, 1944. This ship was quite different from the President Polk. It was much newer and apparently had been constructed as a troop ship. It was freshly painted throughout and spick and span. With only about a dozen other men, I was assigned to a small, well-ventilated compartment on the main deck, a far cry from the cavernous, stinking hole I bunked in on the Polk. The General House had a library from which troop passengers could get books and magazines. We also received our first Atterbrine tablets. These small, bitter, bright yellow pills prevented malaria. We took one a day. On 2 June, the General House approached the Russell Islands and moved into an inlet bordered by large groves of coconut palms. The symmetrical groves and clear water were beautiful. From the ship, we could see coral-covered roadways and groups of pyramidal tents among the coconut palms. This was Pavuvu, home of the 1st Marine Division. We learned we would debark the next morning, so we spent our time hanging over the rail, talking to a few Marines on the pier. Their friendliness and unassuming manner struck me. Although clad neatly in khakis or dungarees, they appeared hollow-eyed and tired. They made no attempt to impress us green replacements. Yet, they were members of an elite division known to nearly everybody back home because of its conquest of Guadalcanal and more recent campaign at Cape Gloucester on New Britain. They had left Gloucester about 1 May. Thus, they had been on Pavuvu about a month. Many of us slept little during the night. We checked and rechecked our gear, making sure everything was squared away. The weather was hot much more so than at New Caledonia. I went out on deck and slept in the open air. With a mandolin and an old violin, two of our marines struck up some of the finest mountain music I'd ever heard. They played and sang folk songs and ballads most of the night. We thought it was mighty wonderful music. With the Old Breed About 0900, the morning of 3 June 1944, carrying the usual mountain of gear, I trudged down the gangplank of the General House. As we moved to waiting trucks, we passed a line of veterans waiting to go aboard for the voyage home. They carried only packs and personal gear, no weapons. Some said they were glad to see us, because we were their replacements. They looked tanned and tired, but relieved to be headed home. For them, the war was over. For us, it was just beginning. In a large parking area paved with crushed coral, a lieutenant called out our names and counted us off into groups. To my group of a hundred or more, he said, Third Battalion, Fifth Marines. If I had had an option, and there was none, of course, as to which of the five Marine divisions I served with, it would have been the First Marine Division. 
Ultimately, the Marine Corps had six divisions that fought with distinction in the Pacific. But the 1st Marine Division was in many ways unique. It had participated in the opening American offensive against the Japanese at Guadalcanal and already had fought a second major battle at Cape Gloucester, north of the Solomon Islands. Now its troops were resting, preparing for a third campaign in the Palau Islands. Of regiments, I would have chosen the 5th Marines. I knew about its impressive history as a part of the 1st Marine Division, but I also knew that its record went back to France in World War I. Other Marines I knew in other divisions were proud of their units and of being Marines, as well they should have been. But the 5th Marines and the 1st Marine Division carried not only the traditions of the Corps, but had traditions and a heritage of their own, a link through time with the Old Corps. The fact that I was assigned to the very regiment and division I would have chosen was a matter of pure chance. I felt as though I had rolled the dice and won. The trucks drove along winding coral roads by the bay and through coconut groves. We stopped and unloaded our gear near a sign that said, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. An NCO assigned me to Company K. Soon a lieutenant came along and took aside the 15 or so men who had received crew-served weapons training mortars and machine guns, in the States. He asked each of us which weapon he wanted to be assigned to in the company. I asked for 60mm mortars and tried to look too small to carry a 70-pound flamethrower. He assigned me to mortars, and I moved my gear into a tent that housed the second squad of the 60mm mortar section. For the next several weeks, I spent most of my time during the day on work parties, building up the camp. The top sergeant of Company K... First Sergeant Malone would come down the company street shouting, All new men outside for a work party on the double. Most of the time, the company's veterans weren't included. Pavuvu was supposed to be a rest camp for them after the long, wet, debilitating jungle campaign on Cape Gloucester. When Malone needed a large work party, he would call out, I need every available man. So we referred to him as Available Malone. None of us old hands or replacements, could fathom why the division command chose Pavuvu. Only after the war did I find out that the leaders were trying to avoid the kind of situation the 3rd Marine Division endured when it went into camp on Guadalcanal after its campaign on Bougainville. Facilities on Guadalcanal, by then a large rear area base, were reasonably good, but the high command ordered the 3rd Division to furnish about a thousand men each day for working parties all over the island. Not only did the Bougainville veterans get little or no rest, but when replacements came, the division had difficulty carrying out its training schedule in preparation for the next campaign, Guam. If Pavuvu seemed something less than a tropical paradise to us replacements fresh from the States and New Caledonia, it was a bitter shock to the Gloucester veterans. When ships entered McQuitty Bay, as the General Howe had, Pavuvu looked picturesque. But once ashore, one found the extensive coconut groves choked with rotting coconuts. The apparently solid ground was soft and turned quickly to mud when subjected to foot or vehicular traffic. Pavuvu was the classical embodiment of the marine term boondocks. It was impossible to explain after the war what life on Pavuvu was like. Most of the griping about being rock-happy and bored in the Pacific came from the men stationed at the big rear echelon bases like Hawaii or New Caledonia. Among their main complaints were that the ice cream wasn't good, 
the beer not cold enough. Or the USO shows too infrequent. But on Pavuvu, simply living was difficult. For example, most of the work parties I went on in June and July were pick and shovel details to improve drainage or pave walkways with crushed coral, just to get us out of the water. Regulations called for wooden decks in all tents, but I never saw one on Pavuvu. Of all the work parties, the one we hated most was collecting rotten coconuts. We loaded them onto trucks to be dumped into a swamp. If we were lucky, the coconut sprout served as a handle, but more often, the thing fell apart, spilling stinking coconut milk over us. We made sardonic, absurd jokes about the vital, essential, classified work we were doing for the war effort, and about the profundity and wisdom of the orders we received. In short, we were becoming Asiatic, a Marine Corps term denoting a singular type of eccentric behavior, characteristic of men who had served too long in the Far East. I had done a good deal of complaining about Pavuvu's chow and general conditions during my first week there. One of the veterans in our company, who later became a close friend, told me in a restrained but matter-of-fact way that, until I had been in combat, there was really nothing to complain about. Things could be a good deal worse, he said, and advised me to shut up and quit whining. He shamed me thoroughly. But for the first weeks on Pavuvu, the stench of rotting coconuts permeated the air. We could even taste it in the drinking water. I'm still repulsed, even today, by the smell of fresh coconut. The most loathsome vermin on Pavuvu were the land crabs. Their blue-black bodies were about the size of the palm of a man's hand, and bristles and spines covered their legs. These ugly creatures hid by day and roamed at night. Before putting on his boondockers each morning, Every man in the 1st Marine Division shook his shoes to rouse the land crabs. Many mornings, I had one in each shoe, and sometimes two. Periodically, we reached the point of rage over these filthy things and chased them out from under boxes, sea bags, and cots. We killed them with sticks, bayonets, and entrenching tools. After the action was over, we had to shovel them up and bury them. Or a nauseating stench developed rapidly in the hot, humid air. Each battalion had its own galley, but Chow on Pavuvu consisted mainly of heated sea rations, dehydrated eggs, dehydrated potatoes, and that detestable canned meat called Spam. The synthetic lemonade, so-called battery acid, that remained after Chow was poured on the concrete slab deck of the galley to clean and bleach it. It did a nice job. As if hot sea rations didn't get tedious week in and week out, we experienced a period of about four days when we were served oatmeal morning, noon, and night. Scuttlebutt was that the ship carrying our supplies had been sunk. Whatever the cause, our only relief from monotonous chow was tidbits in packages from home. The bread made by our bakers was so heavy that when you held a slice by one side, the rest of the slice broke away of its own weight. The flour was so massively infested with weevils that each slice of bread had more of the little beetles than there are seeds in a slice of rye bread. We became so inured to this sort of thing, however, that we ate the bread anyway. The wit said, It's a good deal. Then beetles give you more meat in your diet. 
We had no bathing facilities at first. Shaving each morning with a helmet full of water was simple enough, but a bath was another matter. Each afternoon, when the inevitable tropical downpour commenced, we stripped and dashed into the company street, soap in hand. The trick was to lather, scrub, and rinse before the rain stopped. The weather was so capricious that the duration of the shower was impossible to estimate. Each downpour ended as abruptly as it began and never failed to leave at least one or more fully lathered, cursing Marines with no rinse water. Morning sick call was another bizarre sight during the early days on Pavuvu. The Gloucester veterans were in poor physical condition after the wettest campaign in World War II, during which men endured soaking for weeks on end. When I first joined the company, I was appalled at their condition. Most were thin, some emaciated, with jungle rot in their armpits and on their ankles and wrists. At sick call, they paired off with a bottle of gentian violet and cotton swabs, stood naked in the grove, and painted each other's sores. So many of them needed attention that they had to treat each other under a doctor's supervision. Some had to cut their boondockers into sandals because their feet were so infected with rot they could hardly walk. Needless to say, Pavuvu's hot, humid climate prolonged the healing process. I think the Marine Corps has forgotten where Pavuvu is, one man said. I think God has forgotten where Pavuvu is, came a reply. God couldn't forget because he made everything. Then I bet he wishes he could forget he made Pavuvu. This exchange indicates the feeling of remoteness and desolation we felt on Pavuvu. On the Big Island bases, men had the feeling of activity around their units and contact through air and sea traffic with other bases and with the states. On Pavuvu, we felt as though we were a million miles from not only home, but from anything else that bespoke of civilization. I believe we took in stride all of Pavuvu's discomforts and frustrations for two reasons. First, the division was an elite combat unit. Discipline was stern. Our esprit de corps ran high. Each man knew what to do and what was expected of him. All did their duty well, even while grumbling. NCOs answered our complaining with, Beat your gums, it's healthy. Or, What are you griping for? You volunteered for the Marine Corps, didn't you? You're just getting what you asked for. No matter how irritating or uncomfortable things were at Pavuvu, things could always be worse. After all, there were no Japanese, no bursting shells, no snapping and whining bullets, and we slept on cots. Second, makeup of the division was young. About 80% were between the ages of 18 and 25. About half were under 21 when they came overseas. Well-disciplined young men can put up with a lot, even though they don't like it. And we were a bunch of high-spirited boys, proud of our unit. But we had another motivating factor as well. A passionate hatred for the Japanese burned through all Marines I knew. The fate of the Getki Patrol was the sort of thing that spawned such hatred. One day, as we piled stinking coconuts, a veteran Marine walked past and exchanged greetings with a couple of our old men. One of our group asked us if we knew who he was. No, I never saw him, someone said. He's one of the three guys who escaped when the Getki Patrol got wiped out on Guadalcanal. He was lucky as hell.
Why did the Japs ambush that patrol? I asked naively. A veteran looked at me with unbelief and said slowly and empathetically, because they're the meanest sons of bitches that ever lived. The Getki patrol incident, plus such Japanese tactics as playing dead and then throwing a grenade, or playing wounded, calling for a corpsman, and then knifing the medic when he came, plus the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, caused Marines to hate the Japanese intensely and to be reluctant to take prisoners. The attitudes held toward the Japanese by non-combatants, or even sailors or airmen, often did not reflect the deep personal resentment felt by Marine infantrymen. Official histories and memoirs of Marine infantrymen written after the war rarely reflect that hatred. But at the time of battle, Marines felt it deeply, bitterly, and as certainly as danger itself. To deny this hatred or make light of it would be as much a lie as to deny or make light of the esprit de corps or the intense patriotism felt by the Marines with whom I served in the Pacific. My experiences on Peleliu and Okinawa made me believe that the Japanese held mutual feelings for us. They were a fanatical enemy, that is to say, they believed in their cause with an intensity little understood by many post-war Americans, and possibly many Japanese as well. This collective attitude, Marine and Japanese, resulted in savage, ferocious fighting with no holds barred. This was not the dispassionate killing seen on other fronts or in other wars. This was a brutish, primitive hatred, as characteristic of the horror of war in the Pacific as the palm trees and the islands. To comprehend what the troops endured then and there, one must take into full account this aspect of the nature of the Marines' war. Probably the biggest boost to our morale about this time on Pavuvu was the announcement that Bob Hope would come over from Banica and put on a show for us. Most of the men in the division crowded a big open area and sheared as a piper cub circled over us. The pilot switched off the engine briefly, while Jerry Colonna poked his head out of the plane and gave us his famous yell. Yee, ow, 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 ow. We went wild with applause. Bob Hope, Colonna, Francis Langford, and Patty Thomas put on a show on a little stage by the pier. Bob asked Jerry how he liked the trip over from Banica, and Jerry answered that it was tough sledding. When asked why, he replied, No snow. We thought it was the funniest thing we had ever heard. Patty gave several boys from the audience dancing lessons, amid much grinning, cheering, and applause. Bob told many jokes and really boosted our spirits. It was the finest entertainment I ever saw overseas. Bob Hope's show remained the main topic of conversation as we got down to training in earnest for the coming campaign. Pavuvu was so small that most of our field exercises were of a company size rather than battalion or regimental. Even so, we frequently got in the way of other units involved in their training exercises. It was funny to see a company move forward in combat formation through the groves and become intermingled with the rigid ranks of another company's standing weapons inspection. The officer shouted orders to straighten things out. We held numerous landing exercises, several times a week, it seemed, on the beaches and inlets around the island, away from camp. We usually practiced from Amtrak's. The newest model had a tailgate that dropped as soon as the tractor was on the beach, allowing us to run out and deploy. Get off the beach fast. Get off the damn beach as fast as you can and move inland. The nips are going to plaster it with everything they've got 
so your chances are better the sooner you move inland, shouted our officers and NCOs. We heard this over and over, day after day. During each landing exercise, we would scramble out of our tractors, move inland about 25 yards, and then await orders to deploy and push forward. The first wave of tractors landed rifle squads. The second wave landed more riflemen, machine gunners, bazooka gunners, flamethrowers, and 60mm mortar squads. Our second wave typically trailed about 25 yards behind the first as the machines churned through the water toward the beach. As soon as the first wave unloaded, its Amtraks backed off, turned around, and headed past us out to sea to pick up supporting waves of infantry from Higgins' boats circling offshore. It all worked nicely on Pavuvu. But there were no Japanese there. In addition to landing exercises and field problems before Peleliu, we received refresher instructions and practice, firing all small arms assigned to the company. M1 rifle, BAR, carbine, 45 caliber pistol, and Thompson's submachine gun. We also learned how to operate a flamethrower. During instruction with the flamethrower, we used a palm stump for a target. When my turn came, I shouldered the heavy tanks, held the nozzle in both hands, pointed at the stump about 25 yards away, and pressed the trigger. With a whoosh, a stream of red flame squirted out, and the nozzle bucked. The napalm hit the stump with a loud splattering noise. I felt the heat on my face. A cloud of black smoke rushed upward. The thought of turning loose hellfire from a hose nozzle as easily as I'd water a lawn back home sobered me. To shoot the enemy with bullets or kill him with shrapnel was one of the grim necessities of war. But to fry him to death was too gruesome to contemplate. I was to learn soon, however, that the Japanese couldn't be routed from their island defenses without it. About this time, I began to feel a deeper appreciation for the influence of the old breed on us newer Marines. Gunnery Sergeant Haney provided a vivid example of their impact. I had seen Haney around the company area, but first noticed him in the shower one day because of the way he bathed. About a dozen naked, soapy replacements, including myself, stared in wide-eyed amazement and shuddered as Haney held his genitals in his left hand while scrubbing them with a G.I. brush the way one buffs a shoe. When you consider that the G.I. brush had stiff, tough, split-fiber bristles embedded into a stout wooden handle and was designed to scrub heavy canvas 782 web gear, dungarees, and even floors, Haney's method of bathing becomes truly impressive. I first saw him exert his authority one day on a pistol range where he was in charge of safety. A new second lieutenant, a replacement like myself, was firing from the position I was to assume. As he fired his last round, another new officer behind me called to him. The lieutenant turned to answer with his pistol in his hand. Haney was sitting next to me on a coconut log bench and hadn't uttered a word except for the usual firing range commands. When the lieutenant turned the pistol's muzzle away from the target, Haney reacted like a cat leaping on its prey. He scooped up a large handful of coral gravel and flung it squarely into the lieutenant's face. 
He shook his fist at the bewildered officer and gave him the worst bawling out I ever heard. Everyone along the firing line froze, officers as well as enlisted men. The offending officer, with his gold bar shining brightly on his collar, cleared his weapon, holstered it, and took off rubbing his eyes and blushing visibly. Haney returned to his seat as though nothing had happened. Along the firing line, we thawed. Thereafter, we were much more conscious of safety regulations. Haney was about my size, 135 pounds, with sandy crew-cut hair and a deep tan. He was lean, hard, and muscular. Although not broad-shouldered or well-proportioned, his torso reminded me of some anatomy sketch by Michelangelo. Every muscle stood out in stark definition. He was slightly barrel-chested, with muscles heaped up on the back of his shoulders, so that he almost had a hump. Neither of his arms nor his legs were large, but the muscles in them reminded me of steel bands. His face was small-featured, with squinting eyes, and looked as though it was covered with deeply tanned, wrinkled leather. Haney was the only man I ever knew in the outfit who didn't seem to have a buddy. He wasn't a loner in the sense that he was sullen or unfriendly. He simply lived in a world all his own. I often felt that he didn't even see his surroundings. All he seemed to be aware of was his rifle, his bayonet, and his leggings. He was absolutely obsessed with wanting to bayonet the enemy. We all cleaned our weapons daily, but Haney cleaned his M1 before muster, at noon chow, and after dismissal in the afternoon. It was a ritual. He would sit by himself, light a cigarette, field strip his rifle, and meticulously clean every inch of it. Then he cleaned his bayonet. All the while he talked to himself quietly, grinned frequently, and puffed his cigarette down to a stump. When his rifle was cleaned, he reassembled it, fixed his bayonet, and went through a few minutes of thrust, parry, and butt-stroke movements at thin air. Then, Haney would light up another cigarette and sit quietly, talking to himself and grinning while awaiting orders. He carried out these proceedings as though totally unaware of the presence of the other 235 men of the company. He was like Robinson Crusoe on an island by himself. To say that he was Asiatic would be to miss the point entirely. Haney transcended that condition. The company had many rugged individualists, characters, old salts, and men who were Asiatic. But Haney was in a category by himself. I felt that he was not a man born of woman, but that God had issued him to the Marine Corps. Despite his personal idiosyncrasies, Haney inspired us youngsters in Company K. He provided us with a direct link to the old corps. To us, he was the old breed. We admired him, and we loved him. Then there was Company K's commanding officer, Captain Akak Haldane. Late one afternoon, as we left the rifle range, a heavy rain set in. As we plodded along Pavuvu's muddy roads, slipping and sliding under the downpour, we began to feel that whoever was leading the column had taken a wrong turn, and that we were lost. At dusk in the heavy rain, every road looked alike. A flooded trail cut deeply with ruts, 
bordered by towering palms, winding aimlessly through the gloom. As I struggled along feeling chilled and forlorn and trying to keep my balance in the mud, a big man came striding from the rear of the column. He walked with the ease of a pedestrian on a city sidewalk. As he pulled abreast of me, the man looked at me and said, Lovely weather, isn't it, son? I grinned at Haldane and said, Not exactly, sir. He recognized me as a replacement and asked how I liked the company. I told him I thought it was a fine outfit. You're a southerner, aren't you? He asked. I told him I was from Alabama. He wanted to know all about my family, home, and education. As we talked, the gloom seemed to disappear, and I felt warm inside. Finally, he told me it wouldn't rain forever, and we could get dry soon. He moved along the column, talking to other men as he had to me. His sincere interest in each of us as a human being helped to dispel the feeling that we were just animals training to fight. Acclaimed by superiors and subordinates alike for his leadership abilities, Captain Haldane was the finest and most popular officer I ever knew. All of the Marines in Company K shared my feelings. Called the Skipper, he had a strong face full of character, a large prominent jaw, and the kindest eyes I ever saw. No matter how often he shaved or how hard he tried, he always had a five o'clock shadow. He was so large that the combat pack on his back reminded me of the bulge of his wallet, while mine covered me from neck to waist. Although he insisted on strict discipline, the captain was a quiet man who gave orders without shouting. He had a rare combination of intelligence, courage, self-confidence, and compassion that commanded our respect and admiration. We were thankful that Akak was our skipper felt more secure in it, and felt sorry for other companies not so fortunate. While some officers on Pavuvu thought it necessary to strut or order us around to impress us with their status, Haldane quietly told us what to do. We loved him for it, and did the best job we knew how. Our level of training rose in August, and so did the intensity of chicken discipline. We suffered through an increasing number of weapons and equipment inspections, work parties, and petty cleanup details around the camp. The step-up in harassment, coupled with the constant discomforts and harsh living conditions of Pavuvu, drove us all into a state of intense exasperation and disgust with our existence before we embarked for Peleliu. I used to think the lieutenant was a pretty good Joe, but damned if I ain't about deciding he ain't nothing but a hoss's ass grumbled one marine. You said that right, old buddy, came back another. Hell, he ain't the only one that's gone crazy over insisting that everything be just so, and then bawling us out if it ain't. The gunny's mean as hell, and nothing suits him anymore, responded yet another man. Don't let it get you down, boys. It's just part of the USMC plan for keeping the troops in fighting shape, calmly remarked a philosophical old salt of pre-war service. What the hell are you talking about? snapped an irritated listener. Well, it's this way, answered the philosopher. If they get us mad enough, they figure we'll take it out on the nips when we hit this beach coming up. I saw it happen before Guadalcanal and Gloucester. They don't pull this kind of stuff on rear echelon boys. They want us to be mean, mad, and malicious. That's straight dope, I'm telling you. 
I've seen it happen every time before we go on a campaign. Sounds logical. You may be right. But what's malicious? Someone said. Forget it, you nitwit, the philosopher growled. Right or not, I'm sure tired of Pavuvu, I said. That's the plan, Sledgehammer. Get you fed up with Pavuvu, or wherever the hell you happen to be, and you'll be hot to go anywhere else, even if the nips are there waiting for you, the philosopher said. We fell silent, thinking about that, and finally concluded he was right. Many of the more thoughtful men I knew shared his view. I griped as loudly as anyone about our living conditions and discipline. In retrospect, however, I doubt seriously whether I could have coped with the psychological and physical shock and stress encountered on Peleliu and Okinawa had it been otherwise. The Japanese fought to win. It was a savage, brutal, inhumane, exhausting, and dirty business. Our commanders knew that if we were to win and survive, we must be trained realistically for it, whether we liked it or not. Chapter 3. On to Peleliu. In late August, we completed our training. About the 26th Company K boarded LST, landing ship, tank, 661, for a voyage that would end three weeks later on the beach at Peleliu. Each rifle company assigned to the assault waves against Peleliu made the trip in an LST carrying the Amtraks that would take the men ashore. Our LST lacked sufficient troop compartment space to accommodate all of the men of the company. So the platoon leaders drew straws for the available space. The mortar section got lucky. We were assigned to a troop compartment in the forecastle with an entrance on the main deck. Some of the other platoons had to make themselves as comfortable as possible on the main deck, under and around landing boats, and gear secured there. Once loaded, we weighed anchor and headed straight for Guadalcanal, where the division held maneuvers in the Tassafaranga area. This area bore little resemblance to the beaches we would have to hit on Peleliu. But we spent several days in large and small unit amphibious landing exercises. Some of our Guadalcanal veterans wanted to visit the island cemetery to pay their respects to buddies killed during the division's first campaign. The veterans I knew were not allowed to make the trip to the cemetery. And there was a great deal of understandable bitterness and resentment on their part because of this. Between training exercises, some of us explored the beach area and looked over the stranded wrecks of Japanese landing barges. The troop ship, Yamazuki Maru, and a two-man submarine. One of the Guadalcanal veterans told us what a helpless feeling it had been to sit back in the hills and watch Japanese reinforcements come ashore, unopposed, during the dark days of the campaign, when the Japanese Navy was so powerful in the Solomon Islands. Evidence of earlier fighting remained in the goodly number of shattered trees and several human skeletons we found in the jungle growth. We also had our lighter moments. When the Amtraks returned us to the LST each afternoon, we hurried to our quarters, stowed our gear, stripped, and went below to the tank deck. After all the Amtraks were aboard, the ship's CO, commanding officer, obligingly left the bow doors open and the ramp down so we could swim in the blue waters of Sealark Channel, called more appropriately Iron Bottom Bay because of all the ships that had been sunk there during the Guadalcanal campaign. 
We dove, swam, and splashed in the beautiful water, like a bunch of little boys. And for a few fleeting hours, forgot while we were there. The 30 LSTs carrying the 1st Marine Division's assault companies finally weighed anchor early on the morning of 4 September to make the approximately 2,100-mile voyage to Peleliu. The trip proved to be uneventful. The sea was smooth, and we ran into rain squalls only once or twice. After chow each morning, several of us went aft to the ship's fantail to watch Gunnery Sergeant Haney's show. Dressed in khaki shorts, boondockers, and leggings, Haney went through his ritual of bayonet drill and rifle cleaning. He kept the scabbard on his bayonet and used a canvas-covered stanchion running down from the ship's superstructure as his target. It was a poor substitute for a moving parry stick, but Haney didn't let that stop him. For about an hour, he went through his routine, complete with monologue, while dozens of company K men lounged around on coils of rope and other gear, smoking and talking. Sometimes a spirited game of pinochle went on almost under his feet. He was as oblivious of the players as they were of him. Occasionally a sailor would come by and stare in disbelief at Haney. Several asked me if he were Asiatic. Not being able to overcome the temptation to kid them a bit, I told them no. He was just typical of our outfit. Then they would stare at me as they had at Haney. I always had the feeling that sailors looked at marine infantry as though they were a bit crazy, wild, or reckless. Maybe we were. But maybe we had to develop a don't-give-a-damn attitude to keep our sanity in the face of what we were about to endure. In the ranks, we knew little about the nature of the island that was our objective. During a training lecture on Pavuvu, we learned that Peleliu must be taken to secure General Douglas MacArthur's right flank for his invasion of the Philippines and then it had a good airfield that could support MacArthur. I don't recall when we heard the name of the island, although we viewed relief maps and models during lectures. It had a nice-sounding name, Peleliu. Although our letters from Pavuvu were carefully censored, our officers apparently feared taking a chance on some character writing in code to someone back home that we were to hit an island named Peleliu. As a buddy said to me later, however, no one back home would have known where to look for it on a map anyway. The Palau's, the westernmost part of the Caroline Islands chain, consist of several large islands and more than a hundred smaller ones. Except for Anguar in the south and a couple of small atolls in the north, the whole group lies within an encircling coral reef. About 500 miles to the west lie the southern Philippines. To the south, at about the same distance, is New Guinea. Peleliu, just inside the Palau Reef, is shaped like a lobster's claw, extending two arms of land. The southern arm reaches northeastward from flat ground to form a jumble of coral islets and tidal flats, overgrown thickly with mangroves. The longer northern arm is dominated by the parallel coral ridges of Umerbrogol Mountain. North to south, the island is about six miles long, with a width of approximately two miles. On the wide, largely flat southern section, the Japanese had constructed an airfield shaped roughly like the numeral four. The ridges and most of the island outside the airfield were thickly wooded. There were only occasional patches of wild palms and open grass areas. 
The thick scrub so completely masked the true nature of the terrain that aerial photographs and pre-D-Day photos taken by United States submarines gave intelligence officers no hint of its ruggedness. The treacherous reef along the landing beaches and the heavily defended coral ridges inland made the invasion of Peleliu a combination of the problems of Tarawa and of Saipan. The reef, over 600 yards long, was the most formidable natural obstacle. Because of it, troops and equipment making the assault had to be transported in Amtraks. Higgins' boats could not negotiate across the rough coral and the varying depths of water. Before leaving Pavuvu, we had been told that the 1st Marine Division would be reinforced to about 28,000 men for the assault on Peleliu. As every man in the ranks knew, however... A lot of those people included in the term reinforced were neither trained nor equipped as combat troops. They were specialists attached to the division to implement the landing and supply by working on ships and later on the beaches. They would not be doing the fighting. Upon sailing to Peleliu, the 1st Marine Division numbered 16,459 officers and men. A rear echelon of 1,771 remained on Pavuvu. Of these, only about 9,000 were infantrymen in the three infantry regiments. Intelligence sources estimated that we would face more than 10,000 Japanese defenders on Peleliu. The big topic of conversation among us troops had to do with those comparative strengths. Hey, you guys. The lieutenant just told me that the 1st Division is going to be the biggest Marine division to ever make a landing. He says we got reinforcements we never had before. A veteran looked up from cleaning his forty-five automatic and said, Boy, has that shaved tail lieutenant been smokestacking you. Why? Use your head, buddy. Sure, we got the 1st Marines, the 5th Marines, and the 7th Marines. Them's infantry. The 11th Marines is our division artillery. Where the hell's all them people who's supposed to reinforce the division? Have you seen them? Who the hell are they? And where the hell are they? I don't know. I'm just telling you what the lieutenant said. Well, I'll tell you who them reinforcements is. They's all what they call specialists, and they ain't line company marines. Remember this, Buster. When the stuff hits the fan, and you and me are trying to live through the shooting and the shelling, them damn specialists will be setting on they cans back at Division CP, command post on the beach, writing home about how war is hell. And who's going to have all the casualties and lose all the men fighting the nips? The 1st Marines, the 5th Marines, and the 7th Marines will all catch hell. And the 11th Marines will lose some men too. Wake up, boy. Them shavetail lieutenants is as useless as tits on a boar hog. The NCOs run things when the shooting starts. D-1 After evening chow on 14 September 1944, a buddy and I leaned against the rail of LST-661 and talked about what we would do after the war. I tried to appear unconcerned about the next day, and he did too. We may have fooled each other and ourselves a little, but not much. As the sun disappeared below the horizon, and its glare no longer reflected off a glassy sea, I thought of how beautiful the sunsets always were in the Pacific. They were even more beautiful than over Mobile Bay. Suddenly a thought hit me like a thunderbolt. Would I live to see the sunset tomorrow? My knees nearly buckled as panic swept over me.
I squeezed the railing and tried to appear interested in our conversation. The ships in the convoy turned into dark hulks, gliding along as the squawk box interrupted our conversation. Now hear this, now hear this. Talking quietly in pairs and small groups, the men around us seemed to pay more than the usual attention to the command. All troops, lay below to quarters. All troops, lay below to quarters. My buddy and I went to our forecastle compartment. One of our NCOs sent a work party to another compartment to draw rations and ammunition. After it returned, our lieutenant came in, gave us at ease, and said he had some things to say. His brow was knit, his face drawn, and he looked worried. Men, as you probably know, tomorrow is D-Day. General Rupertus says the fighting will be extremely tough but short. It will be over in four days, maybe three. A fight like Tarawa. It's going to be rough but fast. Then we can return to a rest area. Remember what you've been taught. Keep your heads down going in on the Amtrak. A lot of unnecessary casualties at Saipan were the result of men looking over the side to see what was happening. As soon as the Amtrak stops on the beach, get out on the double and get off the beach fast. Keep out of the way of Amtraks on their way back out to pick up more troops from the supporting waves. Our tanks will be coming in behind us too. The drivers have their hands full and can't dodge around the infantry. So you keep out of their way. Get off the beach fast. The Japs will plaster it with everything they've got. And if we get pinned down on the beach, artillery and mortars will ruin us. Have your weapons ready because the Japs always try to stop us at the beach line. They may meet us at the beach with bayonets as soon as our naval gunfire barrage lifts and moves inland. So come out of the Amtraks ready for anything. Have a round in the chamber of your small arms and lock your pieces. Snap on the safety. Have the canister containers of your high-explosive mortar rounds untapped and stowed in your ammo bags ready for immediate use as soon as we are called on to deliver fire on the company front. Fill your canteens. Draw rations and salt tablets, and clean your weapons. Reveille will be before daylight, and H-hour will be at 0830. Hit the sack early. You will need the rest. Good luck, and carry on. He left the compartment, and the NCOs issued us ammo, K-rations, and salt tablets. Well, said one man, the scuttlebutt we heard during maneuvers on Guadalcanal about this blitz going to be rough but fast must be true if the Division CG says so. San Antone, muttered a Texan. Imagine, only four, maybe three days for a battle star. Hell, I can put up with anything for no longer than that. He reflected the feelings of most of us, and we were encouraged by the commanding general's announcement confirming the oft-repeated rough but fast rumor we had been hearing. We kept trying to convince ourselves that the CG knew what he was talking about. We all dreaded a long, protracted campaign that would drag on beyond endurance like Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester. Our morale was excellent, and we were trained for anything, no matter how rough. But we prayed that we could get it over with in a hurry. We sat on our sacks, cleaned our weapons, 
packed our combat packs, and squared away our gear. Throughout history, combat troops of various armies have carried packs weighing many pounds into action. But we traveled light, carrying only absolute necessities, the way fast-moving Confederate infantry did during the Civil War. My combat pack contained a folded poncho, one pair of socks, a couple of boxes of K-rations, salt tablets, extra carbine ammo, 20 rounds, two hand grenades, a fountain pen, a small bottle of ink, writing paper in a waterproof wrapper, a toothbrush, a small tube of toothpaste, some photos of my folks along with some letters in a waterproof wrapper, and a dungaree cap. My other equipment and clothing were a steel helmet covered with camouflage cloth covering, heavy green dungaree jacket with a marine emblem and USMC dyed above it on the left breast pocket, trousers of the same material, an old toothbrush for cleaning my carbine, thin cotton socks, ankle-high boondockers, and light tan canvas leggings, into which I tucked my trouser legs. Because of the heat, I wore no skivvy drawers or shirt. Like many men, I fastened a bronze marine emblem to one collar for good luck. Attached to my web pistol belt, I carried a pouch containing a combat dressing, two canteens, a pouch with two 15-round carbine magazines, clips, we called them, and a fine brass compass in a waterproof case. My K-bar hung in its leather sheath on my right side. Hooked over the belt by its spoon, handle, I carried a grenade. I also had a heavy bladed knife, similar to a meat cleaver that my dad had sent me. I used this to chop through the wire braces, wrapped around the stout crates of 60mm mortar shells. On the stock of my carbine, I fastened an ammo pouch with two extra clips. I carried no bayonet, because the model carbine I had lacked a bayonet lug. Onto the outside of my pack, I hooked my entrenching tool in its canvas cover. The tool proved useless on Peleliu because of the hard coral. All officers and men dress much the same. The main differences among us were in the type of web belt worn and the individual weapon carried. We tried to appear unconcerned, and talked about anything but war. Some wrote last letters. What are you going to do after the war, Sledgehammer? Asked a buddy sitting across from me. He was an extremely intelligent and intellectually active young man. I don't know, Oswald. What are you planning to do? I want to be a brain surgeon. The human brain is an incredible thing. It fascinates me, he replied. But he didn't survive Peleliu to realize his ambition. Slowly the conversations trailed off, and the men hit the sack. It was hard to sleep that night. I thought of home, my parents, my friends, and whether I would do my duty, be wounded and disabled, or be killed. I concluded that it was impossible for me to be killed because God loved me. Then I told myself that God loved us all, and that many would die, or be ruined physically or mentally, or both, by the next morning, and in the days following. My heart pounded, and I broke out in a cold sweat. Finally, I called myself a damn coward, and eventually fell asleep saying the Lord's Prayer to myself. D-Day. 15 September, 1944.
I seemed to have slept only a short time when an NCO came into the compartment saying, Okay, you guys hit the deck. I felt the ship had slowed and almost stopped. If only I could hold back the hands of the clock, I thought. It was pitch dark, with no lights topside. We tumbled out, dressed and shaved, and got ready for chow. Steak and eggs, a 1st Marine Division tradition, honoring a culinary combination learned from the Australians. Neither the steak nor the eggs was very palatable, though. My stomach was tied in knots. Back in my compartment, a peculiar problem had developed. Haney, who had been one of the first to return from Chow about 45 minutes earlier, had ensconced himself on the seat of one of the two toilets in the small head on our side of the compartment. There he sat, dungaree trousers down to his knees, his beloved leggings laced neatly over his boondockers, grinning and talking calmly to himself while smoking a cigarette. Nervous marines lined up, using the other toilet one after another. Some men had been to the head on the other side of the compartment, while others, in desperation, dashed off to the heads in the other troop compartments. The facilities in our compartment normally were adequate, but D-Day morning found us all nervous, tense, and afraid. The veterans already knew what I was to find out. During periods of intense fighting, a man might not have the opportunity to eat or sleep, much less move his bowels. All the men grumbled and scowled at Haney, but because he was a gunnery sergeant, no one dared suggest he hurry. With his characteristic detachment, Haney ignored us, remained unhurried, and left when he pleased. The first light of dawn was just appearing as I left my gear in my bunk, all squared away and ready to put on, and went out onto the main deck. All the men were talking quietly, smoking, and looking toward the island. I found Snafu, and stayed close by him. He was the gunner on our mortar, so we stuck together. He was also a Gloucester veteran, and I felt more secure around veterans. They knew what to expect. He pulled out a pack of cigarettes and drawled, Have a smoke, sledgehammer? No thanks, Snafu. I told you a million times I don't smoke. I'll bet you two bits, Sledgehammer, that before this day is over, you'll be smoking the hell out of every cigarette you can get your hands on. I just gave him a sickly grin, and we looked toward the island. The sun was just coming up, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. The sea was calm. A gentle breeze blew. A ship's bell rang, and over the squawk box came... Get your gear and stand by. Snafu and I hurried to our bunks, nodding and speaking to other grim-faced buddies who were rushing to get their gear. In the crowded compartment, we helped each other with packs, straightened shoulder straps, and buckled on cartridge belts. Generals and admirals might worry about maps and tons of supplies, but my main concern at the moment was how my pack straps felt and whether my boondockers were comfortable. The next bell rang. Snafu picked up the 45 pounds of mortar and slung the carrying strap over his shoulder. I slung my carbine over one shoulder and the heavy ammo bag over the other. We filed down a ladder to the tank deck where an NCO directed us to climb aboard an Amtrak. 
My knees got weak when I saw it wasn't the newer model with the tailgate ramp for troop exit in which we had practiced. This meant that once the Amtrak was on the beach, we'd have to jump over the high sides, exposed much more to enemy fire. I was too scared and excited to say much, but some of the guys grumbled about it. The ship's bow doors opened and the ramp went down. All the tractor's engines roared and spewed out fumes. Exhaust fans whirred above us. Glaring daylight streamed into the tank deck through the open bow of the ship as the first Amtrak started out and clattered down the sloping ramp. Our machine started with a jerk, and we held onto the sides and to each other. The Amtrak's treads ground and scraped against the iron ridges on the ramp. Then it floated freely and settled onto the water like a big duck. Around us roared the voices of the ship's guns, engaged in the pre-assault bombardment of Peleliu's beaches and defensive positions. The Marine Corps had trained us new men until we were welded with the veterans into a thoroughly disciplined combat division. Now the force of events unleashed on that two-mile-by-six-mile piece of unfriendly coral rock would carry us forward unrelentingly, each to his individual fate. Everything my life had been before and has been after pales in the light of that awesome moment when my Antrac started in amid a thunderous bombardment toward the flaming, smoke-shrouded beach for the assault on Peleliu. Since the end of World War II, historians and military analysts have argued inconclusively about the necessity of the Palau Islands campaign. Many believed after the battle, and still believe today, that the United States didn't need to fight it as a prerequisite to General MacArthur's return to the Philippines. Admiral William F. Bull Halsey suggested calling off the Palau operation after high-level planners learned that Japanese air power in the Philippines wasn't as strong as intelligence originally had presumed it to be. But MacArthur believed the operation should proceed, and Admiral Chester W. Nimitz said it was too late to cancel the operation because the convoy was already underway. Because of important events in Europe at the time and the lack of immediate apparent benefits from the seizure of Peleliu, the battle remains one of the lesser known or understood of the Pacific War. Nonetheless, for many, it ranks as the roughest fight the Marines had in World War II. Major General, later Lieutenant General, Roy S. Geiger, the rugged commander of the 3rd Amphibious Corps, said repeatedly that Peleliu was the toughest battle of the entire Pacific War. A former commandant of the Marine Corps, General Clifton B. Cates, said Peleliu was one of the most vicious and stubbornly contested battles of the war, and that nowhere was the fighting efficiency of the U.S. Marine demonstrated more convincingly. Peleliu also was important to the remainder of the Marines' war in the Pacific because of the changes in Japanese tactics encountered there. The Japanese abandoned their conventional all-out effort at defending the beach in favor of a complex defense based upon mutually supporting fortified positions in caves and pillboxes, extending deeply into the interior of the island, particularly in the ridges of Umurbrogol Mountain. In earlier battles, the Japanese had exhausted their forces in Bansai charges against the Marines once the latter had firmly established a beachhead. The Marines slaughtered the wildly charging Japanese by the thousands, 
Not a single Bansai charge had been successful for the Japanese in previous campaigns. But on Peleliu, the Japanese commander, Colonel Kunio Nakagawa, let the Marines come to him and the approximately 10,000 troops of his proud 14th Infantry Division. From mutually supporting positions, the Japanese covered nearly every yard of Peleliu, from the beach inland to the center of Nakagawa's command post, deep beneath the coral rock in the center of the ridge system. Some positions were large enough to hold only one man. Some caves held hundreds. Thus the Marines encountered no one main defense line. The Japanese had constructed the perfect defense in depth with the whole island as a front line. They fought until the last position was knocked out. Aided by the incredibly rugged terrain, the new Japanese tactics proved so successful that the 1st Marine Division suffered more than twice as many casualties on Peleliu as the 2nd Marine Division had on Tarawa. Proportionately, United States casualties on Peleliu closely approximated those suffered later on Iwo Jima, where the Japanese again employed an intricate defense in depth, conserved forces, and fought a battle of attrition. On an even greater scale, the skillful, tenacious defense of the southern portion of Okinawa used the same sophisticated, in-depth defensive system first tested on Peleliu. Chapter 4 Assault into Hell H-Hour 0800 Long jets of red flame mixed with thick black smoke rushed out of the muzzles of the huge battleship's 16-inch guns with a noise like a thunderclap. The giant shells tore through the air toward the island, roaring like locomotives. Boy, it must cost a fortune to fire them 16-inch babies, said a buddy near me. Screw the expense, growled another. Only less impressive were the cruisers firing 8-inch salvos and the host of smaller ships firing rapid fire. The usually clean, salty air was strong with the odors of explosives and diesel fuel. While the assault waves formed up and my amphibious tractor lay still in the water with engines idling, the tempo of the bombardment increased to such an intensity that I couldn't distinguish the reports of the various types of weapons through the thunderous noise. We had to shout at each other to be heard. The big ships increased their fire and moved off to the flanks of the Amtrak formations when we started in, so as not to fire over us at the risk of short rounds. We waited a seeming eternity for the signal to start toward the beach. The suspense was almost more than I could bear. Waiting is a major part of war, but I never experienced any more supremely agonizing suspense than the excruciating torture of those moments before we received the signal to begin the assault on Peleliu. I broke out in a cold sweat as the tension mounted with the intensity of the bombardment. My stomach was tied in knots. I had a lump in my throat and swallowed only with great difficulty. My knees nearly buckled, so I clung weakly to the side of the tractor. I felt nauseated and feared that my bladder would surely empty itself and reveal me to be the coward I was. But the men around me looked just about the way I felt. Finally, with a sense of fatalistic relief mixed with a flash of anger at the Navy officer who was our wave commander, I saw him 
wave his flag toward the beach. Our driver revved the engine. The treads churned up the water, and we started in. The second wave ashore. We moved ahead, watching the frightful spectacle. Huge geysers of water rose around the Amtraks ahead of us as they approached the reef. The beach was now marked along its length by a continuous sheet of flame, backed by a thick wall of smoke. It seemed as though a huge volcano had erupted from the sea. And rather than heading for an island, we were being drawn into the vortex of a flaming abyss. For many, it was to be oblivion. The lieutenant braced himself and pulled out a half-pint whiskey bottle. This is it, boys, he yelled. Just like they do in movies, it seemed unreal. He held the bottle out to me, but I refused. Just sniffing the cork under those conditions might have made me pass out. He took a long pull on the bottle, and a couple of the men did the same. Suddenly a large shell exploded with a terrific concussion, and a huge geyser rose up, just to our right front. It barely missed us. The engine stalled. The front of the tractor lurched to the left, and bumped hard against the rear of another Amtrak that was either stalled or hit. I never knew which. We sat stalled, floating in the water for some terrifying moments. We were sitting ducks for the enemy gunners. I looked forward, through the hatch behind the driver. He was wrestling frantically with the control levers. Japanese shells were screaming into the area and exploding all around us. Sergeant Johnny Marmet leaned toward the driver and yelled something. Whatever it was, it seemed to calm the driver, because he got the engine started. We moved forward again amid the geysers of exploding shells. Our bombardment began to lift off the beach and move inland. Our dive bombers also moved inland with their strafing and bombing. The Japanese increased the volume of their fire against the waves of Amtrak's. Above the din, I could hear the ominous sound of shell fragments humming and growling through the air. Stand by, someone yelled. I picked up my mortar ammo bag and slung it over my left shoulder, buckled my helmet chin strap, adjusted my carbine sling over my right shoulder, and tried to keep my balance. My heart pounded. Our Amtrak came out of the water and moved a few yards up the gentle sloping sand. Hit the beach! yelled an NCO moments before the machine lurched to a stop. The men piled over the sides as fast as they could. I followed Snafu, climbed up, and planted both feet firmly on the left side so as to leap as far away from it as possible. At that instant, a burst of machine gun fire with white-hot tracers snapped through the air at eye level, almost grazing my face. I pulled my head back like a turtle, lost my balance, and fell awkwardly forward down onto the sand in a tangle of ammo bag, pack, helmet, carbine, gas mask, cartridge belt, and flopping canteens. Get off the beach! Get off the beach! Raced through my mind. Once I felt land under my feet, I wasn't as scared as I had been coming across the reef. My legs dug up the sand as I tried to rise. A firm hand gripped my shoulder. Oh God, I thought. It's a nip was coming out of his pillbox. I couldn't reach my K-bar. Fortunately, 
because as I got my face out of the sand and looked up, there was the worried face of a Marine bending over me. He thought the machine gun burst had hit me, and he had crawled over to help. When he saw I was unhurt, he spun around and started crawling rapidly off the beach. I scuttled after him. Shells crashed all around. Fragments tore and whirred, slapping on the sand and splashing into the water a few yards behind us. The Japanese were recovering from the shock of our pre-landing bombardment. Their machine gun and rifle fire got thicker, snapping viciously overhead in increasing volume. Our Amtrak spun around and headed back out as I reached the edge of the beach and flattened on the deck. The world was a nightmare of flashes, violent explosions, and snapping bullets. Most of what I saw blurred. My mind was benumbed by the shock of it. I glanced back across the beach and saw Duck W, rubber-tired amphibious truck, roll up on the sand at a point near where we had just landed. The instant the Duck W stopped, it was engulfed in thick, dirty black smoke as a shell scored a direct hit on it. Bits of debris flew into the air. I watched with that odd, detached fascination peculiar to men under fire. As a flat metal panel, about two feet square, spun high into the air, then splashed into shallow water like a big pancake. I didn't see any men get out of the Duck W. Up and down the beach and out on the reef, a number of Amtraks and Duck Ws were burning. Japanese machine gun bursts made long splashes on the water, as though flaying it with some giant whip. The geysers belched up relentlessly where the mortar and artillery shells hit. I caught a fleeting glimpse of a group of Marines leaving a smoking Amtrak on the reef. Some fell as bullets and fragments splashed among them. Their buddies tried to help them as they struggled in the knee-deep water. I shuddered and choked. A wild, desperate feeling of anger, frustration, and pity gripped me. It was an emotion that always would torture my mind when I saw men trapped and was unable to do anything but watch as they were hit. My own plight forgotten momentarily, I felt sickened to the depths of my soul. I asked God why, why, why? I turned my face away and wished that I were imagining it all. I had tasted the bitterest essence of war the sight of helpless comrades being slaughtered. And it filled me with disgust. I got up, crouching low. I raced up the sloping beach into a defilade. Reaching the inland edge of the sand just beyond the high water mark, I glanced down and saw the nose of a huge black and yellow bomb protruding from the sand. A metal plate attached to the top served as a pressure trigger. My foot had missed it by only inches. I hit the deck again just inside the defilade. On the sand, immediately in front of me, was a dead snake about 18 inches long. It was colorful, somewhat like American species I had kept as pets when a boy. It was the only snake I saw in Peleliu. Momentarily, I was out of the heavy fire hitting on the beach. A strong smell of chemicals and exploding shells filled the air. Patches of coral and sand around me were yellowed 
from the powder from shell blasts. A large white post, about four feet high, stood at the edge of the defilade. Japanese writing was painted on the side facing the beach. To me, it appeared as though a chicken with muddy feet had walked up and down the post. I felt a sense of pride that this was enemy territory and that we were capturing it for our country to help win the war. One of our NCOs signaled us to move to our right. Out of the shallow defilade, I was glad because the Japanese probably would pour mortar fire into it to prevent it from being used for shelter. At the moment, however, the gunners seemed to be concentrating on the beach and the incoming waves of marines. I ran over to where one of our veterans stood, looking to our front and flopped down at his feet. You better get down, I yelled, as the bullet snapped and cracked all around. Them slugs are high. They're hitting in the leaves, Sledgehammer, he said nonchalantly without looking at me. Leaves, hell! Where are the trees? I yelled back at him. Startled, he looked right and left. Down the beach, barely visible, was a shattered palm. Nothing near us stood over knee-high. He hit the deck. I must be cracking up, Sledgehammer. Them slugs sound just like they did in the jungle at Gloucester. And I figured they were hitting leaves, he said with chagrin. Somebody give me a cigarette. I yelled to my squad mates nearby. Snafu was jubilant. I told you you'd start smoking, didn't I, Sledgehammer? A buddy handed me a smoke. And with trembling hands, we got it lit. They really kidded me about going back on all my previous refusals to smoke. I kept looking to our right, expecting to see men from the 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, 3-7, which was supposed to be there but I saw only the familiar faces of Marines from my own company as we moved off the beach. Marines began to come in behind us in increasing numbers, but none were visible on our right flank. Unfamiliar officers and NCOs yelled and shouted orders. K Company, 1st Platoon, move over here! Or K Company, mortar section, over here! Considerable confusion prevailed for about 15 minutes, as our officers and the leaders of our namesake company in the 7th Marines straightened out the two units. From left to right along the 2200-yard beachfront, the 1st Marines, the 5th Marines, and the 7th Marines landed abreast. The 1st Marines landed one battalion on each of the two northern white beaches. In the division center, the 5th Marines landed its 1st Battalion, 1-5, over Orange Beach 1, and its 3rd Battalion, 3-5 over Orange Beach 2. Forming the right flank of the division, the 7th Marines was to land one battalion, 3-7, in the assault over Orange Beach 3, the southernmost of the five designated beaches. In the confusion of the landing's first few minutes, K-3-5 actually got in ahead of the assault companies of 3-7 and slightly farther to the right than intended. As luck would have it, the two companies got mixed together as the right flank of the division, for about fifteen minutes, we were the exposed right flank of the entire beachhead. We started to move inland. We had gone only a few yards when an enemy machine gun opened up from a scrub thicket to our right. Japanese 81mm and 90mm mortars then opened up on us. Everyone hit the deck. I dove into a shallow crater. 
the company was completely pinned down. All movement ceased. The shells fell faster, until I couldn't make out individual explosions, just continuous, crashing rumbles with an occasional ripping sound of shrapnel tearing low through the air overhead amid the roar. The air was murky with smoke and dust. Every muscle in my body was as tight as a piano wire. I shuddered and shook, as though I were having a mild convulsion. Sweat flowed profusely. I prayed, clenched my teeth, squeezed my carbine stock, and cursed the Japanese. Our lieutenant, a Cape Gloucester veteran, who was nearby, seemed to be in about the same shape. From the meager protection of my shallow crater, I pitied him, or anyone, out on that flat coral. The heavy mortar barrage went on without slackening. I thought it would never stop. I was terrified by the big shells arching down all around us. One was bound to fall directly into my hole, I thought. If any orders were passed along, or if anyone yelled for a corpsman, I never heard it in all the noise. It was as though I was out there on the battlefield all by myself, utterly forlorn and helpless in a tempest of violent explosions. All any man could do was sweat it out and pray for survival. It would have been sure suicide to stand up in that firestorm. Under my first barrage since the fast-moving events of hitting the beach, I learned a new sensation. Utter and absolute helplessness. The shelling lifted in about half an hour, although it seemed to me to have crashed on for hours. Time had no meaning to me. This was particularly true when under a heavy shelling. I never could judge how long it lasted. Orders then came to move out and I got up, covered by a layer of coral dust. I felt like jelly, and I couldn't believe any of us had survived that barrage. The walking wounded began coming past us on their way to the beach, where they would board Amtrak's to be taken out to one of the ships. An NCO, who was a particular friend of mine, hurried by, holding a bloody battle dressing over his upper left arm. Hit bad, I yelled. His face lit up in a broad grin, and he said jauntily, Don't feel sorry for me, Sledgehammer. I got the million-dollar wound. It's all over for me. We waved as he hurried on out of the war. We had to be alert constantly as we moved through the thick, sniper-infested scrub. We received orders to halt in an open area as I came upon the first enemy dead I had ever seen. A dead Japanese medical corpsman and two riflemen. The medic apparently had been trying to administer aid when he was killed by one of our shells. His medical chest lay open beside him, and the various bandages and medicines were arranged neatly in compartments. The corpsman was on his back, his abdominal cavity laid bare. I stared in horror, shocked at the glistening viscera bespecked with fine coral dust. This can't have been a human being. I agonized. It looked more like the guts of one of the many rabbits or squirrels I had cleaned on hunting trips as a boy. I felt sick as I stared at the corpses. A sweating, dusty Company K veteran came up, looked first at the dead, and then at me. He slung his M1 rifle over his shoulder and leaned over the bodies. 
With the thumb and forefinger of one hand, he deftly plucked a pair of horn-rimmed glasses from the face of the corpsman. This was done as casually as a guest, plucking an hors d'oeuvre from a tray at a cocktail party. Sledgehammer, he said reproachfully, don't stand there with your mouth open when there's all these good souvenirs laying around. He held the glasses for me to see and added, look how thick that glass is. These sons of bitches must be half blind, but it don't seem to mess up their marksmanship any. He then removed the Nambu pistol, slipped the belt off the corpse, and took the leather holster. He pulled off the steel helmet, reached inside, and took out a neatly folded Japanese flag, covered with writing. The veteran pitched the helmet on the coral, where it clanked and rattled, rolled the corpse over, and started pawing through the combat pack. The veteran's buddy came up and started stripping the other Japanese corpses. His take was a flag and other items. He then removed the bolts from the Japanese rifles and broke the stocks against the coral to render them useless to infiltrators. The first veteran said, See you, Sledgehammer. Don't take any wooden nickels. He and his buddy moved on. I hadn't budged an inch or said a word. Just stood, glued to the spot, almost in a trance. The corpses were sprawled where the veterans had dragged them around to get into their packs and pockets. Would I become this casual and calloused about enemy dead? I wondered. Would the war dehumanize me so that I too could field strip enemy dead with such nonchalance? The time soon came when it didn't bother me a bit. Within a few yards of the scene, one of our hospital corpsmen worked in a small, shallow defile treating Marine wounded. I went over and sat on the hot coral by him. The corpsman was on his knees, bending over a young Marine who had just died on a stretcher. A blood-soaked battle dressing was on the side of the dead man's neck. His fine, handsome, boyish face was ashen. What a pitiful waste, I thought. He can't be a day over 17 years old. I thanked God his mother couldn't see him. The corpsman held the dead Marine's chin tenderly between the thumb and fingers of his left hand and made the sign of the cross with his right hand. Tears streamed down his dusty, tanned, grief-contorted face while he sobbed quietly. The wounded, who had received morphine, sat or lay around like zombies and patiently awaited the doc's attention. Shells roared overhead in both directions, an occasional one falling nearby, and machine guns rattled incessantly like chattering demons. We moved inland. The scrub may have slowed the company, but it concealed us from the heavy enemy shelling that was holding up other companies facing the open airfield. I could hear the deep rumble of the shelling and dreaded that we might move into it. That our battalion executive officer had been killed a few moments after hitting the beach and that the Amtrak carrying most of our battalion's field telephone equipment and operators had been destroyed on the reef made control difficult. The companies of 3-5 lost contact with each other and with 3-7 on our right flank. 
as I passed the different units and exchanged greetings with friends, I was astonished at their faces. When I tried to smile at a comment a buddy made, my face felt as tight as a drumhead. My facial muscles were so tensed from the strain that I actually felt it was impossible to smile. With a shock, I realized that the faces of my squad mates and everyone around me looked mask-like and unfamiliar. As we pushed eastward, we halted briefly along a north-south trail. Word was passed that we had to move forward faster to a trail where we would come up abreast of 3-7. We continued through the thick scrub and heavy sniper fire until we came out into a clearing overlooking the ocean. Company K had reached the eastern shore. We had reached our objective. To our front was a shallow bay with barbed wire entanglements, iron tetrahedrons, and other obstacles against landing craft. I was glad we hadn't tried to invade this coast. About a dozen Company K riflemen commenced firing at Japanese soldiers wading along the reef several hundred yards away at the mouth of the bay. Other Marines joined us. The enemy were moving out from a narrow extension of the mangrove swamp on the left towards the southeastern promontory on our right. About a dozen enemy soldiers were alternately swimming and running along the reef. Some of the time, only their heads were above the water, as my buddies sent rifle fire into their midst. Most of the running enemy went down with a splash. We were elated over reaching the eastern shore, and at being able to fire on the enemy in the open. A few Japanese escaped and scrambled among the rocks on the promontory. Okay, you guys, line them up and squeeze them off, said a sergeant. You don't kill them with the noise. It's the slugs that do it. You guys couldn't hit a bull in the ass with a bass fiddle, he roared. Several more Japanese ran out from the cover of the mangroves. A burst of rifle fire sent every one of them splashing. That's better, growled the sergeant. The mortarmen put down our loads and stood by to set up the guns. We didn't fire at the enemy with our carbines. Rifles were more effective than carbines at that range. So we just watched. Firing increased from our rear. We had no contact with Marine units on our right or left, but the veterans weren't concerned with anything but the enemy on the reef. Stand by to move out, came the order. What the hell? grumbled a veteran as we headed back into the scrub. We fight like hell and reach our objective, and they order us to fall back? Others joined in the grumbling. Oh, knock it off. We gotta gain contact with the 7th Marines, an NCO said. We headed back into the thick scrub. For some time, I completely lost my bearings and had no idea where we were going. Unknown to the Marines, there were two parallel north-south trails about 200 yards apart, winding through the thick scrub. Poor maps, poor visibility, and numerous snipers made it difficult to distinguish the two trails. When 3-5, with Company K on its right flank, reached the first westernmost trail, it was then actually abreast of 3-7. However, due to poor visibility, contact couldn't be made between the two battalions. It was thought 3-5 was too far to the rear, 
so 3-5 was ordered to move forward to come abreast of 3-7. By the time this error was realized, 3-5 had pushed three to four hundred yards ahead of the 7th Marine's flank. For the second time on D-Day, K-3-5 was the forward-most exposed right-flank element of the division. The entire 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, formed a deep salient reaching into enemy territory to the east coast. To make matters worse, the battalion's three companies had lost contact with each other. These isolated units were in critical danger of being cut off and surrounded by the Japanese. The weather was getting increasingly hot, and I was soaked with sweat. I began eating salt tablets and taking frequent drinks of tepid water from my canteens. We were warned to save our water as long as possible, because no one knew when we would get any more. A sweating runner with a worried face came up from the rear. Hey, you guys, where's K Company CO? He asked. We told him where we thought Akak could be located. What's the hot dope? Someone asked, with the same anxious question always put to runners. Battalion CP says, we just got to establish contact with the 7th Marines, because if the Nips counterattack, they'll come right through the gap. He said as he hurried on. Jesus, said a man near me. We moved forward and came up with the rest of the company in a clearing. The platoons formed up and took casualty reports. Japanese mortar and artillery fire increased. The shelling became heavy, indicating the probability of a counterattack. Most of their fire whistled over us and fell to our rear. This seemed strange, although fortunate to me at the time. The order came for us to move out a short distance to the edge of the scrub. At approximately 1650, I looked out across the open airfield towards the southern extremities of the coral ridges, collectively called Bloody Nose Ridge, and saw vehicles of some sort moving amid swirling clouds of dust. Hey, I said to a veteran next to me, what are those Amtraks doing all the way across the airfield towards the Jap lines? Them ain't Amtraks. They're nip tanks, he said. Shell bursts appeared among the enemy tanks. Some of our Sherman tanks had arrived at the edge of the airfield on our left and opened fire. Because of the clouds of dust and the shell fire, I couldn't see much and didn't see any enemy infantry but the firing on our left was heavy. Word came for us to deploy on the double. The riflemen formed a line at the edge of the scrub along a trail and lay prone, trying to take what cover they could. From the beginning to the end on Peleliu, it was all but impossible to dig into the hard coral rock, so the men piled rocks around themselves or got behind logs and debris. Snafu and I set up our 60-millimeter mortar a few yards behind them, across the trail in a shallow crater. Everyone got edgy as the order came. Stand by to repel counterattack. Counterattack hitting I Company's front. I didn't know where Company I was, but I thought it was on our left, somewhere. Although I had great confidence in our officers and NCOs, it seemed to me that we were alone and confused in the middle of a rumbling chaos, with snipers everywhere, and with no contact with any other units. I thought all of us would be lost. 
They need to get some more damn troops up here, growled Snafu, his standard remark in a tight spot. Snafu set up the gun, and I removed an HE, high explosive, shell from a canister in my ammo bag. At last we could return fire. Snafu yelled, Fire! Just then a marine tank to our rear mistook us for enemy troops. As soon as my hand went up to drop the round down the tube, a machine gun cut loose. It sounded like one of ours, and from the rear of all places. As I peeped over the edge of the crater, through the dust and smoke, and saw a Sherman tank in a clearing behind us, the tank fired its 75mm gun off to our right rear. The shell exploded nearby, around a bend in the same trail we were on. I then heard the report of a Japanese field gun located there as it returned fire on the tank. Again I tried to fire, but the machine gun opened up as before. Sledgehammer, don't let him hit that shell. We'll all be blown to hell, said a worried ammo carrier, crouched in the crater near me. Don't worry, that's my handy just about hit, I snapped. Our tank and the Japanese field gun kept up their duel. By God, when that tank knocks out that nip gun, he'll swing his 75 over this way, and it'll be our ass. He thinks we're nips, said a veteran in the crater. Oh, Jesus, someone moaned. A surge of panic rose within me. In a brief moment, our tank had reduced me from a well-trained, determined assistant mortar gunner to a quivering mass of terror. It was not just that I was being fired at by a machine gun that unnerved me so terribly, but that it was one of ours. To be killed by the enemy was bad enough. That was a real possibility I had prepared myself for. But to be killed by mistake, by my own comrades, was something I found hard to accept. It was just too much. An authoritative voice across the trail yelled, Secure the mortar! A volunteer crawled off to the left, and soon the tank ceased firing on us. We learned later that our tankers were firing on us because we had moved too far ahead. They thought we were enemy support for the field gun. This also explained why the enemy shelling was passing over and exploding behind us. Tragically, the Marine who saved us, by identifying us to the tanker, was shot off the tank and killed by a sniper. The heavy firing on our left had about subsided, so the Japanese counterattack had been broken. Regrettably, I hadn't helped at all, because we were pinned down by one of our own tanks. Some of us went along the trail and looked at the Japanese field gun. It was a well-made, formidable-looking piece of artillery, but I was surprised that the wheels were the heavy wooden kind, typical of field guns of the 19th century. The Japanese gun crew was sprawled around the piece. Them's the biggest nips I ever saw, one veteran said. Look at them sons of bitches. They's all over six foot tall, said another. That must be some of that flower of the Kwangtung army we've been hearing about, put in a corporal. The Japanese counterattack was no wild, suicide bonsai charge, such as marine experience in the past would have led us to expect. Numerous times during D-Day, I heard the dogmatic claim by experienced veterans, that the enemy would bonsai. They'll pull a bonsai, and we'll tear their ass up. 
Then we can get the hell off this hot rock, and maybe the CG will send the division back to Melbourne. Rather than a bonsai, the Japanese counterthrust turned out to be a well-coordinated tank infantry attack. Approximately one company of Japanese infantry, together with about 13 tanks, had moved carefully across the airfield, until annihilated by the Marines on our left. This was our first warning, that the Japanese might fight differently on Peleliu than they had elsewhere. Just before dusk, a Japanese mortar concentration hit 3-5's command post. Our CO, Lieutenant Colonel Austin C. Schofner, was hit while trying to establish contact among the companies of our battalion. He was evacuated and put aboard a hospital ship. Companies I, K, and L couldn't regain contact before nightfall. Each dug in, in a circular defense for the night. The situation was precarious. We were isolated, nearly out of water in the terrible heat, and ammunition was low. Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Walt, accompanied by only a runner, came out into that pitch dark, enemy-infested scrub, located all the companies, and directed us into the division's line on the airfield. He should have won a medal of honor for that feat. Rumor had it, as we dug in, that the division had suffered heavy casualties in the landing and subsequent fighting. The veterans I knew said it had been about the worst day of fighting they had ever seen. It was an immense relief to me when we got to our gun pit, completed, and had registered in our guns by firing two or three rounds of HE into an area out in front of Company K. My thirst was almost unbearable. My stomach was tied in knots, and sweat soaked me. Dissolving some K-ration dextrose tablets in my mouth helped, and I took the last sip of my dwindling water supply. We had no idea when relief would get through with additional water. Artillery shells shrieked and whistled back and forth overhead with increasing frequency, and small arms fire rattled everywhere. In the eerie green light of star shells swinging pendulum-like, on their parachutes, so that shadows danced and swayed around crazily. I started taking off my right shoe. Sledgehammer, what the hell are you doing? Snafu asked in an exasperated tone. Taking off my boondockers. My feet hurt, I replied. Have you gone Asiatic? He asked excitedly. What the hell are you gonna do when you're stocking feet if the nips come busting out of that jungle? Or across this field? We may have to get out of this hole and haul tail if we're ordered to. They're probably going to pull a bonsai before daybreak. And how do you reckon you'll move around on this coral in your stockings? I said that I just wasn't thinking. He read me out good and told me we would be lucky to get our shoes off before the island was secured. I thanked God my foxhole buddy was a combat veteran. Snafu then nonchalantly drew his K-bar and stuck it in the coral gravel near his right hand. My stomach tightened, and goose flesh chilled my back and shoulders at the sight of the long blade in the greenish light, and the realization of why he placed it within such easy reach. He then checked his forty-five automatic pistol. I followed his example with my K-bar as I crouched on the other side of the mortar, 
checked my carbine, and looked over the mortar shells, H.E. and flares, stacked up within reach. We settled down for the long night. Is that theirs or ours, Snafu? I asked each time a shell went over. There was nothing subtle or intimate about the approach and explosion of an artillery shell. When I heard the whistle of an approaching one in the distance, every muscle in my body contracted. I braced myself in a puny effort to keep from being swept away. I felt utterly helpless. As the fiendish whistle grew louder, my teeth ground against each other. My heart pounded. My mouth dried. My eyes narrowed. Sweat poured over me. My breath came in short, irregular gasps, and I was afraid to swallow lest I choke. I always prayed, sometimes out loud. Under certain conditions of range and terrain, I could hear the shells approaching from a considerable distance, thus prolonging the suspense into seemingly unending torture. At the instant, the voice of the shell grew the loudest. It terminated in a flash and a deafening explosion similar to the crash of a loud clap of thunder. The ground shook, and the concussion hurt my ears. Shell fragments tore the air apart as they rushed out, whirring and ripping. Rocks and dirt clattered onto the deck as smoke of the exploded shell dissipated. To be under a barrage or prolonged shelling simply magnified all the terrible physical and emotional effects of one shell. To me, artillery was an invention of hell. The onrushing whistle and scream of the big steel package of destruction was the pinnacle of violent fury and the embodiment of pent-up evil. It was the essence of violence and of man's inhumanity to man. I developed a passionate hatred for shells. To be killed by a bullet seemed so clean and surgical. But shells would not only tear and rip the body, they tortured one's mind almost beyond the brink of sanity. After each shell, I was wrung out, limp, and exhausted. During prolonged shelling, I often had to restrain myself and fight back a wild, inexorable urge to scream, to sob, and to cry. As Palalu dragged on, I feared that if I ever lost control of myself under shell fire, my mind would be shattered. I hated shells, as much for their damage to the mind as to the body. To be under heavy shell fire was, to me, by far the most terrifying of combat experiences. Each time it left me feeling more forlorn and helpless, more fatalistic, and with less confidence that I could escape the dreadful law of averages that inexorably reduced our numbers. Fear is many-faceted and has many subtle nuances. But the terror and desperation endured under heavy shelling are by far the most unbearable. The night wore on endlessly, and I was hardly able to catch even so much as a catnap. Toward the pre-dawn hours, numerous enemy artillery pieces concentrated their fire on the area of scrub jungle from which Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Walt had brought us. 
the shells screeched and whined over us and crashed beyond in the scrub. Whoo, boy! Listen to them nip gunners plaster that area, said a buddy in the next hole. Yeah, Snafu said. They must think we're still out there. And I bet you they'll counterattack right across through that place, too. Thank God we are here and not out there, our buddy said. The barrage increased in tempo as the Japanese gave the vacant scrub jungle a real pounding. When the barrage finally subsided, I heard someone say with a chuckle, Oh, don't knock it off now, you bastards. Fire all your goddamn shells out there in the wrong place. Don't worry, knucklehead. They'll have plenty left to fire in the right place, which is going to be where they see us when daylight comes, another voice said. Supplies had been slow in keeping up with the need of the 5th Marines Infantry Companies on D-Day. The Japanese kept heavy artillery, mortar, and machine gun fire on the entire regimental beach throughout the day. Enemy artillery and mortar observers called down their fire on amphibian vehicles as soon as they reached the beach. This made it difficult to get the critical supplies ashore and the wounded evacuated. All of Peleliu was a front line on D-Day. No one but the dead was out of reach of enemy fire. The shore party people did their best, but they couldn't make up for the heavy losses of Amtrak's needed to bring the supplies to us. We weren't aware of the problems on the beach, being too occupied with our own. We griped, cursed, and prayed that water would get to us. I had used mine more sparingly than some men had, but I finally emptied both of my canteens by the time we finished the gun pit. Dissolving dextrose tablets in my mouth helped a little, but my thirst grew worse through the night. For the first time in my life, I appreciated fully the motion picture cliché of a man on a desert crying, Water! Water! Artillery shells still passed back and forth overhead just before dawn, but there wasn't much small arms fire in our area. Abruptly, there swept over us some of the most intense Japanese machine gun fire I ever saw concentrated in such a small area. Tracers streaked, and bullets cracked, not more than a foot over the top of our gun pit. We lay flat on our backs and waited as the burst ended. The gun cut loose again, joined by a second and possibly a third. Streams of bluish-white tracers, American tracers were red, poured thickly overhead apparently coming from somewhere near the airfield. The crossfire kept up for at least a quarter of an hour. They really poured it on. Shortly before the machine guns opened fire, we had received word to move out at daylight with the entire 5th Marine Regiment in an attack across the airfield. I prayed the machine gun fire would subside before we had to move out. We were pinned down tightly. To raise anything above the edge of the gun pit, would have resulted in its being cut off, as though by a giant scythe. After about 15 minutes, firing ceased abruptly. We sighed in relief. D plus one. Dawn finally came, and with it, the temperature rose rapidly. Where the hell is our water? growled men around me. We had suffered many cases of heat prostration the day before and needed water, or we'd all pass out during the attack, I thought. 
Stand by to move out, came the order. We squared away all of our personal gear. Snafu secured the gun, took it down by folding the bipod and strapping it, while I packed my remaining shells in my ammo bag. I've got to get some water or I'm going to crack up, I said. At that moment, a buddy nearby yelled and beckoned to us. Come on, we found a well. I snatched up my carbine and took off, empty canteens bouncing on my cartridge belt. About 25 yards away, a group of Company K men gathered at a hole about 15 feet in diameter and 10 feet deep. I peered over the edge. At the bottom and to one side was a small pool of milky-looking water. Japanese shells were beginning to fall on the airfield, but I was too thirsty to care. One of the men was already in the hole, filling canteens and passing them up. The buddy who had called me was drinking from a helmet with its liner removed. He gulped down the milky stuff and said, It isn't beer, but it's wet. Helmets and canteens were passed up to those of us waiting. Don't bunch up, you guys. We'll draw Jap fire sure as hell, shouted one man. The first man who drank the water looked at me and said, oh, I feel sick. A company corpsman came up yelling, Don't drink that water, you guys. It may be poisoned. I had just lifted a full helmet to my lips when the man next to me fell, holding his sides and retching violently. I threw down my water, milky with coral dust, and started assisting the corpsman with the man who was ill. He went to the rear, where he recovered. Whether it was poisoned or pollution, we never knew. Get your gear on and stand by, someone yelled. Frustrated and angry, I headed back to the gun pit. A detail came up about that time with water cans, ammo, and rations. A friend and I helped each other pour water out of a five-gallon can into our canteen cups. Our hands shook. We were so eager to quench our thirst. I was amazed that the water looked brown in my aluminum canteen cup. No matter, I took a big gulp and almost spit it out despite my terrible thirst. It was awful, full of rust and oil. It stunk. I looked into the cup in disbelief as a blue film of oil floated lazily on the surface of the smelly brown liquid. Cramps gripped the pit of my stomach. My friend looked up from his cup and groaned. Sledgehammer, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I sure am. That oil drum steam cleaning detail on Pavuvu, I said wearily. We had been together on a detail assigned to clean out the drums. I'm a son of a bitch, he growled. I'll never goof off on another work party as long as I live. I told him I didn't think it was our fault. We weren't the only ones assigned to the detail, and it was obvious to us from the start, if not to some supply officer, that the method we had been ordered to use didn't really clean the drums. But that knowledge was slight consolation out there, on the Peleliu airfield, in the increasing heat. As awful as the stuff was, we had to drink it or suffer heat exhaustion. After I drained my cup, a residue of rust resembling coffee grounds remained, and my stomach ached. We picked up our gear 
and prepared to move out in preparation for the attack across the airfield. Because 3-5's line during the night faced south and was back-to-back with that of 2-5, we had to move to the right and prepare to attack northward across the airfield with the other battalions of the regiment. The Japanese shelling of our lines began at daylight, so we had to move out fast and in dispersed formation. We finally got into position for the attack and were told to hit the deck until ordered to move again. This suited me fine, because the Japanese shelling was getting worse. Our artillery, ships, and planes were laying down a terrific amount of fire in front, on the airfield, and ridges beyond in preparation for our attack. Our pre-attack barrage lasted about half an hour. I knew we would move out when it ended. As I lay on the blistering hot coral and looked across the open airfield, heat waves shimmered and danced, distorting the view of Bloody Nose Ridge. A hot wind blew in our faces. An NCO hurried by, crouching low and yelling, Keep moving out there, you guys. There's less chance you'll be hit if you go across fast and don't stop. Let's go! shouted an officer who waved toward the airfield. We moved at a walk, then a trot, in widely dispersed waves. Four infantry battalions, from left to right, 2-1, 1-5, 2-5, and 3-5. This put us on the edge of the airfield, moved across the open, fire-swept airfield. My only concern then was my duty and survival not panoramic combat scenes. But I often wondered later what that attack looked like to aerial observers and to those not immersed in the firestorms. All I was aware of were the small area immediately around me and the deafening noise. Bloody Nose Ridge dominated the entire airfield. The Japanese had concentrated their heavy weapons on high ground. These were directed from observation posts at elevations as high as 300 feet from which they could look down on us as we advanced. I could see men moving ahead of my squad, but I didn't know whether our battalion, 3-5, was moving across behind 2-5 and then wheeling to the right. There were also men about 20 yards to our rear. We moved rapidly in the open, amid craters and coral rubble, through ever-increasing enemy fire. I saw men to my right and left, running bent as low as possible. The shells screeched and whistled, exploding all around us. In many respects, it was more terrifying than the landing, because there were no vehicles to carry us along, not even the thin steel sides of an Amtrak for protection. We were exposed, running on our own power, through a veritable shower of deadly metal and the constant crash of explosions. For me, the attack resembled World War I movies I had seen of suicidal, allied infantry attacks through shell fire on the Western Front. I clenched my teeth, squeezed my carbine stock, and recited over and over to myself, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. The sun bore down unmercifully, and the heat was exhausting. Smoke and dust from the barrage limited my vision. 
The ground seemed to sway back and forth under the concussions. I felt as though I were floating along in the vortex of some unreal thunderstorm. Japanese bullets snapped and cracked, and tracers went by me on both sides at waist high. This deadly small arms fire seemed almost insignificant amid the erupting shells. Explosions in the hum and the growl of shell fragments shredded the air. Chunks of blasted coral stung my face and hands, while steel fragments spattered down on the hard rock like hail on a city street. Everywhere shells flashed like giant firecrackers. Through the haze I saw marines stumble and pitch forward as they got hit. I then looked neither right nor left, but just straight to my front. The farther we went, the worse it got. The noise and concussion pressed in on my ears like a vice. I gritted my teeth and braced myself in anticipation of the shock of being struck down at any moment. It seemed impossible that any of us could make it across. We passed several craters that offered shelter, but I remembered the order to keep moving. Because of the superb discipline and excellent esprit of the Marines, it had never occurred to us that the attack might fail. About halfway across, I stumbled and fell forward. At that instant, a large shell exploded to my left with a flash and a roar. A fragment ricocheted off the deck and growled over my head as I went down. On my right, Snafu let out a grunt and fell as the fragment struck him. As he went down, he grabbed his left side. I crawled quickly to him. Fortunately, the fragment had spent much of its force and luckily hit against Snafu's heavy web pistol belt. The threads on the broad belt were frayed in about an inch square area. I knelt beside him, and we checked his side. He had only a bruise to show for his incredible luck. On the deck, I saw the chunk of steel that had hit him. It was about an inch square and a half inch thick. I picked up the fragment and showed it to him. Snafu motioned towards his pack. Terrified though I was amid the hellish chaos, I calmly juggled the fragment around in my hands. It was still hot, and I dropped it into his pack. He yelled something that sounded dimly like, Let's go! I reached for the carrying strap of the mortar, but he pushed my hand away and lifted the gun to his shoulder. We got up and moved on as fast as we could. Finally, we got across and caught up with other members of our company who lay panting and sweating amid low bushes on the northeastern side of the airfield. How far we had come in the open, I never knew, but it must have been several hundred yards. Everyone was visibly shaken by the thunderous barrage we had just come through. When I looked into the eyes of those fine Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester veterans, some of America's best, I no longer felt ashamed of my trembling hands and almost laughed at myself with relief. To be shelled by massed artillery and mortars is absolutely terrifying, but to be shelled in the open, is terror compounded beyond the belief of anyone who hasn't experienced it. The attack across Peleliu's airfield was the worst combat experience I had during the entire war. It surpassed by intensity of the blast and shock of the bursting shells all the subsequent horrifying ordeals on Peleliu and Okinawa. The heat was incredibly intense. The temperature that day reached 105 degrees in the shade. We were not in the shade, and would soar to 115 degrees on subsequent days. 
Corman tagged numerous Marines with heat prostration as being too weak to continue. We evacuated them. My boondockers were so full of sweat that my feet felt squishy when I walked. Lying on my back, I held up first one foot and then the other. Water literally poured out of each shoe. Hey, Sledgehammer, chuckled a man sprawled next to me. You been walking on water? Maybe that's why he didn't get hit coming across that airfield, laughed another. I tried to grin and was glad the inevitable wisecracks had started up again. Because of the shape of the airfield, 3-5 was pinched out of the line by 2-5 on our left and 3-7 on our right after our crossing. We swung eastward, and Company K tied in with 3-7, which was attacking in the swampy areas on the eastern side of the airfield. As we picked up our gear, a veteran remarked to me with a jerk of his head toward the airfield where the shelling continued. That was a rough duty. Hate to have to do that every day. We moved through the swamps amid sniper fire and dug in for the night, with our backs to the sea. I positioned my mortar in a meager gun pit on a slight rise of ground about 15 feet from a sheer rock bluff that dropped about 10 feet to the ocean. The jungle growth was extremely thick, but we had a clear hole in the jungle canopy above the gun pit through which we could fire the mortar without having shells hit the foliage and explode. Most of the men in the company were out of sight through the thick mangroves. Still short of water, everyone was weakened by the heat and the exertions of the day. I had used my water as sparingly as possible and had to eat twelve salt tablets that day. We kept close count on these tablets. They caused retching if we took more than necessary. The enemy infiltration that followed was a nightmare. Illumination fired above the airfield the previous night, D-Day, had discouraged infiltration in my sector. But others had experienced plenty of the hellish sort of thing we now faced and would suffer every night for the remainder of our time on Peleliu. The Japanese were noted for their infiltration tactics. On Peleliu, they refined them and practiced them at a level of intensity not seen in the past. After we had dug in late that afternoon, we followed a procedure used nearly every night. Using directions from our observer, we registered in the mortar by firing a couple of HE shells into a defilade or some similar avenue of approach in front of the company not covered by our machine gun or rifle fire where the enemy might advance. We then set up alternate aiming stakes to mark other terrain features on which we could fire. Everyone lighted up a smoke, and the password for the night was whispered along the line, passed from foxhole to foxhole. The password always contained the letter L, which the Japanese had difficulty pronouncing the way an American would. Word came along as to the disposition of the platoons of the company and of the units on our flanks. We checked our weapons and placed equipment for quick access in the coming night. As darkness fell, the order was passed. The smoking lamp is out. All talking ceased. One man in each foxhole settled down as comfortably as he could to sleep on the jagged rock, while his buddy strained eyes and ears to detect any movement or sound in the darkness. 
an occasional Japanese mortar shell came into the area, but things were pretty quiet for a couple of hours. We threw up a few HE shells as harassing fire to discourage movement in front of the company. I could hear the sea lapping gently against the base of the rocks behind us. The Japanese soon began trying to infiltrate all over the company front and along the shore to our rear. We heard sporadic bursts of small arms fire and the bang of grenades. Our fire discipline had to be strict in such situations so as to not mistakenly shoot a fellow Marine. The loose accusation was often made during the war that Americans were trigger-happy at night and shot at anything that moved. This accusation was often correct when referring to rear area or inexperienced troops. But in the rifle companies, it was also accepted as gospel that anybody who moved out of his hole at night without first informing the men around him, and who didn't reply immediately with a password upon being challenged, could expect to get shot. Suddenly, movement in the dried vegetation toward the front of the gun pit got my attention. I turned cautiously around and waited, holding Snafu's cocked forty-five automatic pistol at the ready. The rustling movements drew closer. My heart pounded. It was definitely not one of Peleliu's numerous land crabs that scuttled over the ground all night, every night. Someone was slowly crawling toward the gun pit. Then, silence. More noise, then silence. Rustling noises, then silence. The typical pattern. It must be a Japanese trying to slip in as close as possible stopping frequently to prevent detection, I thought. He probably had seen the muzzle flash when I fired the mortar. He would throw a grenade at any moment or jump me with his bayonet. I couldn't see a thing in the pale light and inky blackness of the shadows. Crouching low so as to see better any silhouette against the sky above me, I flipped off the thumb safety on the big pistol. A helmeted figure loomed up against the night sky in front of the gun pit. I couldn't tell from the silhouette whether the helmet was U.S. or Japanese. Aiming the automatic at the center of the head, I pressed the grip safety as I also squeezed the trigger slightly to take up the slack. The thought raced through my mind that he was too close to use his grenade, so he would probably use a bayonet or knife on me. My hand was steady even though I was scared. It was he or I. What's the password? I said in a low voice. No answer. Password, I demanded as my finger tightened on the trigger. The big pistol would fire and buck with recoil in a moment, but to hurry and jerk the trigger would mean to miss for sure. Then he'd be on me. Sledgehammer, stammered the figure. I eased up on the trigger. It's Delow, Jay Delow. You got any water? Jay, why didn't you give me the password? I nearly shot you, I gasped. He saw the pistol and moaned. Oh, Jesus. As he realized what had nearly happened. I, I, I thought you knew it was me, he said weakly. Jay was one of my closest friends. He was a Gloucester veteran and knew better than to prowl around the way he had just done. If my finger had applied the last bit of pressure to that trigger, Jay would have died instantly. It would have been his own fault. 
but that wouldn't have mattered to me. My life would have been ruined if I had killed him, even under those circumstances. My right hand trembled violently as I lowered the big automatic. I had to flip on the thumb safety with my left hand. My right thumb was too weak. I felt nauseated and weak and wanted to cry. Jay crept over and sat on the edge of the gun pit. I'm sorry, Sledgehammer. I thought you knew it was me, he said. After handing him a canteen, I shuddered violently and thanked God that Jay was still alive. Just how in the hell could I tell if it was you in the dark with the nips all over the place? I snarled. Then I reamed out one of the best friends I ever had. Heading north. Get your gear on and stand by to move out. We shouldered our loads and began moving slowly out of the thick swamp. As I passed a shallow foxhole where Robert B. Oswald had been dug in, I asked a man nearby if the word were true about Oswald being killed. Sadly, he said yes. Oswald had been fatally wounded in the head. A bright young mind that aspired to delve into the mysteries of the human brain to alleviate human suffering had itself been destroyed by a tiny chunk of metal. What a waste, I thought. War is such a self-defeating, organized madness, the way it destroys a nation's best. I wondered also about the hopes and aspirations of a dead Japanese we had just dragged out of the water. But those of us caught up in the maelstrom of combat had little compassion for the enemy. As a wise, salty NCO had put it one day on Pavuvu when asked by a replacement if he ever felt sorry for the Japanese when they got hit. Hell no! It's them or us! We moved out, keeping our five-pace interval through the thick swamp toward the sound of heavy firing. The heat was almost unbearable, and we were halted frequently to prevent heat prostration in the 115-degree temperature. We came to the eastern edge of the airfield and halted in the shade of a scrub thicket. Throwing down our gear, we fell on the deck, sweating, panting, exhausted. I had no more than reached for a canteen when a rifle bullet snapped overhead. He's close. Get down, said an officer. The rifle cracked again. Sounds like he's right through there a little way, the officer said. I'll get him, said Howard Neese. Okay, go ahead, but watch yourself. Neese, a Gloucester veteran, grabbed his rifle and took off into the scrub with the nonchalance of a hunter going after a rabbit in a bush. He angled to one side so as to steal up on the sniper from the rear. We waited a few anxious moments, then heard two M1 shots. Old Howard got him, confidently remarked one of the men. Soon Howard reappeared, wearing a triumphant grin and carrying a Japanese rifle and some personal effects. Everyone congratulated him on his skill, and he reacted with his usual modesty. Rack him up, boys, he laughed. We moved out in a few minutes, through some knee-high bushes, onto the open area at the edge of the airfield. The heat was terrific. When we halted again, we lay under the meager shade of the bushes. 
I held up each foot and let the sweat pour out of my boondockers. A man on the crew of the other weapon in our mortar section passed out. He was a Gloucester veteran, but Palaloo's heat proved too much for him. We evacuated him, but unlike some heat prostration cases, he never returned to the company. Some men pulled the rear border of their camouflaged helmet cover out from between the steel and the liner so the cloth hung down over the backs of the necks. This gave them some protection against the blistering sun. But they looked like the French Foreign Legion in a desert. After a brief rest, we continued in dispersed order. We could see Bloody Nose Ridge to our left front. Northward, from that particular area, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, 2-1, was fighting desperately against Japanese hidden in well-protected caves. We were moving up to relieve 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, 1-5, and would tie in with the 1st Marines. Then we were to attack northward, along the eastern side of the ridges. On this particular day, 17 September, the relief was slow and difficult. As 3-5 moved in, and the men of 1-5 moved out, the Japanese in the ridges on our left front poured on the artillery and mortar fire. I pitied those tired men in 1-5 as they tried to extricate themselves without casualties. Their battalion, as with the others in the 5th Marines, had had a rough time crossing the airfield through the heavy fire the previous day. But once they got across, they met heavy resistance from pillboxes on the eastern side. We had been more fortunate. After getting across the airfield, 3-5 moved into the swamp, which wasn't defended as heavily. With the relief of 1-5 finally completed, we tied in with the 1st Marines on our left and 2-5 on our right. Our battalion was to attack during the afternoon through the low ground along the eastern side of Bloody Nose, while 2-5 was to clean out the jungle between our right flank and the eastern shore. As soon as we moved forward, we came under heavy flanking fire from Bloody Nose Ridge on our left. Snafu delivered his latest communique on the tactical situation to me as we hugged the deck for protection. They need to get some more damn troops up here, he growled. Our artillery was called in, but our mortars could fire only to the front of the company and not on the left flank area, because that was in the area of the 1st Marines. The Japanese observers on the ridge had a clear, unobstructed view of us. Their artillery shells whined and shrieked, accompanied by the deadly whispering of the mortar shells. Enemy fire grew more intense until we were pinned down. We were getting the first bitter taste of Bloody Nose Ridge, and we had increasing compassion for the first Marines on our left who were battering squarely into it. The Japanese ceased firing when our movement stopped. Yet as surely as three men grouped together, or anyone started moving, enemy mortars opened up on us. If a general movement occurred, their artillery joined in. The Japanese began to demonstrate the excellent fire discipline that was to characterize their use of all weapons on Peleliu. They fired only when they could expect to inflict maximum casualties and stop firing as soon as the opportunity passed. Thus our observers and planes had difficulty finding their well-camouflaged positions in the ridges. When the enemy ceased firing artillery and mortars from caves, they shut protective steel doors and waited while our artillery, naval guns, and 81mm mortars blasted away at the rock. If we moved ahead under our protective fire support, the Japanese pinned us down and inflicted serious losses on us, 
because it was almost impossible to dig a protective foxhole in the rock. No individual events of the attack stuck in my mind, just the severe fire from our left and the feeling that any time the Japanese decided to do so, they could have blown us sky high. Our attack was called off late in the afternoon, and we were ordered to set up our mortar for the night. An NCO came by and told me to go with him and about four others from other platoons to unload the Amtrak bringing up supplies for Company K. We arrived at the destination place, dispersed a little so as to not draw fire, and waited for the Amtrak. In a few minutes, it came clanking up in a swirl of white dust. You guys from K Company, 5th Marines? asked the driver. Yeah, you got chow and ammo for us? asked our NCO. Yeah, sure have. Got a unit of fire, water, and rations. Better get it unloaded as soon as you can, or we'll draw fire, the driver said as his machine lurched to a halt and he climbed down. The tractor was an older model, such as I had landed from on D-Day. It didn't have a drop tailgate, so we climbed aboard and hefted the heavy ammo boxes over the side and down onto the deck. Let's go, boys, our NCO said as he and a couple of us climbed onto the tractor. I saw him gaze in amazement down into the cargo area of the tractor. At the bottom, wedged under a pile of ammo boxes, we saw one of those infernal 55-gallon oil drums of water. Filled, they weighed several hundred pounds. Our NCO rested his arms on his side of the tractor and remarked in an exasperated tone. It took a bloody genius of a supply officer to do that. How in the hell are we supposed to get that drum out of there? I don't know, said the driver. I just bring it up. We cursed and began unloading the ammo as fast as possible. We had expected the water to be in several five-gallon cans, each of which weighed a little more than 40 pounds. We worked as rapidly as possible. But then, we heard that inevitable and deadly whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Three big mortar shells exploded, one after the other, not far from us. Uh-oh, the stuff's hit the fan now groaned one of my buddies. Bare hand, you guys, on the double, said the NCO. Look, you guys, I'm gonna have to get this tractor the hell out of here. If it gets knocked out and it's my fault, the lieutenant will have my cane in a crack, groaned the driver. We had no gripe with the driver, and we didn't blame him. The Amtrak drivers on Peleliu were praised by everyone for doing such a fine job. Their bravery and sense of responsibility were above question. We worked like beavers, as our NCO said to him, I'm sorry, old buddy, but if we don't get these supplies unloaded, it's our ass. More mortar shells fell out to one side, and the fragments swished through the air. It was apparent that the Japanese mortar crew was trying to bracket us, but was afraid to fire too much for fear of being seen by our observers. We sweated and panted to get the ammo unloaded. We unloaded the water drum with a rope sling. You fellows need any help? asked a Marine who appeared from the rear. We hadn't noticed him before he spoke. He wore green dungarees, leggings, and a cloth-covered helmet like ourselves and carried a forty-five caliber automatic pistol like any mortar gunner, machine gunner, or one of our officers. Of course, he wore no rank insignia, being in combat. What astonished us was that he looked to be more than fifty years old and wore glasses, a rarity. For example, only two men in Company K wore them. When he took off his helmet to mop his brow, we saw his gray hair. Most men forward a division and regimental CPs 
were in their late teens or early twenties. Many officers were in their mid-twenties. When asked who he was and what unit he was in, he replied, Captain Paul Douglas, I was division adjutant until that barrage hit the 5th Marine CP yesterday. Then I was assigned as R1, personnel officer, in the 5th Regiment. I am very proud to be with the 5th Marines, he said. Gosh, Captain, you don't have to be up here at all, do you? Asked one of our detail in disbelief as he passed ammo boxes to the fatherly officer. No, Douglas said, but I always want to know how you boys up here are making out and wanted to help if I can. What company are you fellows from? From K Company, sir, I answered. His face lit up, and he said, Ah, you're Andy Haldane's company. We asked Douglas if he knew Akak. He said yes, that they were old friends. As we finished unloading, we all agreed that there wasn't a finer company commander than Captain Haldane. A couple more mortar shells crashed nearby. Our luck would run out soon. Japanese gunners usually got right on target. So we yelled, shove off, to the driver. He waved and clanked away in his unloaded Amtrak. Captain Douglas helped us stack some of the ammo and told us we had better disperse. I heard a buddy ask, what's that crazy old gray-headed guy doing up here if he could be back at regiment? Our NCO growled, shut up, knock it off, you eight ball. He's trying to help knuckleheads like you, and he's a damn good man. Each man in our detail took up a load of supplies, bade Captain Douglas so long, and started back to the company lines. Other men went back to bring up the rest of the supplies before dark. We ate chow and finished preparations for the night. That was the first night on Peleliu that I was able to make a cup of hot bullion from my dehydrated tablets in my K-rations and a canteen cup of heated, polluted, oily water. Hot as the weather was, it was the most nourishing and refreshing food I had eaten in three days. The next day, we got fresh water. It was a great relief after that polluted stuff. Dug in next to our gun pit were First Lieutenant Edward A. Hillbilly Jones, Company K's machine gun platoon leader, and Assaulty Sergeant John A. Teskovich. Things were quiet in our area, except for our artillery's harassing fire pouring over. So after dark obscured us from Japanese observers, the two of them slipped over and sat at the edge of our gun pit. We shared rations and talked. The conversation turned out to be one of the most memorable of my life. Hillbilly was second only to Akak in popularity among the enlisted men in Company K. He was a clean-cut, handsome, light-complexioned man. Not large, but well-built. Hillbilly told me he had been an enlisted man for several pre-war years had gone to the Pacific with the company, and had been commissioned following Guadalcanal. He didn't say why he was made an officer, but the word among the men was that he had been outstanding on Guadalcanal. It was a widespread joke among men in the ranks during the war that an officer was made an officer and a gentleman by an act of Congress when he was commissioned. An act of Congress may have made Hillbilly an officer, but he was born a gentleman. No matter how filthy and dirty everyone was on the battlefield, Hillbilly's face always had a clean, fresh appearance. He was physically tough and hard and obviously morally strong. He sweated as much as any man, but somehow seemed to stand above our foul and repulsive living conditions in the field. Hillbilly had a quiet and pleasant voice, even in command. His accent was soft, 
more that of the deep south, which was familiar to me, than that of the hill country. Between this man and all the Marines I knew, there existed a deep, mutual respect and a warm friendliness. He had that rare ability to be friendly, yet not familiar with enlisted men. He possessed a unique combination of those qualities of bravery, leadership, ability, integrity, dignity, straightforwardness, and compassion. The only other officer I ever knew who was his equal in all these qualities was Captain Haldane. That night, Hillbilly talked about his boyhood and his home in West Virginia. He asked me about mine. He also talked about his pre-war years in the Marine Corps. Later, I remembered little of what he said, but the quiet way he talked calmed me. He was optimistic about the battle in progress and seemed to understand and appreciate all my fears and apprehensions. I confided in him that many times I had been so terrified that I felt ashamed and that some men didn't seem to be so afraid. He scoffed at my mention of being ashamed. He said that my fear had been no greater than anyone else's, but that I was just honest enough to admit its magnitude. He told me that he was afraid too, and that the first battle was the hardest, because a man didn't know what to expect. Fear dwelled in everyone, Hillbilly said. Courage meant overcoming fear, and doing one's duty in the presence of danger, not being unafraid. The conversation with Hillbilly reassured me. When the sergeant came over, and joined in after getting coffee, I felt almost lighthearted. As conversation trailed off, we sipped our joe in silence. Suddenly, I heard a loud voice say clearly and distinctly, You will survive the war. I looked first at Hillbilly, and then at the sergeant. Each returned my glance with a quizzical expression on his face in the gathering darkness. Obviously, they hadn't said anything. Did you all hear that? I asked. Hear what? They both inquired. Someone said something, I said. I didn't hear anything. How about you? Said Hillbilly, turning to the sergeant. No, just that machine gun off to the left. Shortly, the word was passed to get settled for the night. Hillbilly and the sergeant crawled back to their hole as Snafu returned to the gun pit. Like most persons, I had always been skeptical about people seeing visions and hearing voices, so I didn't mention my experience to anyone. But I believed God spoke to me that night on that Peleliu battlefield, and I resolved to make my life amount to something after the war. That night, the third since landing, as I settled back in the gun pit, I realized I needed a bath. In short, I stunk. My mouth felt, as the saying went, like I had gremlins walking around in it with muddy boots on. Short as it was, my hair was matted with dust and rifle oil. My scalp itched, and my stubble beard was becoming an increasing source of irritation in the heat. Drinking water was far too precious in those early days to use in brushing one's teeth or in shaving even if the opportunity had arisen. The personal bodily filth imposed upon the combat infantrymen by living conditions on the battlefield was difficult for me to tolerate. 
it bothered almost everyone I knew. Even the hardiest Marine typically kept his rifle and his person clean. His language and his mind might need a good bit of cleaning up, but not his weapon, his uniform, or his person. We had this philosophy drilled into us in boot camp, and many times at Camp Elliott, I had to pass personal inspection, to the point of clean fingernails, before being passed as fit to go on liberty. To be anything less than neat and sharp was considered a negative reflection on the Marine Corps and wasn't tolerated. It was tradition and folklore of the 1st Marine Division that the troops routinely referred to themselves when in the field as the raggedy-ass Marines. The emphasis during maneuvers and field problems was on combat readiness. Once back in camp, however, no matter where in the boondocks it was situated, the troops cleaned up before anything else. In combat, cleanliness for the infantrymen was all but impossible. Our filth added to our general misery. Fear and filth went hand in hand. It has always puzzled me that this important factor in our daily lives has received so little attention from historians and often is omitted from otherwise excellent personal memoirs by infantrymen. It is, of course, a vile subject, but it was as important to us then as being wet or dry, hot or cold, in the shade or exposed to the blistering sun, hungry, tired, or sick. Early the next morning, 18 September, our artillery and 81mm mortars shelled Japanese positions to our front as we prepared to continue the previous day's attack northward on the eastern side of Bloody Nose Ridge. A typical pattern of attack in our company, or any other rifle company, went something like this. Our two mortars would fire on certain targets, or areas known or thought to harbor the enemy. Our light machine gun squads fired on areas in front of the rifle platoons they were attached to support. Then, two of the three rifle platoons moved out in dispersed order. The remaining platoon was held in company reserve. Just before the riflemen moved out, we ceased fire with the mortars. The machine guns stopped also unless they were situated where they could fire over the heads of the advancing riflemen. The latter moved out at a walk to conserve energy. If they received enemy fire, they moved from place to place in short rushes. Thus, they advanced until they reached the objective. The mortar stood by to fire if the riflemen ran into strong opposition, and the machine gun squads moved forward to add their fire support. The riflemen were the spearhead of any attack. Consequently, they caught more hell than anybody else. The machine gunners had a tough job, because the Japanese concentrated on trying to knock them out. The flamethrower gunner had it rough, and so did the rocket launcher gunners and the demolitions men. The 60mm mortarmen caught it from Japanese counter-battery fire of mortars and artillery, snipers, who were numerous, and bypassed Japanese machine guns, which were common. The tankers caught hell from mortar and artillery fire and mines. But it was always the riflemen who had the worst job. The rest of us only supported them. Marine Corps tactics called for bypassing single snipers or machine guns in order to keep forward momentum. Bypassed Japanese were knocked out by a platoon or company of infantry in reserve. 
Thus mortars fired furiously on the enemy to the front, while a small battle raged behind between bypassed and trenched Japanese and Marines in reserve. These Japanese frequently fired from the rear, pinning down the advance and causing casualties. Troops had to be well-disciplined to function this way, and leadership had to be the best to coordinate things under such chaotic conditions. Marine tactics resembled those developed by the Germans under General Erich Ludendorff, which proved so successful against the Allies in the spring of 1918. If the riflemen hit heavy opposition, our 81mm mortars, artillery, tanks, ships, and planes were called on for support. These tactics worked well on Peleliu until the Marines hit the mutually supporting complex of caves and pillboxes in the maze of coral ridges. As heavy casualties mounted, the reserve rifle platoon, mortarmen, company officers, and anybody else available acted as stretcher bearers to get the wounded out from under fire as fast as possible. Every man in Company K, no matter what his rank or job, did duty as a rifleman and stretcher bearer on numerous occasions on Peleliu and later on Okinawa. Shelling from the ridge positions on our left slowed us down. Our planes made airstrikes, and our ships and artillery attacked the ridges. But Japanese shells kept coming in. The company had an increasing number of casualties. We moved our mortar several times to avoid the shelling, but the Japanese artillery and mortar fire got so heavy and caused such losses to the battalion that our attack was finally called off about noon. On our right, 2-5 made better progress. That battalion moved forward through thick jungle, shielded from enemy observers, then turned east and moved out onto the smaller prong of Peleliu's lobster claw. We moved behind 2-5 eastward, across the causeway road to exploit their gain. Again shielded by thick woods, we moved away from Bloody Nose. We pitied the first marines attacking the ridges. They were suffering heavy casualties. The war is the first Marines catching hell, said Snafu. Poor guys, I pity him, said another man. Yeah, me too. But I hope like hell they take the damn ridge, and we don't have to go up there, said another. That shelling coming from up there was hell, and you couldn't even locate the guns with field glasses, added someone else. From what we had seen thrown at us from the left flank during the past two days, and what I saw of the ridges then, I felt sure that sooner or later, every battalion of every regiment in the division would get thrown against bloody nose. I was right. The 1st Marines' predicament at the time was worse than ours in 3-5. They were attacking the end of the ridge itself, and not only received heavy shelling from the enemy caves there, but deadly accurate small arms fire as well. Being tied in with the 1st Marines at the time, we got the word straight from the troops themselves and not from some overly optimistic officer in a CP putting pins on a map. The word passed along the line to us, told that when the men of 2-1 moved up toward the Japanese positions following pre-assault artillery fire, the enemy fired on them from mutually supporting positions, pinning them down and inflicting heavy losses. If they managed to get onto the slopes, the Japanese opened fire point-blank from caves as soon as our artillery lifted. The enemy then moved back into their caves. If Marines got close enough to the enemy position to attack it with flamethrowers and demolition charges, Japanese, in mutually supporting positions, 
raked them with crossfire. Each slight gain by the first marines on the ridges came at almost prohibitive cost in casualties. From what little we could see of the terrain, and from the great deal we heard firsthand of the desperate struggle on our left, some of us suspected that Bloody Nose was going to drag on and on in a long battle with many casualties. The troops got paid to do the fighting. I made $60 a month. And the high command, the thinking. But the big brass were predicting optimistically that the Japanese defenses in the ridges would be breached any day. And Peleliu would be secured in a few days. As 3-5 moved eastward on 18 September, a buddy commented sadly, You know, Sledgehammer, a guy from the 1st Marines told me they got them poor boys making frontal attacks with fixed bayonets on the damn ridge, and they can't even see the nips that are shooting at them. The poor kid was really depressed. Don't see no way he can come out alive. There just ain't no sense in that. They can't get nowhere like that. It's slaughter. Yeah, some goddamn glory-happy officer wants another medal, I guess. And the guys get shot up for it. The officer gets the medal and goes back to the States, and he's a big hero. Hero my ass. Getting troops slaughtered ain't being no hero, said a veteran bitterly. And bitterness it was. Even the most optimistic man I knew believed our battalion must take its turn against those incredible ridges. And dreaded it. Death Patrol. As we moved toward the smaller lobster claw, Snafu chanted, Oh, them mortar shells are busting up that old gang of mine. To the tune of, those wedding bells are breaking up that old gang of mine. We halted frequently to rest briefly and to keep down the number of cases of heat prostration. Although not heavy, my pack felt like a steaming, hot, wet compress on my shoulders and upper back. We were sopping wet with sweat. And at night, or during a halt in the shade, our dungarees dried out a bit. When they did, heavy white lines of fine, powdery salt formed, as though drawn by chalk, along the shoulders, waist, and so on. Later, as the campaign dragged on, and our dungarees caked with coral dust, they felt like canvas instead of soft cotton. I carried a little Gideon's New Testament in my breast pocket, and it stayed soaked with sweat during the early days. The Japanese carried their personal photos and other papers in waterproof green rubber pocket-sized folding bags. I liberated one such bag from a corpse and used it as covering for my New Testament. The little Bible went all the way through Okinawa's rain and mud with me, snug in its captured cover. During one halt along a sandy road in the woods, we heard the words hot chow passed. The hell you say, someone said in disbelief. Straight dope, pork chops. We couldn't believe it, but it was true. We filed past a cylindrical metal container, and each of us received a hot, delicious pork chop. The chow had been sent ashore for Company K by the crew of LST-661. I vowed. If the chance ever came, I would express my thanks to those sailors for that chow. As we sat along the road, eating pork chops with our fingers, a friend sitting on his helmet next to me began to examine a Japanese pistol he had captured. 
suddenly the pistol fired. He toppled over on his back, but sprang up immediately, holding his hand to his forehead. Several men hit the deck, and we all ducked at the sound of the shot. I had seen what happened, but ducked instinctively with an already well-developed conditioned reflex. I stood up and looked at the man's face. The bullet merely had creased his forehead. He was lucky. When the other men realized he wasn't hurt, they really began to kid him unmercifully. Typical comments went something like, Hey, old buddy, I always knew you had a hard head, but I didn't know slugs would bounce off of it. You don't need a helmet except to sit on when we take ten. You're too young to handle dangerous weapons. Some people will do anything to get a purple heart. Is this the sort of thing you used to do to attract your mother's attention? He rubbed his forehead, embarrassed, and mumbled, I'll knock it off. We moved along a causeway and finally halted on the edge of a swamp, where the company deployed and dug in for the night. Things were fairly quiet. The next morning, the company swung south, pushing through the heavy growth behind a mortar and artillery barrage. We killed a few Japanese throughout the area. Late in the day, Company K deployed again for the night. The following day, Company K received a mission to push a strong combat patrol to the east coast of the island. Our orders were to move through the thick growth onto the peninsula that formed the smaller claw and set up a defensive position at the northern tip of the landmass on the edge of the mangrove swamp. Our orders didn't specify the number of days we were to remain there. First, Lieutenant Hillbilly Jones commanded the patrol consisting of about 40 Marines, plus a war dog, a Doberman Pinscher. Sergeant Henry, Hank, boys, was the senior NCO. As with all combat patrols, we were heavily armed with rifles and BARs. We also had a couple of machine gun squads and the mortar squad with us, never missing an opportunity to get into action with his cold steel. Sergeant Haney volunteered to go along. G2, Division Intelligence, reports there are a couple thousand Japanese somewhere on the other side of that swamp. And if they try to move across to get back to the defensive positions in Bloody Nose, we're to hold them up until artillery, airstrikes, and reinforcements can join us. A veteran NCO said in a terse voice. Our mission was to make contact with the enemy, test his strength, or occupy and hold a strategic position against enemy attack. I wasn't enthusiastic about it. We picked up extra rations and ammunition as we filed through the company lines, exchanging parting remarks with friends. Heading into the thick scrub brush, I felt pretty lonesome, like a little boy going to spend his first night away from home. I realized that Company K had become my home. No matter how bad a situation was in the company, it was still home to me. It was not just a lettered company in a numbered battalion in a numbered regiment in a numbered division. It meant far more than that. It was home. It was my company. I belonged in it and nowhere else. Most Marines I knew felt the same way about their companies in whatever battalion, regiment, or Marine division they happened to be. This was the result of or maybe a cause for, our strong esprit de corps. The Marine Corps wisely acknowledged this unit attachment. Men who recovered from wounds and returned to duty nearly always came home to their old company. This was not misplaced sentimentality, but a strong contributor to high morale. A man felt that he belonged to his unit and had a niche among buddies 
whom he knew and with whom he shared a mutual respect, welded in combat. This sense of family was particularly important in the infantry, where survival and combat efficiency often hinged on how well men could depend on one another. We moved through the thick growth quietly in extended formation, with scouts out looking for snipers. Things in our area were quiet, but the battle rumbled on bloody nose. Thick jungle growth clogged the swamp, which also contained numerous shallow tidal inlets and pools choked with mangroves and bordered by more mangroves and low pandanus trees. If a plant were designed especially to trip a man carrying a heavy load, it would be a mangrove with its tangle of roots. I walked under a low tree that had a pair of man of war birds nesting in its top. They showed no fear as they cocked their heads and looked down from their bulky stick nest. The male saw little of interest about me and began inflating his large red throat pouch to impress his mate. He slowly extended his huge seven-foot wingspan and clicked his long hooked beak. As a boy, I had seen similar man-o'-war birds sailing high over gulf shores near Mobile, but never had I seen them this close. Several large white birds, similar to egrets, also perched nearby, but I couldn't identify them. My brief escape from reality ended abruptly, when a buddy scolded in a low voice, Sledgehammer, what the hell are you staring at them birds for? You want to get separated from the patrol? as he motioned vigorously for me to hurry. He thought I'd lost my senses, and he was right. That was neither the time nor the place for something as utterly peaceful and ethereal as bird watching. But I had had a few delightful and refreshing moments of fantasy and escape from the horror of human activities on Peleliu. We moved on and finally halted near an abandoned Japanese machine gun bunker built of coconut logs and coral rock. This bunker served as our patrol CP. We deployed around it and dug in. The area was just a few feet above the water level, and the coral was fairly loose. We dug the mortar gun pit within a few feet of the swamp water, about 30 feet from the bunker. Visibility through swamp was limited to a few feet by the dense tangle of mangrove roots on three sides of the patrol's defense perimeter. We didn't register in the gun because we had to maintain absolute quiet at all times. If we made a noise, we would lose the element of surprise should the Japanese try to come across the area. We simply aimed the mortar in the direction we would be most likely to fire. We ate our rations, checked our weapons, and prepared for a long night. We received the password as darkness settled on us, and a drizzling rain began. We felt isolated, listening to moisture dripping from the trees and splashing softly into the swamp. It was the darkest night I ever saw. The overcast sky was as black as the dripping mangroves that walled us in. I had the sensation of being in a great black hole and reached out to touch the sides of the gun pit to orient myself. Slowly, the reality of it all formed in my mind. We were expendable. It was difficult to accept. We come from a nation and a culture that values life and the individual. To find oneself in a situation where your life seems of little value is the ultimate in loneliness. 
it is a humbling experience. Most of the combat veterans had already grappled with this realization on Guadalcanal or Gloucester. But it struck me out in that swamp. George Surrett, a Gloucester veteran, was in the gun pit with me, and we tried to cheer each other up. In low tones, he talked of his boyhood in Texas and about Gloucester. Word came that Haney was crawling along checking positions. What's the password? whispered Haney as he crawled up to us. George and I both whispered the password. Good, said Haney. You guys be on alert, you hear? Okay, Haney, we said. He crawled over to the CP, where I assumed he settled down. I guess he'll be still for a while now, I said. Hope the hell you're right, answered George. Well, I wasn't, because in less than an hour, Haney made the rounds again. What's the password? He whispered as he poked his head up to the edge of our hole. We told him. Good, he said. You guys check your weapons. Got around in each chamber? He asked each of us. We answered yes. Okay, stand by with that mortar. If the nips come through this swamp at high port with fixed bayonets, you'll need to fire HE and flares as fast as you can. He crawled off. Wish that Asiatic old boy would settle down. He makes me nervous. He acts like we are a bunch of green boots, my companion growled. George was a cool-headed, self-possessed veteran, and he spoke my sentiments. Haney was making me jittery, too. Weary hours dragged on. We strained our eyes and ears in the dipping blackness for indications of enemy movement. We heard the jungle sounds caused by animals. A splash as something fell into the water made my heart pound and caused every muscle to tighten. Haney's inspection tours got worse. He obviously was getting more nervous with each hour. I wish to hell Hillbilly would grab him by that stack and swivel and anchor him in the CP, George mumbled. The luminous dial of my wristwatch showed the time was after midnight. In the CP, a low voice sounded, Oh, ah, oh, and trailed off, only to repeat the sound louder. What's that? I asked George anxiously. Sounds like some guy having a nightmare, he replied nervously. They sure as hell better shut him up before every nip in this damn swamp knows our position. We heard someone moving and thrashing around in the CP. Knock it off, several men whispered near us. Quiet that man down, Hillbilly ordered in a stern low voice. Help, help, oh God, help me, shouted the wild voice. The poor Marine had cracked up completely. The stress of combat had finally shattered his mind. They were trying to calm him down, but he kept thrashing around. In a firm voice filled with compassion, Hillbilly was trying to reassure the man that he was going to be all right. The effort failed. Our comrade's tragically tortured mind had slipped over the brink. He screamed more loudly. Someone pinioned the man's arms to his sides, and he screamed to the Doberman pincher. Help me, dog! The Japs have got me! The Japs have got me and they're gonna throw me in the ocean! I heard the sickening crunch of a fist against the jaw as someone tried to knock the man unconscious. It didn't faze him. He fought like a wildcat, yelling and screaming at the top of his voice. Our corpsman then gave him an injection of morphine in the hope of sedating him. It had no effect. More morphine. It had no effect either. Veterans though they were, 
The men were all getting jittery over the noise they believed would announce our exact location to any enemy in the vicinity. Hit him with the flat of that entrenching shovel, a voice commanded in the CP. A horrid thud announced that the command was obeyed. The poor man finally became silent. Christ almighty, what a pity, said a marine in a neighboring foxhole. You said that right, but if the goddamn nips don't know we're here, after all that yelling, they'll never know, his buddy said. A tense silence settled over the patrol. The horror of the whole affair stimulated Haney to check our positions frequently. He acted like some hyperactive demon and cautioned us endlessly to be on the alert. When welcome dawn finally came, after a seemingly endless blackness, we all had frayed nerves. I walked the few paces over to the CP to find out what I could. The man was dead. Covered with his poncho, his body lay next to the bunker. The agony and distress etched on the strong faces of Hillbilly, Hank, and the others in the CP revealed the personal horror of the night. Several of these men had received, or would receive, decorations for bravery in combat, but I never saw such agonized expressions on their faces as that morning in the swamp. They had done what any of us would have had to do under similar circumstances. Cruel chance had thrust the deed upon them. Hillbilly looked at the radio man and said, I'm taking this patrol in. Get battalion for me. The radio man turned his big pack-sized radio and got the battalion CP. Hillbilly told the battalion CO, Major Gustafsson, that he wanted to bring in the patrol. We could hear the major tell Hillbilly he thought we should stay put for a couple of days until G2 could determine the disposition of the Japanese. Hillbilly, a first lieutenant, calmly disagreed, saying we hadn't fired a shot, but because of circumstances, we all had a pretty bad case of nerves. He felt strongly that we should come in. I saw several old salts raise their eyebrows and smile as Hillbilly stated his opinion. To our relief, Gus agreed with him. I have always thought it was probably because of his respect for Hillbilly's judgment. I'll send a relief column with a tank so you won't have any trouble coming in, said the Major's voice. We all felt comforted. The word went rapidly through the patrol that we were going in. Everyone breathed easier. In about an hour, we heard a tank coming. As it forced its way through the thick growth, we saw familiar faces of company came in with it. We placed the body on the tank, and we returned to the company's lines. I never heard an official word about the death thereafter. Relief for the First Marines Over the next few days, the 5th Marines patrolled most of the Southern Claw. We had set up defensive positions to prevent any possible counter-landing by the Japanese along the exposed southern beaches. On about 25 September, D plus 10, the battered 1st Marine Regiment was relieved by the U.S. Army's 321st Infantry Regiment of the 81st Infantry Division. 
The first Marines moved into our area, where they were to await a ship to return them to Pavuvu. We picked up our gear and moved out from the relative quiet of the beach to board trucks that would speed our regiment to a position straddling the West Road. From there, we would attack northward, along the western side of the ridges. As we walked along one side of a narrow road, the first Marines filed along the other side to take over our area. I saw some familiar faces as the three decimated battalions trudged past us. But I was shocked at the absence of so many others who I knew in that regiment. During the frequent halts typical to the movement of one unit into the position of another, we exchanged greetings with buddies and asked about the fate of mutual friends. We in the 5th Marines had many a dead or wounded friend to report about from our ranks. But the men in the 1st Marines had so many, it was appalling. How many men left in your company? I asked an old Camp Elliot buddy in the 1st Marines. He looked at me warily, with bloodshot eyes, and choked as he said, Twenty is all that's left in the whole company, Sledgehammer. They nearly wiped us out. I'm the only one left out of the old bunch in my company that was with us in mortar school at Elliot. I could only shake my head and bite my lip to keep from getting choked up. See you on Pavuvu, I said. Good luck, he said, in a dull, resigned tone that sounded as though he thought I might not make it. What once had been companies in the 1st Marines looked like platoons. Platoons looked like squads. I saw few officers. I couldn't help wondering if the same fate awaited the 5th Marines on those dreadful ridges. Twenty bloody, grueling, terrible days and nights later. On 15 October, D plus 30, my regiment would be relieved. Its ranks would be just about as decimated as those we were filing past. We boarded trucks that carried us southward along the East Road, then some distance northward along the West Road. As we bumped and jolted past the airfield, we were amazed at all the work the Seabees, Naval Construction Battalions, had accomplished on the field. Heavy construction equipment was everywhere, and we saw hundreds of service troops living in tents and going about their duties as though they were in Hawaii or Australia. Several groups of men, Army and Marine service troops, watched our dusty truck convoy go by. They wore neat caps and dungarees, were clean-shaven, and seemed relaxed. They eyed us curiously, as though we were wild animals in a circus parade. I looked at my buddies in the truck and saw why. The contrast between us and the onlookers was striking. We were armed, helmeted, unshaven, filthy, tired, and haggard. The sight of clean, comfortable non-combatants was depressing. And we tried to keep up morale by discussing the show of U.S. material power and technology we saw. We got off the trucks somewhere up the west road parallel to the section of the ridges on the right that was in American hands. We heard firing on the closest ridge. The troops I saw along the road as we unloaded were army infantrymen 
from the 321st Infantry Regiment, veterans of Angwar. As I exchanged a few remarks with some of these men, I felt a deep comradeship and respect for them. Reporters and historians like to write about inter-service rivalry among military men. It certainly exists, but I found that frontline combatants in all branches of the services showed a sincere, mutual respect when they faced the same danger and misery. Combat soldiers and sailors might call us gyrenes, and we called them dog faces and swabbies, but we respected each other completely. After the relief of First Marines, a new phase of the fight for Peleliu began. No longer would the Marines suffer prohibitive casualties in fruitless frontal assaults from the south against the ridges. Rather, they would sweep up the western coast around the enemy's last-ditch defenses in search of a better route into the final pocket of resistance. Although the bitter battle for Peleliu would drag on for another two months, the 1st Marine Division seized all of the terrain of strategic value in the first week of bitter fighting. In a series of exhausting assaults, the division had taken the vital airfield, the commanding terrain above it, and all of the islands south and east of Umerbrogol Mountain. Yet the cost had been high, 3,946 casualties. The division had lost one regiment as an effective fighting unit, and had severely depleted the strength of its other two. Chapter 5 Another Amphibious Assault The 5th Marines now had the mission to secure the northern part of the island, that is, the upper part of the larger Lobster Claw. Following that shore, the regiment was to move south again, on the eastern side of the Umenbragel ridges, to complete the isolation and encirclement. Most of us in the ranks never saw a map of Peleliu, except during training on Pavuvu, and had never heard the ridge system referred to by its correct name, Umenbragel Mountain. We usually referred to the whole ridge system as Bloody Nose, Bloody Nose Ridge, or simply, the ridges. As we moved through the army lines, Japanese machine guns were raking the crest of the ridge on our right. The slugs and bluish-white tracers pinned down the American troops on the ridge, but passed high above us on the road. The terrain was flat and sparsely wooded. Tanks supported us, and we were fired on by small arms, artillery, and mortars from the high coral ridges to our right and from Ngesibus Island, a few hundred yards north of Peleliu. Our battalion turned right at the junction of the West Road and East Road, headed south along the ladder, and stopped at dusk. As usual, there wasn't much digging in as such, mostly finding some crater or depression and piling rocks around it for what protection we could get. I was ordered to carry a five-gallon can of water over to the company CP. When I got there, Akak was studying a map by the light of a tiny flashlight that his runner shielded with another folded map. The company's radio man was sitting with him, quietly tuning his radio and calling an artillery battery of the 11th Marines. Putting the water can down, I sat on it and watched my skipper with admiration. Never before had I regretted so profoundly my lack of artistic talent and inability to draw the scene before me. The tiny flashlight faintly illuminated Captain Haldane's face 
as he studied the map. His big jaw, covered with a charcoal stubble of beard, jutted out. His heavy brow wrinkled with concentration just below the rim of his helmet. The radio man handed the phone to Akak. He requested a certain number of rounds of 75mm HE to be fired out to Company K's front. A Marine on the other end of the radio questioned the need for the request. Haldane answered pleasantly and firmly, Maybe so, but I want my boys to feel secure. Shortly, the 75s came whining overhead and started bursting in the dark, thick growth across the road. Next day, I told several men what Akak had said. That's the skipper for you. Always thinking of the troops' feelings, was the way one man summed it up. Several hours passed. It was my turn to be on watch in our hole. Snafu slept fitfully and ground his teeth audibly, which he usually did during sleeping combat. The white coral road shone brightly in the pale moonlight as I strained my eyes looking across into the wall of dark growth on the other side. Suddenly, two figures sprang up from a shallow ditch directly across the road from me. With arms waving wildly, yelling and babbling hoarsely in Japanese, they came. My heart skipped a beat, then began pounding like a drum as I flipped off the safety of my carbine. One enemy soldier angled to my right, raced down the road a short distance, crossed over and disappeared into a foxhole in the line of the company on our right flank. I focused on the other. Swinging a bayonet over his head, he headed at me. I dared not fire at him yet, because directly between us was a foxhole with two marines in it. If I fired just as the marine on watch rose up to meet the Japanese intruder, my bullet would surely hit a comrade in the back. The thought flashed through my mind. Why doesn't Sam or Bill fire at him? With a wild yell, the Japanese jumped into the hole with the two Marines. A frantic, desperate, hand-to-hand struggle ensued, accompanied by the most gruesome combination of curses, wild babbling, animalistic guttural noises, and grunts. Sounds of men hitting each other and thrashing around came from the foxhole. I saw a figure pop out of the hole and run a few steps towards the CP. In the pale moonlight, I then saw a Marine nearest the running man jump up. Holding his rifle by the muzzle and swinging it like a baseball bat, he blasted the infiltrator with a smashing blow. From our right, where the Japanese had gone into the company on our flank, came hideous, agonized, and prolonged screams that defied description. Those wild, primitive, brutish yellings unnerved me more than what was happening within my own field of vision. Finally, a rifle shot rang out from the foxhole in front of me, and I heard Sam say, I got him. The figure that had been clubbed by the rifle lay groaning on the deck, about twenty feet to the left of my hole. The yelling over to our right ceased abruptly. By this time, of course, everyone was on the alert. How many nips were there? asked a sergeant near me. I saw two, I answered. There must have been more someone else put in. No, I insisted. Only two came across the road here. One of them ran to the right, where all that yelling was, and the other jumped into the hole where Sam shot him. Well then, if there were just those two nips, what's all the groaning over here then? He asked, indicating the man felled by the rifle butt. I don't know. 
But I didn't see but two nips, and I'm sure of it, I said adamantly, with an insistence that has given me peace of mind ever since. A man in a nearby hole said, I'll check it out. Everyone sat still as he crawled to the groaning man in the shadows. A forty-five pistol shot rang out. The moaning stopped, and the Marine returned to his hole. A few hours later, as objects around me became faintly visible with the dawn, I noticed that the still form lying to my left didn't appear Japanese. It was either an enemy in Marine dungarees and leggings, or it was a Marine. I went over to find out which. Before I got to the prone body, its identity was obvious to me. My God, I said in horror. Several men looked at me and asked what was the matter. It's Bill, I said. An officer and an NCO came over from the CP. Did he get shot by one of those Japs? asked the sergeant. I didn't answer. Just looked at him with a blank stare and felt sick. I looked at the man who had crawled past me to check on the groaning man in the dark. He had shot Bill through the temple, mistakenly assuming him to be a Japanese. Bill hadn't told any of us he was leaving his foxhole. As the realization of his fatal mistake hit him, the man's face turned ashen. His jaw trembled, and he looked as though he were going to cry. Man that he was, though, he went straight over and reported to the CP. Akak sent for and questioned several men who were dug in nearby, including myself, to ascertain exactly what had happened. Akak was seated off to himself. At Eastledge, he said. Do you know what happened last night? I told him I had a pretty good idea. Tell me exactly what you saw. I told him making clear I had seen two, and only two, Japanese, and had said so at the time. I also told him where I saw those enemy soldiers go. Do you know who killed Bill? The captain asked. Yes, I said. Then he told me it had been a tragic mistake that anyone could have made under the circumstances, and never to discuss it or mention the man's name. He dismissed me. As far as the men were concerned, the villain in the tragedy was Sam. At the time of the incident, Sam was supposed to be on watch while Bill was taking his turn at getting much-needed sleep. It was routine that at a pre-agreed time, the man on watch woke his buddy and, after reporting anything he had seen or heard, took his turn at sleep. This standard procedure in combat on the front line was based on a fundamental creed of faith and trust. You could depend on your buddy. He could depend on you. It extended beyond your foxhole, too. We felt secure, knowing that one man in each hole was on watch through the night. Sam had betrayed that basic trust and had committed an unforgivable breach of faith. He went to sleep on watch while on the line. As a result, his buddy died, and another man would bear the heavy burden of knowing that. Accidental though it was, he had pulled the trigger. Sam admitted that he might have dozed off. The men were extremely hard on him for what had happened. He was visibly remorseful, 
but it made no difference to the others who openly blamed him. He whined and said he was too tired to stay awake on watch, but he only got sworn at by men who were equally tired yet reliable. We all liked Bill a great deal. He was a nice young guy, probably in his teens. On the neatly typewritten muster roll for the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, on 25 September 1944, one reads these stark words. William S. Killed in action against the enemy. Wound, gunshot, head. Remains interred in grave number 3M. So simply stated. Such an economy of words. But to someone who was there, they convey a tragic story. What a waste. The Japanese who had come across the road in front of me were probably members of what the enemy called a close-quarter combat unit. The enemy soldier, shot by Sam, was not dressed or equipped like their typical infantrymen. Rather, he wore only tropical khaki shorts, short-sleeved shirt, and tabby footwear. Split-toed, rubber-soled canvas shoes. He carried only his bayonet. Why he entered our line where he did may have been pure accident, or he may have had an eye on our mortar. His comrade angled off toward the right near a machine gun on our flank. Mortars and machine guns were favorite targets for infiltrators on the front lines. To the rear, they went after heavy mortars, communications, and artillery. Before Company K moved out, I went down the road to the next company to see what had happened during the night. I learned that those blood-chilling screams had come from the Japanese I had seen run to the right. He had jumped into a foxhole where he met an alert Marine. In the ensuing struggle, each had lost his weapon. The desperate Marine had jammed his forefinger into the enemy's eye socket and killed him. Such was the physical horror and brutish reality of war for us. In Gaysibus Island Early the next morning, our battalion made a successful assault on a small hill on the narrow neck of northern Peleliu. Because of its isolated position, it lacked the mutual support from surrounding caves that made most of the ridges on the island impregnable. At this time, the rest of the regiment was getting a lot of enemy fire from Ngesibus Island. The word was that several days earlier, the Japanese had slipped reinforcements by barge down to Peleliu from the larger islands to the north. Some of the barges had been shot up and sunk by the Navy but several hundred enemy troops got ashore. It was a real blow to our morale to hear this. Sounds just like Guadalcanal, said a veteran. About the time we think we got the bastards boxed in, the damn nips bring in reinforcements, and it'll go on and on. Yeah, said another. And once them slant-eyed bastards get in these caves around here, it'll be hell to pay. On 27 September, Army troops took over our positions. We moved northward. Our battalion is ordered to hit the beach on Nagasibus Island tomorrow, an officer told us. I shuddered as I recalled the beachhead we had made on 15 September. The battalion moved into an area near the northern peninsula and dug in for the night in a quiet area. It was sandy, open, and had some shattered, drooping palms. 
We didn't know what to expect on Engasibus. I prayed the landing wouldn't be a repeat of the Holocaust of D-Day. Early in the morning of 28 September, D plus three, we squared away our gear and stood by to board the Amtraks that would take us across the 500 to 700 yards of shallow reef to Engasibus. We'll probably get another Battlestar for this beachhead, said a man enthusiastically. No, we won't, answered another. It's still just a part of the Peleliu operation. The hell you say? It's still another beachhead, the first man responded. I don't make the regulation, old buddy, but you check with the gunny, and I'll bet you I'm right. Several mumbled comments came out about how stingy the high command was in authorizing battle stars, which were little enough compensation for combat duty. We boarded the tractors and tried to suppress our fear. Ships were firing on Engasibus, and we saw Marine F-4U Corsair fighter planes approaching from the Peleliu airfield to the south. We're going to have lots of support for this one, an NCO said. Our Amtraks moved to the water's edge and waited for H-hour as the thunderous pre-landing naval gunfire bombardment covered the little island in smoke, flame, and dust. The Corsairs from Marine Fighter Squadron, VMF-114, peeled off and began bombing and strafing the beach. The engines of the beautiful blue gullwing planes roared, whined, and strained as they dove and pulled out. They plastered the beach with machine guns, bombs, and rockets. The effect was awesome as dirt, sand, and debris spewed into the air. Our marine pilots outdid themselves, and we cheered, yelled, waved, and raised our clenched fists to indicate our approval. Never during the war did I see fighter pilots take such risks by not pulling out of their dives until the very last instant. We were certain more than once that a pilot was pulling out too late and would crash. But, expert flyers that they were, they gave that beach a brutal pounding, without mishap to plane or pilot. We talked about their spectacular flying, even after the war ended. Out to sea on our left, with a cruiser, destroyers, and the other ships firing support, was a huge battleship. Someone said it was the USS Mississippi, but I never knew for sure. She ranked with the Corsairs in the mass of destruction she hurled at Engasibus. The huge shells rumbled like freight cars, as the men always used to describe the sound of projectiles from full-size battleships' 16-inch guns. At H-hour, our tractor driver revved up his engine. We moved into the water and started the assault. My heart pounded in my throat. Would my luck hold out? The Lord is my shepherd. I prayed quietly and squeezed my carbine stock. To our relief, we received no fire as we approached the island. When my Amtrak lurched to a stop well up on the beach, the tailgate went down with a bump, and we scrambled out. With its usual din and thunder, the bombardment moved inland ahead of us. Some company K-Marines on the beach were already firing into pillboxes and bunkers and dropping in grenades. With several other men, I headed inland a short distance. But as we got to the edge of the airstrip, we had to dive for cover. A Nambu, Japanese light machine gun, had cut loose on us. A buddy and I huddled behind a coral rock 
as the machine gun slug zipped viciously overhead. He was on my right. Because the rock was small, we pressed shoulder to shoulder, hugging it for protection. Suddenly there was a sickening crack, like someone snapping a large stick. My friend screamed, Oh God, I'm hit! And lurched over onto his right side. He grabbed his left elbow with his right hand, groaning and grimacing with pain, as he thrashed around kicking up dust. A bypass sniper had seen us behind the rock and shot him. The bullet hit him in the left arm, which was pressed tightly against my right arm as we sought cover from the machine gun out front. The Nambu was firing a bit high, but there was no doubt the sniper had his sights right on us. We were between a rock and a hard place. I dragged him around the rock out of sight of the sniper as the Nambu bullets whizzed overhead. I yelled, Corman! And Can Doc Caswell, the mortar section corpsman, crawled over, opening his pouch to get at his first aid supplies as he came. Another man also came over to see if he could help. While I cut away the bloody dungaree sleeve from the injured arm with my K-bar, Doc began to tend the wound. As he knelt over his patient, the other Marine placed his K-bar under the injured man's pack strap and gave a violent upward jerk to cut away the shoulder pack. The razor-sharp blade sliced through the thick web pack strap as though it were a piece of string. But before the Marine could arrest its upward motion, the knife cut Doc in the face to the bone. The Doc recoiled in pain from the impact of the knife thrust. Blood flowed down his face from the nasty gas to the left of his nose. He regained his balance immediately and returned to his work on the smashed arm as though nothing had happened. The clumsy Marine cursed himself for his blunder as I asked Doc what I could do to help him. Despite considerable pain, Doc kept at his work. In a quiet, calm voice, he told me to get a battle dressing out of his pouch and press it firmly against his face to stop the bleeding while he finished work on the wounded arm. Such was the selfless dedication of the Navy hospital corpsman who served in Marine infantry units. It was little wonder that we held them in such high esteem. Doc later got his face tended and was back with the mortar section in a matter of a few hours. While I did as Doc directed, I yelled at two Marines coming our way and pointed towards the sniper. They took off quickly toward the beach and hailed a tank. By the time a stretcher team came up and took my wounded friend, the two men trotted by, waved, and one said, We got the bastard. He ain't gonna shoot nobody else. The Nambu had ceased firing, and an NCO signaled us forward. Before moving out, I looked toward the beach and saw the walking wounded wading back toward Peleliu. After we moved farther inland, we received orders to set up the mortars on the inland side of a Japanese pillbox and prepare to fire on the enemy to our company's front. We asked Company K's gunnery sergeant, Gunnery Sergeant W.R. Saunders, if he knew of any enemy troops in the bunker. It appeared undamaged. He said some of the men had thrown grenades through the ventilators, and he was sure there were no live enemy inside. Snafu and I began to set up our mortar about five feet from the bunker. Number one mortar was about five yards to our left. Corporal R.V. Bergen was getting the sound-powered phone hooked up to receive fire orders from Sergeant Johnny Marmette, who was observing. I heard something behind me in the pillbox. 
Japanese were talking in low, excited voices. Metal rattled against an iron grating. I grabbed my carbine and yelled, Bergen, there's nibs in that pillbox. All the men readied their weapons as Bergen came over to have a look, kidding me with, Shuck, Sledgehammer, you're cracking up. He looked into the ventilator port directly behind me. It was rather small, approximately six inches by eight inches, and covered with iron bars about a half inch apart. What he saw brought forth a stream of curses in his best Texas style against all Nippon. He stuck his carbine muzzle through the bars, fired two quick shots, and yelled, I got him right in the face! The Japanese inside the pillbox began jabbering loudly. Bergen was gritting his teeth and calling the enemy SOBs while he fired more shots through the opening. Every man in the mortar section was ready for trouble as soon as Bergen fired the first shot. It came in the form of a grenade, tossed out of the end entrance to my left. It looked as big as a football to me. I yelled, Grenade! and dove behind the sand breastwork protecting the entrance at the end of the pillbox. The sandbank was about four feet high and L-shaped to protect the entrance from fire from the front and flanks. The grenade exploded, but no one was hit. The Japanese tossed out several more grenades without causing us injury, because we were hugging the deck. Most of the men crawled around to the front of the pillbox and crouched close to it between the firing ports, so the enemy inside couldn't fire at them. John Redifer and Vincent Santos jumped on top. Things got quiet. I was nearest the door, and Bergen yelled to me, Look in and see what's in there, Sledgehammer. Being trained to take orders without question, I raised my head above the sandbank and peered into the door of the bunker. It nearly cost me my life. Not more than six feet from me crouched a Japanese machine gunner. His eyes were black dots in a tan, impassive face, topped with a familiar mushroom helmet. The muzzle of his light machine gun stared at me like a gigantic third eye. Fortunately for me, I reacted first. Not having time to get my carbine into firing position, I jerked my head down so fast my helmet almost flew off. A split second later, he fired a burst of six or eight rounds. The bullets tore a furrow through the bank just above my head and showered sand on me. My ears rang from the muzzle blast and my heart seemed to be in my throat choking me. I knew damn well I had to be dead. He just couldn't have missed me at that range. A million thoughts raced through my terrified mind of how my folks had nearly lost their youngest, of what a stupid thing I had done to look directly into a pillbox full of Japanese without even having my carbine at the ready, and of just how much I hated the enemy anyway. Many a Marine veteran had already lost his life on Peleliu for making less of a mistake than I had just made. Bergen yelled, and asked if I were all right. A hoarse squawk was all the answer I could muster, but his voice brought me to my senses. I crawled around to the front, then up on top of the bunker before the enemy machine gunner could have another try at me. Redifer yelled, They've got an automatic weapon in there! Snafu disagreed, and a spirited argument ensued. Redifer pointed out that there surely was an automatic weapon in there, and that I should know because it came close to blowing off my head. But Snafu was adamant. Like much of what I experienced in combat, this exchange was unreal. Here we were, 12 Marines with a bull by the tail 
in the form of a well-built concrete pillbox containing an unknown number of Japanese with no friendly troops near us and Snafu and Redifer, veterans, in a violent argument. Bergen shouted, Knock it off! And they shut up. Redifer and I lay prone on top of the bunker, just above the door. We knew we had to get the Japanese while they were bottled up, or they would come out at us with knives and bayonets, a thought none of us relished. Redifer and I were close enough to the door to place grenades down the opening and move back before they exploded. But the Japanese invariably tossed them back at us before the explosion. I had an irrepressible urge to do just that. Brief as our face-to-face meeting had been, I had quickly developed a feeling of strong, personal hate for that machine gunner who had nearly blasted my head off my shoulders. My terror subsided into a cold, homicidal rage and a vengeful desire to get even. Redifer and I gingerly peeped down over the door. The machine gunner wasn't visible, but we looked at three long Arasaka rifle barrels with bayonets fixed. Those bayonets seemed ten feet long to me. Their owners were jabbering excitedly, apparently planning to rush out. Redifer acted quickly. He held his carbine by the barrel and used the butt to knock down the rifles. The Japanese jerked their weapons back into the bunker with much chattering. Behind us, Santos yelled that he had located a ventilator pipe without a cover. He began dropping grenades into it. Each one exploded in the pillbox beneath us with a muffled bam. When he had used all of his, Redifer and I handed him our grenades while we kept watch at the door. After Santos had dropped in several, we stood up and began to discuss with Bergen and the others the possibility that anyone could still be alive inside. We didn't know at the time that the inside was subdivided by concrete baffles for extra protection. We got our answer when two grenades were tossed out. Luckily for the men with Bergen, the grenades were thrown out the back. Santos and I shouted a warning and hit the deck on the sand on top of the pillbox, but Redifer merely raised his arm over his face. He took several fragments in the forearm but wasn't wounded seriously. Bergen yelled, Let's get the hell out of here and get a tank to help us knock this damn thing out. He ordered us to pull back to some craters about 40 yards from the pillbox. We sent a runner to the beach to bring up a flamethrower and an Amtrak armed with a 75mm gun. As we jumped into the crater, three Japanese soldiers ran out of the pillbox door, past the sandbank, and headed for a thicket. Each carried his bayonet rifle in his right hand and held up his pants with his left hand. This action so amazed me that I stared in disbelief and didn't fire my carbine. I wasn't afraid, as I had been under shell fire, just filled with wild excitement. My buddies were more effective than I and cut down the enemy with a hail of bullets. They congratulated each other while I chided myself for being more curious about strange Japanese customs than with being combat effective. The Amtrak, rattling toward us, by this time was certainly a welcome sight. As it pulled into position, several more Japanese raced from the pillbox in a tight group. Some held their bayoneted rifles in both hands, but some of them carried their rifles in one hand and held up their pants with the other. I had overcome my initial surprise and joined the others and the Amtrak machine gun in firing away at them. They tumbled onto the hot coral 
in a forlorn tangle of bare legs, falling rifles, and rolling helmets. We felt no pity for them, but exulted over their fate. We had been shot at and shelled too much and had lost too many friends to have compassion for the enemy when we had him cornered. The Amtrak took up a position on a line even with us. Its commander, a sergeant, consulted Bergen. Then, the turret gunner fired three armored, piercing, 75-millimeter shells at the side of the pillbox. Each time, our ears rang with the familiar wham-bam as the report of the gun was followed quickly by the explosion of the shell on a target at close range. The third shell tore a hole entirely through the pillbox. Fragments kicked up dust around our abandoned packs and mortars on the other side. On the side nearest us, the hole was about four feet in diameter. Bergen yelled to the tankers to cease firing, lest our equipment be damaged. Someone remarked that if fragments hadn't killed those inside, the concussion surely had. But even before the dust settled, I saw a Japanese soldier appear at the blasted opening. He was grim determination personified as he drew back his arm to throw a grenade at us. My carbine was already up. When he appeared, I lined up my sights on his chest and began squeezing off shots. As the first bullet hit him, his face contorted in agony. His knees buckled. The grenade slipped from his grasp. All the men near me, including the Amtrak machine gunner, had seen him and began firing. The soldier collapsed in the fusillade, and the grenade went off at his feet. Even in the midst of these fast-moving events, I looked down at my carbine with sober reflection. I had just killed a man at close range. That I had seen clearly the pain on his face when my bullets hit him came as a jolt. It suddenly made the war a very personal affair. The expression on that man's face filled me with shame and then disgust for the war and all the misery it was causing. My combat experience thus far made me realize that such sentiments for an enemy soldier were the maudlin meditations of a fool. Look at me, a member of the 5th Marine Regiment, one of the oldest, finest, and toughest regiments in the Marine Corps, feeling ashamed because I had shot a damned foe before he could throw a grenade at me. I felt like a fool and was thankful my buddies couldn't read my thoughts. Bergen's order to us to continue firing into the opening interrupted my musings. We kept up a steady fire into the pillbox to keep the Japanese pinned down while the flamethrower came up, carried by Corporal Womack from Mississippi. He was a brave, good-natured guy, and popular with the troops. But he was one of the fiercest-looking Marines I ever saw. He was big and husky, with a fiery red beard, well-powdered with white coral dust. He reminded me of some wild Viking. I was glad we were on the same side. Stooped under the heavy tanks on his back, Womack approached the pillbox with his assistant just out of the line of fire. 
when they got about 15 yards from the target, we ceased firing. The assistant reached up and turned a valve on the flamethrower. Womack then aimed the nozzle at the opening made by the 75mm gun. He pressed the trigger. With a whoosh, the flame leaped at the opening. Some muffled screams. Then, all quiet. Even the stoic Japanese couldn't suppress the agony of death by fire and suffocation. But they were no more likely to surrender to us than we would have been to them had we ever been confronted with the possibility of surrender. In fighting the Japanese, surrender was not one of our options. Amid our shouts of appreciation, Womack and his buddies started back to battalion headquarters to await the summons to break another deadlock somewhere on the battlefield. Or lose their lives trying. The job of a flamethrower gunner was probably the least desirable of any open to a marine infantryman. Carrying tanks with about 70 pounds of flammable, jellied gasoline through enemy fire over rugged terrain and hot weather to squirt flames into the mouth of a cave or pillbox was an assignment that few survived, but all carried out with magnificent courage. We left the craters and approached the pillbox cautiously. Bergen ordered some of the men to cover it, while the rest of us looked over the fallen Japanese to be sure none were still alive. Wounded Japanese invariably exploded grenades when approached, if possible, killing their enemies along with themselves. All of them were dead. The pillbox was out of action, thanks to the flamethrower and the Amtrak. There were seven enemy dead inside and ten outside. Our packs and mortars were only slightly damaged by the fire from the Amtrak 75mm gun. Of the twelve Marine mortarmen, our only casualties were Redifer and Leslie Porter, who had taken some grenade fragments. They weren't hurt seriously. Our luck in the whole affair had been incredible. If the enemy had surprised us and rushed us, we might have been in a bad fix. During this lull, the men stripped the packs and pockets of the enemy dead for souvenirs. This was a gruesome business, but Marines executed it in a most methodical manner. Helmet headbands were checked for flags, packs and pockets were emptied, and gold teeth were extracted. Sabers, pistols, and harikari knives were highly prized and carefully cared for until they could be sent to the folks back home or sold to some pilot or sailor for a fat price. Rifles and other larger weapons usually were rendered useless and thrown aside. They were too heavy to carry in addition to our own equipment. They would be picked up later as fine souvenirs by the rear echelon troops. The men in the rifle companies had a lot of fun joking about the hair-raising stories these people, who had never seen a live Japanese or been shot at, would probably tell after the war. The men gloated over, compared, and often swapped their prizes. It was a brutal, ghastly ritual, the likes of which have occurred since ancient times on battlefields, where the antagonists have possessed a profound mutual hatred. It was uncivilized as is all war, and was carried out with that particular savagery that characterized the struggle between the Marines and the Japanese.
it wasn't simply souvenir hunting or looting the enemy dead. It was more like Indian warriors taking scalps. While I was removing a bayonet and scabbard from a dead Japanese, I noticed a Marine near me. He wasn't in our mortar section, but it happened by and wanted to get in on the spoils. He came up to me, dragging what I assumed to be a corpse. But the Japanese wasn't dead. He had been wounded severely in the back and couldn't move his arms. Otherwise, he would have resisted to his last breath. The Japanese's mouth glowed with huge gold crown teeth, and his captor wanted him. He put the point of his K-bar on the base of a tooth and hit the handle with the palm of his hand. Because the Japanese was kicking his feet and thrashing about, the knife point glanced off the tooth and sank deeply into the victim's mouth. The Marine cursed him and with a slash cut his cheeks open to each ear. He put his foot on the sufferer's lower jaw and tried again. Blood poured out of the soldier's mouth. He made a gurgling noise and thrashed wildly. I shouted, put the man out of his misery. All I got for an answer was a cussing out. Another Marine ran up, put a bullet in the enemy soldier's brain, and ended his agony. The scavenger grumbled and continued extracting his prizes, undisturbed. Such was the incredible cruelty that decent men could commit when reduced to a brutish existence in their fight for survival amid the violent death, terror, tension, fatigue, and filth that was the infantryman's war. Our code of conduct toward the enemy differed drastically from that prevailing back at the Division CP. The struggle for survival went on day after weary day, night after terrifying night. One remembers vividly the landings and the beachheads and the details of the first two or three days and nights of a campaign. After that, time lost all meaning. A lull of hours or days seemed but a fleeting instant of heaven-sent tranquility. Lying in a foxhole, sweating out an enemy artillery or mortar barrage, or waiting to dash across open ground under machine gun or artillery fire, defied any concept of time. To the non-combatants, and those on the periphery of action, the war meant only boredom, or occasional excitement. But to those who entered the meat grinder itself, the war was a netherworld of horror, from which escape seemed less and less likely as casualties mounted and the fighting dragged on and on. Time had no meaning. Life had no meaning. The fierce struggle for survival in the abyss of Peleliu eroded the veneer of civilization and made savages of us all. We existed in an environment totally incomprehensible to men behind the lines, service troops, and civilians. A trip inside the pillbox by Redifer and Bergen solved the mystery of how some of the occupants had survived the grenades and shell bursts. Bergen shot a soldier inside who was feigning death. Concrete walls partitioned the bunker into compartments connected by small openings, 
Three or four enemy soldiers occupied each compartment, which had its own firing port to the outside. Each would have had to be put out of action individually had we not had the help of Womack and his flamethrower. When our gunny came by and saw the results of our encounter with the pillbox, he had thought was empty, he looked sheepish. He gazed in amazement at the enemy dead scattered around. We really razzed him about it, or rather, we gave him the nearest thing approaching the razz that we marine privates dared hand out to the austere personage of Gunnery Sergeant Saunders. I have thought often that Bergen should have been decorated for the fine leadership he exhibited in coordinating and directing the knockout of the pillbox. I'm sure men have been decorated for less. We set up our two mortars in a large crater near the now knocked out pillbox and registered in the guns for the night. The ammo carriers dug into the softer coral around the edge of the crater. An Amtrak brought up rations and a unit of fire for the company. The wind began to blow briskly, and it got cloudy and heavily overcast. As darkness settled, heavy clouds scudded across the sky. The scene reminded me of hurricane weather on the Gulf Coast back home. Not far behind us, the heat of the fire burning in the pillbox exploded Japanese grenades and small arms ammunition. All night, occasional shifts of wind blew the nauseating smell of burning flesh our way. The rain fell in torrents, and the wind blew hard. Ships fired star shells to illuminate the battlefield for our battalion. But as soon as the parachute of a star shell opened, the wind swept it swiftly along, like some invisible hand, snatching away a candle. In the few hundred yards they still held at the northern end of the island, the enemy was fairly quiet. The next morning, again with the help of tanks and Amtraks, our battalion took most of the remainder of Engesibus. Our casualties were remarkably low for the number of Japanese we killed. In mid-afternoon, we learned that an army unit would relieve us shortly and complete the job on the northern end of Engesibus. Our mortar section halted to await orders and dispersed among some open bushes. In our midst was the wreckage of a Japanese heavy machine gun and the remains of the squad that had been wiped out by Company K. The squad members had been killed in the exact positions to be occupied by such a squad, according to the book. At first glance, the dead gunner appeared about to fire his deadly weapon. He still sat bolt upright in the proper firing position behind the breech of his machine gun. Even in death, his eyes stared widely along the gun sights. Despite the vacant look of his dilated pupils, I couldn't believe he was dead. Cold chills ran along my spine. Goose flesh tickled my back. It seemed as though he was looking through me into all eternity. That at any instant, he would raise his hands, which rested in a relaxed manner on his thighs, grip the handles on the breech, and press the thumb trigger. The bright, shiny brass slugs in the strip clip appeared as ready as the gunner, anxious to speed out, to kill, and to maim more of the American devils. 
but he would rot, and they would corrode. Neither he nor his ammo could do any more for the Emperor. The crown of the gunner's skull had been blasted off, probably by one of our automatic weapons. His riddled steel helmet lay on the deck like a punctured tin can. The assistant gunner lay beside the gun. Apparently, he had just opened a small green wooden chest filled with strip clips of machine gun cartridges when he was killed. Several other Japanese soldiers, ammo carriers, lay strung out at intervals behind the gun. A Company K rifleman, who had been in the fight that knocked out the machine gun crew, sat on his helmet nearby and told us the story. The action had taken place the day before, while the mortar section was fighting at the pillbox. The rifleman said, The thing that I just couldn't believe was the way those nip ammo carriers could chop-chop around here on the double with those heavy boxes of ammo on their backs. Each ammo box had two leather straps, and each ammo carrier had a heavy box on his back with the straps around his shoulders. I lifted one of the ammo chests. It weighed more than our mortar. What the Japanese lacked in height, they certainly compensated for in muscle. I'd sure hate to have to lug that thing around, wouldn't you? Asked the Marine. When they got hit, he continued, they fell to the deck like a brick because of all that weight. As we talked, I noticed a fellow mortarman sitting next to me. He held a handful of coral pebbles in his left hand. With his right hand, he idly tossed them into the open skull of the Japanese machine gunner. Each time his pitch was true, I heard a little splash of rainwater in the ghastly receptacle. My buddy tossed the coral chunks as casually as a boy casting pebbles into a puddle on some muddy road back home. There was nothing malicious in his action. The war had so brutalized us that it was beyond belief. I noticed gold teeth glistening brightly between the lips of several of the dead Japanese lying around us. Harvesting gold teeth was one facet of stripping enemy dead that I hadn't practiced so far. But stopping beside a corpse with a particularly tempting number of shiny crowns, I took out my K-bar and bent over to make the extraction. A hand grasped me on the shoulder, and I straightened up to see who it was. What are you going to do, Sledgehammer? Asked Doc Caswell. His expression was a mix of sadness and reproach as he looked intently at me. Just thought I'd collect some gold teeth, I replied. Don't do it. Why not, Doc? You don't want to do that sort of thing. What would your folks think if they knew? Well, my dad's a doctor, and I bet he'd think it was kind of interesting, I replied, bending down to resume my task. No! The germs, Sledgehammer. You might get germs from them. I stopped and looked inquiringly at Doc and said, Germs? Gosh, I never thought of that. Yeah, you gotta be careful about germs around all these dead nips, you know, he said vehemently. 
Well, then, I guess I'd better just cut off the insignia on his collar and leave his nasty teeth alone. You think that's safe, Doc? I guess so, he replied with an approving nod. Reflecting on the episode after the war, I realized that Doc Caswell didn't really have germs in mind. He was a good friend and a fine, genuine person whose sensitivity hadn't been crushed out by the war. He was merely trying to help me retain some of mine and not become completely callous and harsh. There was little firing going on now because 3-5 was preparing to pull back as it was relieved by an army battalion. Our tanks, two of which had been parked near us, started toward the beach. As they rattled and clanked away, I hoped they weren't leaving prematurely. Suddenly, we were jolted by the terrific blast of a Japanese 75mm artillery piece slightly to our right. We flung ourselves flat on the deck. The shriek and explosion of the shell followed instantly. Fragments tore through the air. The gun fired again rapidly. Jesus, what's that? Gasped a man near me. It's an IP-75, and God is he close, another said. Each time the gun fired, I felt the shock and pressure waves from the muzzle blast. I was terror-stricken. We began to hear shouts of Corman on our right. For Christ's sake, get them tanks back up here, someone yelled. I looked toward the tanks, just in time to see several wheel around and come speeding back to help the pinned-down infantrymen. Mortar section stand by, someone yelled. We might be called to fire on the enemy gun, but as yet, we didn't know its location. The tanks went into action and almost immediately knocked out the weapon. Calls came from our right for corpsmen and stretcher bearers. Several of our ammo carriers went with the corpsmen to act as stretcher bearers. Word filtered along to us that quite a number of casualties had been caused by the terrible point-blank fire of the enemy cannon. Most of those hit were members of the company that was tied in with us on our right. Our ammo carriers and corpsmen returned shortly with a distressing account of the men next to us, caught directly in front of the Japanese gun when it opened fire from a camouflage position. When I saw one of our men's face, I knew how bad it had been. He appeared absolutely stricken with horror. I often had seen him laugh and curse the Japanese when we were under heavy shelling or scrambling out of the way of machine gun or sniper fire. Never during the entire Peleliu campaign or later during the bloody fighting on Okinawa did I see such an expression on his face. He grimaced as he described how he and the man with him put one of the casualties, someone we all knew, on a stretcher. We knew he was hit bad, and he had passed out. I tried to lift the poor guy under his shoulders, and he, pointing to the other mortarman, lifted his knees. Just as we almost got him on the stretcher, the poor guy's body came apart. God, it was awful. He and the man with him looked away as everyone groaned and slowly shook their heads. We had been terrified by the enemy gun firing point blank like that. It was an awful experience. It had been bad enough on us, 
but it was unbearable for those unfortunates who were in the direct line of fire. Our company had been off to one side and had suffered no casualties during the ordeal, but it was one of the most shocking experiences I endured during the war. As I've said earlier, to be shelled was terrifying, and to be shelled in the open, on your feet, was horrible. But to be shelled, point blank, was so shocking that it almost drove the most resilient and toughest among us to panic. Words can't convey the awesome sensation of actually feeling the muzzle blasts that accompanied the shrieks and concussions of those artillery shells fired from a gun so close by. We felt profound pity for our fellow Marines who had caught its full destructive force. During mid-afternoon, as we waited for the Army infantry, we sat numbly, looking at nothing with the bulkhead stare. The shock, horror, fear, and fatigue of fifteen days of combat were wearing us down physically and emotionally. I could see it in the dirty, bearded faces of my remaining comrades. They had a hollow-eyed, vacant look, peculiar to men under extreme stress for days and nights on end. Short but rough. Three days. Maybe four. The division CG had said before Peleliu. Now, we had been at it fifteen terrible days, with no end in sight. I felt myself choking up. I slowly turned my back to the men facing me as I sat on my helmet and put my face in my hands to try and shut out reality. I began sobbing. The harder I tried to stop, the worse it got. My body shuddered and shook. Tears flowed out of my scratchy eyes. I was sickened and revolted to see healthy young men get hurt and killed day after day. I felt I couldn't take any more. I was so terribly tired and so emotionally wrung out from being afraid for days on end that I seemed to have no reserve strength left. The dead were safe. Those who had gotten a million dollar wound were lucky. None of us left had any idea that we were just midway through what was to be a month-long ordeal for the 5th Marines and the 7th Marines. I felt a hand on my shoulder and looked up at the tired, bloodshot eyes of Duke, our lieutenant. What's the matter, Sledgehammer? He asked in a sympathetic voice. After I told him how I felt, he said, I know what you mean. I feel the same way. But take it easy. We've got to keep going. It'll be over soon. And we'll be back on Pavuvu. His understanding gave me the strength I needed. Enough strength to endure 15 more terrible days and nights. When long files of soldiers accompanied by Amtrak's, loaded with barbed wire and other supplies came by, we received orders to move out. We were glad to see those army men. As we shouldered our weapons and loads, a buddy said to me, Sure wish we could dig in behind barbed wire at night. Makes a fellow feel more secure. 
I agreed, as we walked wearily toward the beach. After crossing back to northern Peleliu on 29 September, 3-5 bivouacked east of Umerbragel Mountain in the Ingardalalak area. We were familiar with this area from the first week of the campaign. It was fairly quiet and had been the bivouac area of the shattered First Marines for about a week after they came off the line and awaited ships to take them to Pavuvu. We were able to rest, but we were uneasy. As usual, we asked about the fate of friends and other units, more often than not, with depressing results. Rumor had the 5th Marines, slated to join the 7th Marines, already fighting on those dreaded coral ridges that had been the near destruction of the 1st Marines. The men tried not to think about it as they sat around in the muggy shade, brewed hot coffee in their canteen cups, and swapped souvenirs and small talk. From the north came the constant rattle of machine guns and the rumble of shells. Chapter 6 Brave Men Lost Okay, you people. Stand by to draw rations and ammo. The battalion is going to reinforce the 7th Marines in the ridges. We received the unwelcome but inevitable news with fatalistic resignation as we squared away our weapons and gear. Our information had the casualty figure of the 7th Marines rapidly approaching that of the 1st Marines, and our own regimental strength wasn't much better than that of the 7th. All of Peleliu, except the central ridges, was now in our hands. The enemy held out in the Umerbrockel pocket, an area about 400 yards by 1,200 yards, in the ruggedest, worst part of the ridges. The terrain was so unbelievably rugged, jumbled, and confusing that I rarely knew where we were located. Only the officers had maps, so locations meant nothing in my mind. One ridge looked about like another, was about as rugged, and was defended as heavily as any other. We were usually told the name of this or that coral hide or ridge when we attacked. To me it meant only that we were attacking the same objective where other Marine battalions had been shot up previously. We were resigned to the dismal conclusion that our battalion wasn't going to leave the island unless all the Japanese were killed or we had all been hit. We merely existed from hour to hour, from day to day. Numbed by fear and fatigue, our minds thought only of personal survival. The only glimmer of hope was a million-dollar wound, or for the battle to end soon. As it dragged on and on, and casualties mounted, a sense of despair pervaded us. It seemed that the only escape was to be killed or wounded. The will for self-preservation weakened. Many men I knew became intensely fatalistic. Somehow, though, one never could quite visualize his own death. It was always the next man. But getting wounded did seem inevitable. In a rifle company, it just seemed to be a matter of time. One couldn't hope to continue to escape the law of averages forever. On 3 October, our battalion made an attack 
on the Five Sisters. A rugged coral hill mass with five sheer-walled peaks. Before the attack, the 11th Marines covered the area with artillery fire. We fired a heavy mortar barrage on the company front, and the machine guns laid down covering fire. As we ceased firing briefly, we watched the riflemen of 3-5 move forward onto the slopes before Japanese fire stopped them. We fired the mortars rapidly to give our men cover as they pulled back. The same fruitless attack was repeated the next day with the same dismal results. Each time we got orders to secure the guns after the riflemen stopped advancing, the mortar section stood by to go up as stretcher bearers. We always left a couple of men on each gun in case mortar fire was needed. We usually threw phosphorus and smoke grenades as a screen, and the riflemen covered us. But enemy snipers fired as rapidly as possible at stretcher bearers. The Japanese were merciless in this, as in everything else in combat. Because of the rugged, rock-strewn terrain and the intense heat on Peleliu, four men were needed to carry one casualty on a stretcher. Everyone in the company took his turn as a stretcher-bearer nearly every day. All hands agreed it was backbreaking, perilous work. My heart pounded from fear and fatigue each time we lifted a wounded man onto a stretcher, raised it, then stumbled and struggled across the rough ground and up and down steep inclines while enemy bullets snapped through the air and ricochets whined and pinged off the rocks. The snipers hit a stretcher bearer on more than one occasion, but luckily we always managed to drag everybody behind rocks until help came. Frequently, enemy mortars added their shells in an effort to stop us. Each time I panted and struggled with a stretcher under fire, I marveled at the attitude of the casualty. When conscious, the wounded marine seemed at ease and supremely confident we would get him out alive. With bullets and shells coming in thick and fast, I sometimes doubted any of us could make it. Even discounting the effects of shock and the morphine administered by the corpsman, the attitude of the wounded marine seemed serene. When we reached a place out of the line of fire, the men, usually, would encourage us to put him down so we could rest. If he wasn't wounded severely, we stopped and all had a smoke. We would cheer him up by asking him to think of us when he got on board the hospital ship. Invariably, the not-so-seriously hurt were in high spirits and relieved. They were on their way out of hell, and they expressed pity for those of us left behind. With the more seriously wounded and the dying, we carried the stretcher as fast as possible to an Amtrak or ambulance jeep, which then rushed them to the battalion aid station. After getting them into a vehicle, we would throw ourselves down and pant for breath. When acting as a stretcher bearer, struggling, running, crawling over terrain so rugged that sometimes the carriers on one end held the stretcher handles above their heads, while those on the other end held their handles almost on the rocks to keep the stretcher level. I was terrified that the helpless casualty might fall off onto the hard, sharp coral. I never saw this happen, but we all dreaded it. The apparent calmness of our wounded under fire stemmed in part from the confidence we shared in each other. None of us could bear the thought of leaving wounded behind. We never did, because the Japanese certainly 
would have tortured them to death. During the period between attacks by our battalion on the Five Sisters, our front line was formed on fairly level ground. The mortars were dug in some yards behind the line. The entire company was out in the open, and we knew the Japanese were watching us at all times from their lairs in the Five Sisters. We came under sniper and mortar fire only when the Japanese were sure of inflicting maximum casualties. Their fire discipline was superb. When they shot, someone usually got hit. When night came, it was like another world. Then, the enemy came out of their caves, infiltrating or creeping up on our lines to raid all night. Every night. Raids by individual enemy soldiers or small groups began as soon as darkness fell. Typically, one or more raiders slipped up close to marine positions by moving during dark periods between mortar flares or star shells. They wore tabi, and their ability to creep in silently over rough rocks strewn with pulverized vegetation was incredible. They knew the terrain perfectly. Suddenly, they rushed in, jabbering and babbling incoherent sounds, sometimes throwing a grenade, but always swinging a saber, bayonet, or knife. Their skill and daring were amazing, matched only by the cool-headed, disciplined manner in which Marines met their attacks. Strict fire discipline on our part was required to avoid shooting friends if the enemy got into a position before he was shot. All we could do was listen in the dark to the desperate, animalistic sounds and the thrashing around when a hand-to-hand -hand fight occurred. No one was allowed out of his position after dark. Each Marine maintained a keen watch while his buddy tried to sleep. Mutual trust was essential. Frequently our men were killed or wounded in these nightly fights. But we invariably killed the foe. One night so many Japanese crept around in front of the company and slipped in among the rocks and ground litter between some of the forward positions that much of the following morning was occupied with trying to kill them all. This was difficult because in any direction one fired, one might hit a Marine. The excellent discipline and control exhibited by the Marines finally got all the Japanese without any Company K casualties. The only injury that occurred was to my friend Jay's dungaree trousers. Jay walked past my foxhole with a deliberate, stiff-kneed gait and wearing a wry expression on his face. What happened to you, I asked. Oh, hell, I'll tell you later, he grinned sheepishly. Go on, tell him, Jay, another man near him yelled teasingly. Several men laughed. Jay grinned and told them to shut up. He waddled on back to the battalion like a tiny child who had soiled his pants, which was just what he had done. We all had severe cases of diarrhea by this time, and it had gotten the best of Jay. Considering what had happened, the incident really wasn't funny. But it was understandable. At daylight, Jay had slung his carbine over his shoulder and walked a short distance from his foxhole to relieve himself. As he stepped over a log, his foot came down squarely on the back of a Japanese lying in hiding. Jay reacted instantaneously, and so did the enemy soldier. Jay brought his carbine to bear on the Japanese's chest, 
As the ladder sprang to his feet, Jay pulled the trigger. Click. The firing pin was broken, and the carbine didn't fire. As the enemy soldier pulled the pin from a hand grenade, Jay threw the carbine at him. It was more an act of desperation than anything else. As Jay spun around and ran back towards us yelling, Shoot him! The Japanese threw his grenade, striking my friend in the middle of the back. It fell to the deck and lay there. A dud. The Japanese then drew his bayonet, waving it like a sword. He took off after Jay at a dead run. Jay had spotted a BAR man and fled in his direction, yelling for him to shoot the enemy. The BAR man stood up but didn't fire. The Japanese came on. Jay was running and yelling as hard as he could. After agonizing moments, the BAR man took deliberate aim at the enemy soldier's belt buckle and fired most of a 20-round magazine into him. The soldier collapsed in a heap. The blast of automatic rifle fire had cut his body nearly in two. Terrified and winded, Jay had had a close call. When he asked the BAR man why in the hell he had waited so long to fire, the character grinned. I heard him reply something to the effect that he had thought he'd just let the Japanese get a little closer to see if he could cut him in two pieces with his BAR. Jay obviously didn't appreciate his close call being used as the subject of an experiment. As all the men laughed, Jay received permission to go back to the battalion headquarters to draw a clean pair of trousers. The men kidded him a great deal about the episode, and he took it all with his usual good nature. During the entire period among the Umar-Brogol ridges, a nuisance Marine infantrymen had to contend with was the rear echelon souvenir hunters. These characters came up to the rifle companies during lulls in the fighting and poked around for any Japanese equipment they could carry off. They were easy to spot because of the striking difference between their appearance and that of the infantry. During the latter phase of the campaign, the typical infantryman wore a worried, haggard expression on his filthy, unshaven face. His bloodshot eyes were hollow and vacant from too much horror and too little sleep. His camouflaged helmet cover, if it hadn't been torn off against the rocks, was gray with coral dust and had a tear or two in it. His cotton dungaree jacket, originally green, was discolored with coral dust, filthy, greasy with rifle oil, and as stiff as canvas from being soaked alternately with rain and sweat and then drying. His elbows might be out, and his knees frequently were, from much hitting the deck on the coral rock. His boondockers were coated with gray coral dust, and his heels were worn off completely by the sharp coral. The infantryman's calloused hands were nearly blackened by weeks of accumulation of rifle oil, mosquito repellent, an oily liquid called scat, dirt, dust, and general filth. Overall, he was stooped and bent by general fatigue and excessive physical exertion. If approached closely enough for conversation, he smelled bad. The frontline infantry bitterly resented the souvenir hunters. One major in the 7th Marines made it a practice of putting them into the line if they came into his area. His infantrymen saw to it that the visitors stayed put until released to return to their respective units in the rear areas. During a lull in our attacks in the Five Sisters, I was on an ammo-carrying detail and talking with a rifleman friend after handing him some bandoliers. It was quiet. 
and we were sitting on the sides of his shallow foxhole as his buddy was bringing up K-rations. By quiet, I mean we weren't being fired on, but there was always the sound of firing somewhere on the island. Two neat, clean, fresh-looking souvenir hunters wearing green cloth fatigue caps instead of helmets and carrying no weapons walked past us, headed in the direction of the Five Sisters, several hundred yards away. When they got a few paces in front of us, one of them stopped and turned around, just as I was on the verge of calling to them to be careful where they went. The man called back to us asking, Hey, you guys, where's the front line? You just passed through it, I answered serenely. The second souvenir hunter spun around. They looked at each other and then at us in astonishment. Then, grabbing the bills of their caps, they took off on the double back past us toward the rear. They kicked up dust and never looked back. Hail, Sledgehammer. You should have let them go on so they'd get a good scare, chided my friend. I told him we couldn't just let them walk up on a sniper. Serve them rear echelon bastards right. And they call them guys marines, he grumbled. In fairness, I must add that some of the rear area service troops volunteered and served as stretcher bearers. In our myopic view, we respected and admired only those who got shot at, and to hell with everyone else. This was unfair to non-combatants who performed essential tasks, but we were so brutalized by war that we were incapable of making fair evaluations. A Leader Dies By 5 October, D plus 20, the 7th Marines had lost about as many men as the 1st Marines had lost earlier in the battle. The regiment was now finished as an assault force on the regimental level. The 5th Marines, the last of the 1st Marine Division's infantry regiments, began to relieve the 7th Marines that day. Some of the men of the battered regiment would be killed or wounded in subsequent actions in the draws and valleys among the ridges of Peleliu but the 7th Marines were through as a fighting force for the campaign. On 7 October, 3-5 made an assault up a large draw called Horseshoe Valley, known commonly as the Horseshoe. There were numerous enemy heavy guns in caves and emplacements in the ridges bordering the Horseshoe to the west, north, and east. Our battalion was supposed to knock out as many of them as possible. We were supported by six army tanks because the Marine 1st Tank Battalion had been relieved on 1 October to be sent back to Bavuvu. Somebody erroneously assumed there would be no further need for tanks on Peleliu. My guess is that the 1st Tank Battalion was relieved not because the men were badly depleted and debilitated, the official reason given, but because the machines were. Machines wore out or needed overhauling and maintenance, but men were expected to keep going. Tanks, Amtrak's trucks, aircraft, and ships were considered valuable and difficult to replace way out in the Pacific. They were maintained carefully and not exposed needlessly to wear or destruction. Men, infantrymen in particular, were simply expected to keep going beyond the limits of human endurance until they got killed or wounded or dropped from exhaustion.
Our attack on the horseshoe was preceded by terrific artillery fire from our big guns. The shells swished and whined toward the ridges for two and a half hours. The mortars added their bit, too. The attack was surprisingly successful. The horseshoe wasn't secured, but many Japanese were killed. We also knocked out many caves containing heavy guns, but only after several of the tanks took hits from them. In the estimation of the Marines, the Army tankers did a good job. Here, the tanks operated with our riflemen attached. It was a case of mutual support. The tanks pulled up to the caves and fired into them point-blank with their 75mm cannon. Wham-bam! Their machine guns never seemed to stop. A tank unattended by riflemen was doomed to certain destruction from enemy suicide crews carrying mines, and the riflemen got a lot of protection from the tanks. About the only instance I know of where tanks tried to operate without riflemen in the Pacific was a case of army tanks on Okinawa. Predictably, the Japanese knocked out most of those tanks. Marine tanks always operated with riflemen, like a dog with his fleas. But with tanks and riflemen, it was mutually beneficial. After the attack of 7 October on the Horseshoe, 3-5 pulled back some distance from the ridges. Shortly thereafter, we again went up toward the northern part of the island. Between 8 and 11 October, we emplaced our 60mm mortars between the West Road and the Narrow Beach. We were only a few yards from the water. Thus set up, we fired over the West Road, our front line beyond, and onto the ridges. We had an observer somewhere across the road who sent us orders by the sound-powered phone. We kept up a brisk rate of fire because Japanese had infiltrated into positions on the ridge next to the road and were sniping at vehicles and troops with deadly effect. Our mortar fire helped pin them down and clean them out. We had good gun emplacements among some rocks and were screened by a narrow strip of thick foliage between us and the road and, therefore, from the enemy in the ridge beyond. I was extremely confused as to where we had left our company. An NCO told me our mortars were detached temporarily from Company K and were supporting another unit hard-pressed by snipers. The enemy were firing from positions that were almost impossible to locate, and they shot any and everybody they could, even casualties being evacuated by Amtraks. More than one desperate Amtrak driver, as he raced down the west road toward the regimental aid station, arrived only to find his helpless cargo slaughtered where they lay. While we were in this position, we were particularly vulnerable to infiltrators who might slip in along the beach, as well as from the water to our rear. We kept watch in all directions at night. In this place, there were no friendly troops to our rear, just the water's edge about ten feet away and then the ocean-covered reef. The water was only about knee-deep for quite a distance out, the Japanese would wade out, slip along the reef, and come in behind us. One night, while I was firing flare shells, James T. Jim Burke, a Marine we called the Fatalist, was manning number one gun. Between firing missions, I could see him sitting on his helmet next to his gun, keeping watch to our left and rear. Hey, Sledgehammer, let me see your carbine a minute, he whispered nonchalantly in his usual, 
laconic manner. He had a forty-five pistol, which was of little use at much distance. I handed him my carbine. I didn't know what he saw, so I followed his gaze as he pointed my carbine toward the sea. In the pale light, a shadowy figure was moving slowly and silently along the reef, parallel to the shoreline in the shallow water. The man couldn't have been more than thirty yards away, or we couldn't have seen him in the dim moonlight. There was no doubt that he was a Japanese, trying to get farther along to where he could slip ashore and creep up on our mortars. No challenge or demand for password was even considered in a situation like that. No Marine would be creeping along the reef at night. The fatalist rested his elbow on his knees and took careful aim as the figure moved slowly through the glassy, smooth water. Two quick shots. The figure disappeared. The fatalist flipped the safety back on, handed me my carbine, and said, Thanks, Sledgehammer. He appeared as unconcerned as ever. During the morning of 12 October, an NCO brought word that we were to take up our guns. The mortar section was to rejoin Company K. We gathered our gear and mortar. Snafu, George Surrett, and I got into a jeep parked along a sheltered part of the road. We had to hang on because the driver took off with a lurch in a cloud of dust and drove like hell down the west road, bordered by the sniper-infested ridge. It was my first and only jeep ride during my entire enlistment. It was an eventful day because of that. Shortly, the driver stopped and led us off in a supply area where we waited for an NCO, who was to guide us up into the ridges. Directly, the rest of the company came mortarmen arrived with directions to reach the company. We hoisted our mortar and other weapons and gear and headed across the road. We picked our way around the edge of the ridge, then headed up a narrow valley filled with skeletons of shattered trees jutting up here and there on the slopes amid crazy angled coral masses. Johnny Marmette came striding down the incline of the valley to meet us as we started up. Even before I could see his face clearly, I knew from the way he was walking that something was dreadfully amiss. He lurched up to us, nervously clutching the web strap of the submachine gun slung over his shoulder. I had never seen Johnny nervous before, even under the thickest fire, which he seemed to regard as a nuisance that interfered with his carrying out his job. His tired face was contorted with emotion. His brow was knitted tightly, and his bloodshot eyes appeared moist. It was obvious he had something fearful to tell us. We shuffled to a halt. My first thought was that the Japanese had slipped in thousands of troops from the North Palau's and that we would never get off the island. No, maybe the enemy had bombed some American city or chased off the Navy as they had done at Guadalcanal. My imagination went wild, but none of us was prepared for what we were about to hear. Howdy, Johnny, someone said as he came up to us. All right, you guys, 
let's get squared away here, he said, looking in every direction but at us. This was strange, because Johnny wasn't the least reluctant to make eye contact with death, destiny, or the general himself. Okay, you guys, okay, you guys, he repeated, obviously flustered. A couple of men exchanged quizzical glances. The skipper is dead. Akak has been killed. Johnny finally blurted out. Then looked quickly away from us. I was stunned and sickened. Throwing my ammo bag down, I turned away from the others, sat in my helmet, and sobbed quietly. Those goddamn slant-eyed sons of bitches, someone behind me groaned. Never in my wildest imagination had I contemplated Captain Haldane's death. We had a steady stream of killed and wounded leaving us, but somehow I assumed Akak was immortal. Our company commander represented stability and direction in a world of violence, death, and destruction. Now his life had been snuffed out. We felt forlorn and lost. It was the worst grief I endured during the entire war. The intervening years have not lessened it any. Captain Andy Haldane wasn't an idol. He was human. But he commanded our individual destinies under the most trying conditions with the utmost compassion. We knew he could never be replaced. He was the finest Marine officer I ever knew. The loss of many close friends grieved me deeply on Peleliu and Okinawa. But to all of us, the loss of our company commander at Peleliu was like losing a parent we depended on for security. Not our physical security, because we knew that was a commodity beyond our reach in combat, but our mental security. Some of the men threw their gear violently to the deck. Everybody was cursing and rubbing his eyes. Finally, Johnny pulled himself together and said, Okay, you guys, let's move out. We picked up mortars and ammo bags, feeling as though our crazy world had fallen apart completely. We trudged slowly and silently, in single file, up the rubble-strewn valley to rejoin Company K. So ended the outstanding combat career of a fine officer who had distinguished himself on Guadalcanal, Cape Gloucester, and Peleliu. We had lost our leader and our friend. Our lives would never be the same. But we turned back to the ugly business at hand. The Stench of Battle Johnny led us on up through a jumble of rocks on Hill 140. Company K's line was emplaced along a rock rim, and we set up the mortars in a shallow depression, about 20 yards behind it. The riflemen and machine gunners in front of us were in among rocks along the rim of Hill 140, facing east toward Walt Ridge and the northern end of the infamous Horseshoe. We had previously attacked that valley from its southern end. From the rim of Hill 140, the rock contours dropped away in a sheer cliff to a canyon below. No one could raise his head above the rim rock without immediately drawing heavy rifle and machine gun fire. 
The fighting around the pocket was as deadly as ever, but of a different type from the early days of the campaign. The Japanese fired few artillery or mortar barrages, just a few rounds at a time, when assured of inflicting maximum casualties. That they usually did, and then secured the guns to escape detection. Sometimes there was an eerie quiet. We knew they were everywhere, in the caves and pillboxes. But there was no firing in our area, only the sound of firing elsewhere. The silence added an element of unreality to the valleys. If we moved past a certain point, the Japanese opened up suddenly with rifle, machine gun, mortar, and artillery fire. It was like a sudden storm breaking. More often than not, we had to pull back. And not a man in the company had seen a live enemy anywhere. They couldn't hope to drive us off by then, or to be reinforced themselves. From that point onward, they killed solely for the sake of killing, without hope and without higher purpose. We were fighting in Peleliu's ridges and valleys, in terrain the likes of which most Americans could not even visualize, against an enemy unlike anything most Americans could imagine. The sun bore down on us like a giant heat lamp. Once I saw a misplaced phosphorus grenade explode on the coral from the sun's intense heat. We always shaded our stacked mortar shells with a piece of ammo box to prevent this. Occasional rains that fell on the hot coral merely evaporated, like steam off hot pavement. The air hung heavy and muggy. Everywhere we went, on the ridges, the hot, humid air reeked with the stench of death. A strong wind was no relief. It simply brought the horrid odor from an adjacent area. Japanese corpses lay where they fell, among the rocks and on the slopes. It was impossible to cover them. Usually there was no soil that could be spaded over them, just the hard, jagged coral. The enemy dead simply rotted where they had fallen. They lay all over the place, in grotesque positions, with puffy faces and grinning, buck-toothed expressions. It is difficult to convey to anyone who has not experienced it the ghastly horror of having your sense of smell saturated constantly with the putrid odor of rotting human flesh, day after day, night after night. This was something the men of an infantry battalion got a horrifying dose of during a long, protracted battle such as Peleliu. In the tropics, the dead became bloated and gave off a terrific stench within a few hours after death. Whenever possible, we removed marine dead to the rear of the company's position. There they were usually laid on stretchers and covered with ponchos, which stretched over the head of the corpse down to the ankles. I rarely saw a dead marine left uncovered with his face exposed to sun, rain, and flies. Somehow it seemed indecent not to cover our dead. Often, though, the dead might lie on the stretchers for some time and decompose badly before the busy graves registration crews could take them for burial in the division cemetery near the airfield. During the fighting around the Umerbragel pocket, there was a constant movement of one weary, depleted marine company being relieved by another slightly less weary, depleted company.
We seem to rotate from one particularly dangerous part of the line to one slightly less so, and back again, continuously. There were certain areas we moved into and out of several times as the campaign dragged along its weary, bloody course. In many such areas, I became quite familiar with the sight of some particular enemy corpse, as if it were a landmark. It was gruesome to see the stages of decay proceed from just killed to bloated to maggot-infested rotting to partially exposed bones, like some biological clock marking the inexorable passage of time. On each occasion, my company passed such a landmark. We were fewer in number. Each time we moved into a different position, I could determine the areas occupied by each rifle company as we went into that sector of the line. Behind each company position lay a pile of ammo and supplies and the inevitable rows of dead under their ponchos. We could determine how bad that sector of the line was by the number of dead. To see them so always filled me with anger at the war and the realization of the senseless waste. It depressed me far more than my own fear. Added to the awful stench of the dead, of both sides, was the repulsive odor of human excrement everywhere. It was all but impossible to practice simple, elemental field sanitation on most areas of Peleliu because of the rocky surface. Field sanitation during maneuvers and combat was the responsibility of each man. In short, under normal conditions, he covered his own waste with a scoop of soil. At night, when he didn't dare venture out of his foxhole, he simply used an empty grenade canister or ration can, threw it out of his hole, and scooped dirt over it next day if he wasn't under heavy enemy fire. But on Peleliu, except along the beach areas and in the swamps, Digging into the coral rock was nearly impossible. Consequently, thousands of men, most of them around the Umerbragel pocket in the ridges, many suffering from severe diarrhea, fighting for weeks on an island two miles by six miles, couldn't practice basic field sanitation. This fundamental neglect caused an already putrid tropical atmosphere to become inconceivably vile. Added to this was the odor of thousands of rotting, discarded Japanese and American rations. At every breath, one inhaled hot, humid air, heavy with countless repulsive odors. I felt as though my lungs would never be cleansed of all those foul vapors. It may not have been that way down on the airfield, and in other areas where the service troops were encamped, but around the infantry, in the Umerbragel pocket, the stench varied only from foul to unbearable. In this garbage-filled environment, the flies, always numerous in the tropics anyway, underwent a population explosion. This species was not the unimposing common housefly, the presence of one of which in a restaurant is enough to cause most Americans today to declare the place unfit to serve food to the public. Peleliu's most common fly was the huge blowfly, or blue bottle fly. This creature has a plump, metallic, greenish-blue body, and its wings often make a humming sound during flight. The then-new insecticide DDT, 
was sprayed over the combat areas on Peleliu for the first time anywhere. It supposedly reduced the adult fly population while Marines were still fighting on the ridges. But I never noticed that the flies became fewer in number. With human corpses, human excrement, and rotting rations scattered across Peleliu's ridges, those nasty insects were so large, so glutted, and so lazy that some could scarcely fly. They could not be waved away or frightened off a can of rations or a chocolate bar. Frequently, they tumbled off the side of my canteen cup into my coffee. We actually had to shake the food to dislodge the flies, and even then they sometimes refused to move. I usually had to balance my can of stew on my knee, spooning it up with my right hand, while I picked the sluggish creatures off the stew with my left. They refused to move or to be intimidated. It was revolting, to say the least, to watch big, fat blowflies leave a corpse and swarm into our sea rations. Even though none of us had much appetite, we still had to eat. A way to solve the fly problem was to eat after sunset or before sunrise when the insects were inactive. Chow had to be unheated then, because no sterno tablets or other form of light could be used after dark. It was sure to draw enemy sniper fire. Each morning just before sunrise, when things were fairly quiet, I could hear a steady humming sound, like bees in a hive, as the flies became active with the onset of daylight. They rose up off the corpses, refuse, rocks, brush, and wherever else they had settled for the night, like a swarm of bees. Their numbers were incredible. Large land crabs crawled all over the ridges at night, attracted by corpses. Their rustling through dry debris often was indistinguishable from prowling enemy soldiers. We responded by tossing a grenade at the sound. In addition to rotting corpses and organic waste, the litter of smashed and worn-out equipment of every type became more abundant as the battle dragged on and the size of the Umerbrockle pocket shrank slowly. The ridges and ravines were littered with the floatsome of fierce combat. Debris of battle was everywhere and became more noticeable as the weeks dragged on. I still see clearly the landscape around one particular position we occupied for several days. It was a scene of destruction and desolation that no fiction could invent. The area was along the southwestern border of the pocket, where ferocious fighting had gone on since the second day of battle, 16 September. The 1st Marines, the 7th Marines, and now the 5th Marines, all in their turn, had fought against this same section of ridges. Our exhausted battalion, 3-5, moved into the line to relieve another slightly more exhausted battalion. It was the same old weary shuffle of one tired, depleted outfit into the line to relieve another whose sweating men trudged out of their positions, hollow-eyed, stooped, grimy, bearded zombies. The Company K riflemen and machine gunners climbed up the steep ridge and into the crevices and holes of the company we relieved. Orders were given that no one must look over the crest of the ridge because enemy rifle and machine gun fire 
would kill instantly anyone who did. As usual, the troops pulling out gave our men the dope on the local conditions. What type fire to expect? Particular dangerous spots and possible infiltration routes at night. My mortar went into a gun pit occupied by one of the 60mm mortars of the company we were relieving. The gun pit was among coral rocks, about 20 yards from the foot of the ridge. An extremely youthful marine was just buckling the leather strap around the bipod and tube of a 60mm mortar as I walked up near the position and put down my heavy ammo bag. I sat on my helmet and started talking to him as the rest of the squad moved into their positions. As the young man looked up, I was struck by the agonized expression on his face. He didn't seem happy the way he should have about being relieved. You guys watch out for the Japs at night. Two of the bastards got into this gun pit last night and cut up our gunner and assistant gunner, he said. He told me in a strained voice that the crew was so occupied firing the mortar during the previous night that two Japanese who slipped through the line on the ridge managed to creep up close to the pit without detection. They jumped in and cut up the two men working the mortar before nearby mortar ammo carriers killed them. The wounded marines had been evacuated, but one of them had died, and the other was in poor condition. The bodies of the Japanese had been thrown into some nearby bushes. The man telling me of the tragedy and another crouching beside the gun pit had been ammo carriers, but had now assumed new duties as gunner and assistant. I noticed that as the new gunner folded and strapped his gun to leave, he seemed reluctant to touch the bottom or sides of the emplacement. When he left, and when we came closer to the gun pit to set up our mortar, I saw why. The white coral sides and bottom were splattered and smeared with the dark red blood of his two comrades. After we got our gun emplaced, I collected up some large scraps of cardboard from ration and ammo boxes and used them to cover the bottom of the pit as well as I could. Fat, lazy blowflies were reluctant to leave the blood-smeared rock. I had long since become used to the sight of blood, but the idea of sitting in that blood-stained gun pit was a bit too much for me. It seemed almost like leaving our dead unburied to sit on the blood of a fellow Marine spilled out on the coral. I noticed that my buddy looked approvingly at my efforts as he came back from getting orders for our gun. Although we never discussed the subject, he apparently felt as I did. As I looked at the stains on the coral, I recalled some of the eloquent phrases of politicians and newsmen about how gallant it is for a man to shed his blood for his country and to give his life's blood as a sacrifice, and so on. The words seemed so ridiculous. Only the flies benefited. The wind blew hard. A drizzling rain fell out of the leaden sky that seemed to hang just above the ridge crest. Shattered trees and jagged rocks along the crest 
looked like stubble on a dirty chin. Most green trees and bushes had long since been shattered and pulverized by shellfire. Only the grotesque stumps and branches remained. A film of fine coral dust covered everything. It had been dust before the rain, but afterward, it was a grimy coating of thin plaster. The overwhelming grayness of everything in sight caused sky, ridge rocks, stumps, men, and equipment to blend into a grimy oneness. Weird, jagged contours of Peleliu's ridges and canyons gave the area an unearthly alien appearance. The shattered vegetation and the dirty white splotches peppering the rocks, where countless bullets and shell fragments had struck off the weathered gray surfaces, contributed to the unreality of the harsh landscape. Rain added the final touch. On a battlefield, rain made the living more miserable and forlorn, and the dead more pathetic. To my left lay a couple of bloated Japanese corpses, teeming with maggots and inactive flies, who seemed to object to the rain as much as I did. Each dead man still wore the two leather cartridge boxes, one on either side of his belt buckle. Neat wrap leggings, dobby shoes, helmets, and packs. Beside each corpse lay a shattered and rusting Arasaka rifle, smashed against a rock by some marine, to be certain it wasn't used again. Cans of C-rations and K-ration boxes, opened and unopened, lay around our gun pit, along with discarded grenade and mortar shell canisters. Scattered about the area were discarded U.S. helmets, packs, ponchos, dungaree jackets, web cartridge belts, leggings, boondockers, ammo boxes of every type, and crates. The discarded articles of clothing and the inevitable bottle of blood plasma bore mute testimony that a Marine had been hit there. Many tree stumps had a machine gun ammo belt draped over them. Some of these belts were partially filled with live cartridges. Amid all this evidence of violent combat, past and continuing, I was interested in the fact that spent, or partially so, machine gun ammo belts so often seemed to be draped across a shattered stump or bush rather than lying on the ground. In combat, I often experienced fascination over such trivia, particularly when exhausted physically and strained emotionally. Many combat veterans told me they also were affected the same way. All around us lay the destruction and waste of violent combat. Later, on the muddy clay fields and ridges of Okinawa, I would witness similar scenes on an even vaster scale. There, the battlefield would bear some resemblance to others described in World War II. During the muddy stalemate before Shuri, the area would resemble descriptions I had read of the ghastly, corpse-strewn morass of Flanders during World War I. These, though, were typical modern battlefields. They were nothing like the crazy contoured coral ridges and rubble-filled canyons of the Umerbragel pocket on Peleliu. Particularly at night, by the light of flares or on a cloudy day, 
It was like no other battlefield described on Earth. It was an alien, unearthly, surrealistic nightmare, like the surface of another planet. I have already mentioned several times the exhaustion of the Marines as the campaign wore on. Our extreme fatigue was no secret to the Japanese either. As early as 6 October, nine days before we were relieved, the captured document reported that we appeared worn out and were fighting less aggressively. The grinding stress of prolonged heavy combat, the loss of sleep because of nightly infiltration and raids, the vigorous physical demands forced on us by the rugged terrain, and the unrelenting, suffocating heat were enough to make us drop in our tracks. How we kept going and continued fighting, I'll never know. I was so indescribably weary physically and emotionally that I became fatalistic, praying only for my fate to be painless. The million-dollar wound seemed more of a blessing with every weary hour that dragged by. It seemed the only escape other than death or maiming. In addition to the terror and hardships of combat, each day brought some new dimension of dread for me. I witnessed some new, ghastly, macabre facet in the kaleidoscope of the unreal, as though designed by some fiendish ghoul to cause even the most hardened and calloused observer among us to recoil in horror and disbelief. Late one afternoon, a buddy and I returned to the gun pit in the fading light. We passed a shallow defilade we hadn't noticed previously. In it were three Marine dead. They were lying on stretchers where they had died before their comrades had been forced to withdraw some time earlier. I usually avoided confronting such pitiful remains. I never could bear the sight of American dead, neglected on the battlefield. In contrast, the sight of Japanese corpses bothered me little, aside from the stench and the flies they nourished. As we moved past the defilade, my buddy groaned, Jesus. I took a quick glance into the depression and recoiled in revulsion and pity at what I saw. The bodies were badly decomposed and nearly blackened by exposure. This was to be expected of the dead in the tropics, but these marines had been mutilated hideously by the enemy. One man had been decapitated. His head lay on his chest. His hands had been severed from his wrists and also lay on his chest near his chin. In disbelief, I stared at the face as I realized that the Japanese had cut off the dead Marine's penis and stuffed it into his mouth. The corpse next to him had been treated similarly. The third had been butchered, chopped up like a carcass torn by some predatory animal. My emotions solidified into rage and a hatred for the Japanese beyond anything I ever had experienced. From that moment on, I never felt the least pity or compassion for them, no matter what the circumstances.
My comrades would field strip their packs and pockets for souvenirs and take gold teeth. But I never saw Marine commit the kind of barbaric mutilation the Japanese committed if they had access to our dead. When we got back to the gun pit, my buddy said, Sledgehammer, did you see what the nips did to them bodies? Did you see what them poor guys had in their mouths? I nodded as he continued. Christ, I hate them slant-eyed bastards. Me too. They're mean as hell. Was all I could say. Victory at high cost. 12 October continued to be an eventful day for us on Hill 140. Following Captain Haldane's death in the morning, we set up our mortars below and behind a 75-millimeter pack howitzer tied down with Company K's lines. We were to fire our usual support for the company, but we also were to provide covering fire for the artillery piece. Johnny Marmette was observing for us through a crack in the coral rock up near the howitzer when he suddenly called down to us that he saw some Japanese officers just outside the mouth of a cave. Apparently confident they were sheltered from American fire, they were just sitting down to eat at a table on a ledge beneath a thatched canopy. Johnny called the range to us and ordered to fire five rounds. Snafu sighted in on the proper aiming stake, repeated Johnny's range and yelled, Fire one! I grabbed the shell, repeated the range and charge, pulled off the proper number of powder increments from between the tail fins, put my right thumb over the safety pin, pulled the safety wire, and dropped the shell into the muzzle. Snafu realigned the sight after the recoil, grabbed the bipod feet and yelled, Fire two! I prepared the second shell and dropped it into the tube. It went smoothly, and we got all the rounds off in short order. We listened tensely for them to explode on target. My heart pounded away the seconds. It was a rare occasion to get Japanese officers bunched up, and rarer indeed on Peleliu for them to expose themselves. After seemingly endless seconds of suspense, we heard the dull boom as each shell exploded over the ridge and across the valley. Something was wrong, though. I heard one less explosion than the number of shells we had fired. We looked anxiously up at Johnny, who had his eyes glued to the target. Suddenly, he spun around, snapping his finger, and stamped his foot. Scowling down at us, he yelled, Right on target! Zeroed in! But the first damn round was a dud! What the hell happened? We groaned and cursed with frustration. The first shell had gone right through the thatched roof, and the Japanese officers dove for the cave. But the shell didn't explode. Our remaining shells were right on target, too, smashing up and blowing apart the thatched canopy in the table. But the enemy officers were safe inside the cave. Our pinpoint accuracy had been remarkable for a 60mm mortar that normally functioned to neutralize an area with fragments from its bursting shells. Our golden opportunity had vanished because of a dud shell. We set about trying to figure out what had gone wrong. Everybody in the mortar section was cursing and groaning. Suddenly, 
Snafu accused me of forgetting to pull the safety wire to arm the first shell. I was confident that I had pulled the pin. Some defense worker in an ammunition plant back in the States had made a mistake in the manufacture of the shell, I contended. Snafu wouldn't accept that, and we got into a hot argument. I was angry and frustrated enough myself. We had missed our one chance in a million to avenge the death of our CO. But Snafu was in a rage. It was a matter of pride with him, because he was the gunner and therefore in command of our mortar crew. Snafu was a good Marine and an expert mortarman. His performance of his duties bore absolutely no resemblance to his nickname. Situation normal, all fouled up. He felt it was a reflection on him that a chance to clobber several Japanese officers had failed because his assistant gunner hadn't pulled the safety wire on a shell. He was proud of a newspaper clipping from his hometown paper in Louisiana describing the effective fire his mortar gun had poured on the Japs during the bloody fighting for Hill 660 on Cape Gloucester. Snafu was a unique character, known and respected by everybody. The guys loved to kid him about his intrepid mortar gun on Hill 660, and he thrived on it. But this foul-up and escape of those enemy officers because of a dud shell was another matter. As we argued, I knew that unless I could prove the dud wasn't my fault, I'd never hear the end of it from Snafu and the other Company K survivors of Peleliu. Fortunately, luck was on my side. We had fired only a couple of shells to register the gun before Johnny called us to fire on the Japanese. Consequently, I had an accurate count of the number of rounds we had fired from this position. While Snafu ranted and raved, I crawled around on all fours a few feet in front of the gun. With incredible luck, I found what I was seeking amid the coral gravel and pulverized plant material. I retrieved the safety wire from each shell we had fired. I held them out to Snafu and said, Okay, count them and tell me I didn't pull the wires on all those rounds. He counted them. We knew that no other 60mm mortar had occupied this newly captured position, so all the wires were ours. I was angry the shell had been a dud and that the Japanese had escaped, but I was delighted that it wasn't due to my carelessness. I heard no more word about the dud. We all wanted to forget it. Word also came that day that the high command had declared the assault phase of the Palau Islands operation at an end. Many profane and irreverent remarks were made by my buddies to the effect that our leaders were as crazy as hell if they thought that held true on Peleliu. Somebody from the Division CP needs to come up here and tell them damn nips the assault phase is over, grumbled one man. After dark, the Japanese reinfiltrated some of the positions they had been driven out of around Hill 140. It was the usual hellish night in the ridges. Exhausted Marines trying to fight off incredibly aggressive Japanese slipping all around. It was mortar flares, HE shells, grenades, and small arms fire. I was so tired, I held one eye open with the fingers of one hand to stay awake while clutching a grenade or other weapon with the other hand. The next day, 13 October, 
3-5 was ordered to renew the offensive and straighten our lines, forming a salient on Hill 140. Our battalion was the only unit of the 5th Marines still on the lines and ordered to attack. Snipers raised hail all over the place. It seemed to me the fighting would never end as we fired covering fire for our weary riflemen. Our artillery fired heavy support. The next morning, 14 October, Corsairs made a napalm strike against the Japanese on our right. Company I made a probing attack after a mortar barrage was halted by heavy sniper fire. Companies K and L improved their positions and put out more sandbags and concertina wire. The battalion's efforts at attacking seemed like the gasping of a tired steam engine struggling to pull its string of cars up a steep grade. We were barely making it. Rumors flew that army troops would relieve us in the next day, but my cynicism kept me from believing them. We found some Japanese rifles and ammunition in our area. Hidden under pieces of corrugated iron, I discovered two boxes containing about a dozen Japanese grenades. I suggested to an NCO that we take them in case we needed them during the coming night, but he said we could get them later if necessary. We got busy on firing missions with our mortar, and the first time I glanced back toward the boxes, the souvenir hunters had moved in and were emptying them. Another mortarman and I yelled at the scavenging pests. They left, but all the Japanese grenades were gone. A wave of hope and excitement spread through the ranks that evening when we got solid information that we would be relieved by the army the next morning. I got less sleep that night than ever. With the end in sight, I didn't want to get my throat slit at the last moment before escaping from the meat grinder. During the morning of 15 October, soldiers of the 2nd Battalion, 321st Infantry Regiment, 81st Infantry Division, Wildcats, began moving single file into our area. I couldn't believe it. We were being relieved at last. As the soldiers filed by us into position, a grizzled buddy, squatting on his battered helmet, eyed them critically and remarked, Sledgehammer, I don't know about them dog faces. Look how many of them wearing glasses. And they look old enough to be my daddy. Besides, them pockets on their dungaree pants sure do look baggy. They look fine to me. There are replacements, I answered. I guess you're right. Thank God they're here, he said reflectively. His observations were correct, though, because most of our fellow Marines hadn't reached the age of 21 yet, and Army dungarees did have large side pockets. We sure are glad to see you guys, I said to one of the soldiers. He just grinned and said, thanks. I knew he wasn't happy to be there. The relief, which had gone smoothly, was completed by 1100, and we were on our way to the northern defense zone of Peleliu. Our battalion deployed along the east road facing seaward, where we were to stop any counter-landing the Japanese might try. My mortar was in place near the road so we could fire on the strip of mangrove swamp between the narrow beach and the sea as well as up the road toward the Umerbragel pocket if necessary. There was a sloping ridge to our rear 
along which the rest of the company dug in defensively. We stayed there from the time we came off the line until the last week of the month. The area was quiet. We relaxed as much as we could with the nagging fear that we might get thrown into the line again if an emergency developed. We learned that our battalion would leave Peleliu as soon as the ship was available to transport us back to Pavuvu. By day we rested and swapped souvenirs, but we had to be on the alert at night for possible Japanese movement. To the south, we could hear the constant rattle of machine guns and the thud of mortars and artillery as the 81st Infantry Division kept up the pressure around the Umerbrogel pocket. One day a buddy told me he had a unique souvenir to show me. We sat on a rock as he carefully removed a package from his combat pack. He unwrapped layers of waxed paper that had originally covered rations and proudly held out his prize for me to see. Have you gone Asiatic, I gasped. You know you can't keep that thing. Some officer will put you on report sure as hell. I remonstrated as I stared in horror at the shriveled human hand he had unwrapped. Aw, oh, sledgehammer, nobody's gonna say anything. I've gotta dry it in the sun a little more so it won't stink, he said as he carefully laid it out on the rock in the hot sun. He explained that he thought a dry Japanese hand would be a more interesting souvenir than gold teeth. So when he found a corpse that was drying in the sun and not rotting, he simply took out his K-bar and severed the hand from the corpse. And here it was. And what did I think? I think you're nuts, I said. You know the CEO will raise hell if he sees that. Hell no, Sledgehammer. Nobody says anything about the guys collecting gold teeth, do they? He argued. Maybe so, I said. But it's just the idea of a human hand. Bury it. He looked grimly at me. Which was totally out of character for his amiable good nature. How many marines you reckon that hand pulled the trigger on? He asked in an icy voice. I stared at the blackened, shriveled hand and wondered about what he said. I thought how I valued my own hands, and what a miracle, to do good or evil, the human hand is. Although I didn't collect gold teeth, I had gotten used to the idea, but somehow a hand seemed to be going too far. The war had gotten to my friend. He had lost, briefly I hoped, all his sensitivity. He was a 20th century savage now, mild-mannered though he still was. I shuddered to think that I might do the same thing if the war went on and on. Several of our marines came over to see what my buddy had. You dumb jerk. Throw that thing away before it begins to stink, growled an NCO. Hell yes, added another man. I don't want you going aboard ship with me if you got that thing. It gives me the creeps he said as he looked disgustedly at the souvenir. After several other men chimed in with their disapproval, my friend reluctantly flung his unique souvenir among the rocks. We had good rations and began to eat heartily and enjoy being out of the line, as we relaxed more each day. Good water came up by jeep with the rations, and I never brushed my teeth so many times a day.
it was a luxury. Rumors began to spread that we would soon board ship and leave Peleliu. Toward the end of October, we moved to another part of the island. Our spirits soared. We bivouacked in a sandy, flat area near the beach. Jeeves brought in our jungle hammocks and our knapsacks. We received orders to shave and to put on the clean dungarees we all carried in our knapsacks. Some men complained that it would be easier to clean up aboard ship, but one NCO laughed and said that if our scroungy, stinking bunch of marines climbed a cargo net aboard ship, the sailors would jump over the other side as soon as they saw us. My hair, though it had been short on D-Day, had grown into a thick, matted mass, plastered together with rifle oil and coral dust. Long ago, I had thrown away my pocket comb because most of the teeth had broken out when I tried to comb my hair. I managed now to clean up my head with soap and water, and it took both edges of two razor blades and a complete tube of shaving soap to shave off the itching, greasy tangle of coral-encrusted beard. I felt like a man freed of a hair shirt. My dungaree jacket wasn't torn, and I felt I must keep it as a souvenir of good luck. I rinsed it in the ocean, dried it in the sun, and put it into my pack. My filthy dungaree trousers were ragged and torn in the knees, so I threw them into a campfire along with my stinking socks. The jagged coral had worn away the tough, inch-thick cord soles of my new boondockers of 15 September to the thin inner soles. I had to keep these until we returned to Pavuvu, because my replacement shoes were back there in my sea bag. That afternoon, 29 October, we learned that we would board ship the next day. With a feeling of intense relief, I climbed into my hammock at dusk and zipped up the mosquito netting along the side. I was delighted at how comfortable it was to lie on something other than hard, rocky ground. I lay back, sighed, and thought of the good sleep I should get until my turn for sentry duty came around. I could look inland and see the ragged crest of those terrible ridges against the skyline. Thank goodness that section was in U.S. hands, I thought. Suddenly, zip, 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 zip. A burst of Japanese gunfire, blue-white tracers, slashed through the air, under my hammock. The bullets kicked up sand on the other side of a crater beneath me. I jerked up the hammock zipper. Carbine in hand, I tumbled out into the crater. After all I'd been through, I wasn't taking any chances on getting my rear end shot off in a hammock. Judging from the sound made by the bullets, the machine gun was a long way off. The gunner was probably firing a burst toward the army lines, over on some ridge between him and me. But a man could get killed just as dead by a stray bullet as an aimed one. So after my brief moments of comfort in the hammock, I slept the rest of the night in the crater. Next morning, 30 October, we squared away our packs, picked up our gear, and moved out to board ship. Even though we were leaving bloody Peleliu at last, my mind was distracted by an oppressive feeling that Bloody Nose Ridge was pulling us back like some giant, 
inexorable magnet. It had soaked up the blood of our division like a great sponge. I believed that it would get us yet. Even if we boarded ship, we would get jerked off and thrown into the line to help stop a counterattack or some threat to the airfield. I suppose I had become completely fatalistic. Our casualties had been so heavy that it was impossible for me to believe we were actually leaving Peleliu. The sea was quite rough, and I looked back at the island with great relief as we put out for the ship. We pulled alongside a big merchant troop ship, the Sea Runner, and prepared to climb a cargo net to get aboard. We had done this sort of thing countless times in our training, but never when we were so terribly exhausted. We had a hard time even getting started up the net because we kept bobbing up and down in the heavy sea. Several men stopped to rest on the way, but no one fell. As I struggled upward with my load of equipment, I felt like a weary insect climbing a vine. But at last, I was crawling up out of the abyss of Peleliu. We were assigned to quarters in troop compartments below decks. I stowed my gear on my rack and went topside. The salt air was delicious to breathe. What a luxury to inhale long, deep breaths of fresh, clean air. Air that wasn't heavy with the fetid stench of death. The cost in casualties for a tiny island was terrible. The fine 1st Marine Division was shattered. It suffered a total loss of 6,526 men, 1,252 dead and 5,274 wounded. The casualties in the division's infantry regiments were 1st Marines, 1,749, 5th Marines, 1,378, 7th Marines, 1,497. These were severe losses considering that each infantry regiment started with about 3,000 men. The Army's 81st Infantry Division would lose another 3,278 men, 542 dead and 2,736 wounded, before it secured the island. Most of the enemy garrison on Peleliu died. Only a few were captured. Estimates as to the exact losses by the Japanese vary somewhat, but conservatively, 10,900 Japanese soldiers died and 302 became prisoners. Of the prisoners, only seven were soldiers and twelve sailors. The remainder were laborers of other Oriental extractions. Company K, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, went into Peleliu with approximately 235 men, the normal size of a World War II Marine rifle company. It left with only 85 unhurt. It suffered 64% casualties. Of its original seven officers, two remained for the return to Pavuvu. For its actions on Peleliu and Ngesibus, the 1st Marine Division received the Presidential Unit Citation. Even at a distance, Peleliu was ugly, with the jagged ridges and shattered trees. Haney came up alongside me and leaned on the rail. He looked gloomily at the island and puffed a cigarette. Well, Haney, what did you think of Peleliu?
I asked. I really was curious what a veteran with a combat record that included some of the big battles of the Western Front during World War I thought of the first battle in which I had participated. I had nothing in my experience to make a comparison with Peleliu. Instead of the usual old salt comment, something like, you think that was bad, you ought to have been in the old corps. Haney answered with an unexpected, boy, that was terrible. I ain't never seen nothing like it. I'm ready to go back to the States. I've had enough after that. A common perception has it that the worst battle to any man is the one he had been in himself. In view of Haney's comments, I concluded that Peleliu must have been as bad as I thought it was, even though it was my first battle. Haney's long Marine Corps career as a combat infantryman certainly qualified him as a good judge of how bad a battle had been. His simple words were enough to convince me about the severity of the fight we had just been through. None of us would ever be the same after what we had endured. To some degree that is true, of course, of all human experience. But something in me died at Peleliu. Perhaps it was a childish innocence that accepted as faith the claim that man is basically good. Possibly I lost faith that politicians in high places who do not have to endure war savagery will ever stop blundering and sending others to endure it. But I also learned important things on Peleliu. A man's ability to depend on his comrades and immediate leadership is absolutely necessary. I'm convinced that our discipline, esprit de corps, and tough training were the ingredients that equipped me to survive the ordeal physically and mentally, given a lot of good luck, of course. I learned realism, too. To defeat an enemy as tough and dedicated as the Japanese, we had to be just as tough. We had to be just as dedicated to America as they were to their emperor. I think this was the essence of Marine Corps doctrine in World War II, and that history vindicates this doctrine. To this private first class, Peleliu was also a vindication of Marine Corps training, particularly of boot camp. I speak only from a personal viewpoint and make no generalizations, but for me, in the final analysis, Peleliu was... 30 days of severe, unrelenting, inhuman, emotional, and physical stress. Proof that I could trust and depend completely on the Marine on each side of me and on our leadership. Proof that I could use my weapons and equipment efficiently under severe stress. And proof that the critical factor in combat stress is duration of the combat rather than the severity. Boot camp taught me that I was expected to excel, or try to, even under stress. My drill instructor was a small man. He didn't have a big mouth. He was neither cruel nor sadistic. He wasn't a bully. But he was a strict disciplinarian. A total realist about our future. And an absolute perfectionist 
dedicated to excellence. To him, more than to my disciplined home life, a year of college ROTC before boot camp, and months of infantry training afterward, I attribute my ability to have withstood the stress of Peleliu. The Japanese were as dedicated to military excellence as U.S. Marines. Consequently, on Peleliu, the opposing forces were like two scorpions in a bottle. One was annihilated, the other nearly so. Only Americans who excelled could have defeated them. Okinawa would be the longest and largest battle of the Pacific War. There, my division would suffer about as many casualties as it did on Peleliu. Again, the enemy garrison would fight to the death. On Okinawa, I would be shelled and shot at more, see more enemy soldiers, and fire at more of them with my mortar and with small arms than on Peleliu. But there was a ferocious, vicious nature to the fighting on Peleliu that made it unique for me. Many of my veteran comrades agreed. Perhaps we can say of Peleliu, as the Englishman Robert Graves said of World War I, that it gave us infantrymen so convenient a measuring stick for discomfort, grief, pain, fear, and horror that nothing since has greatly daunted us. But it also brought new meanings of courage, patience, loyalty, and greatness of spirit. Incommunicable, we found, to later times. As I crawled out of the abyss of combat and over the rail of the sea runner, I realized that compassion for the suffering of others is a burden to those who have it. As Wilfred Owen's poem, Insensibility, puts it so well, those who feel most for others suffer most in war. <laughs>